Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is being brought to you live and recorded live on August 27th, 2021. The time right now, 9.53 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. This is only six days since the last show, and the previous show was only six days after the show before that. And that's because we didn't have all that many shows between mid-July and mid-August. In fact, I only did one show in that period between July 15th and August 14th. Brandon did a show on July 24th, but I was barely part of that one. So as far as this show, it only ran once in that time frame, mostly because of my trip, but also just because uh, of other things I had to do that made me unavailable to do radio during that time. So I wanted to make up for it by doing a little bit more radio than we typically do. So we've had six days in between shows instead of seven. So this is back on Friday night. We're going to try to keep it on Friday night. So the next scheduled show would be a week from today on September 3rd. And hopefully it'll stay on Friday for the foreseeable future. But you never know. Always check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert to see any information that I may be posting on that regarding the schedule of this show. Anyway, we have a free roll tonight. It's just starting right now. It's at 9.55 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, which is right at this moment. But you still have 25 more minutes to get in with late registration all the way through 10.20 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. That's on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. You can find it by clicking on No Fraud Online Poker near the top left on PokerFraudAlert.com. You need a separate account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, and it needs to be validated in order to play the free roll. It's separate from the forum. And if you do not get validated, then please message Belly Buster on the forum. That's Belly Space Buster. And if he does not respond, then you can message me, Dan Space Druff, or you can text me, and I'll see what I can do to help you. But please try to contact Belly Buster first if you're signing up new for the free roll and need to get validated. Make sure to go to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll to understand the rules as far as qualifying to win the free money. This week, we are giving away $55, 28 for first, 17 for second, 10 for third. All of this came thanks to SMI Florida, who's donated many times to the free roll over the years. I appreciate that. So 28, 17, and 10 are the three prizes we are giving away this week. If you can make the free roll, you may want to give it a shot because since we've been broadcasting later and later, people just can't make the live show and catch it in the archives, which means smaller fields in the free roll. So if you see the free roll fields declining, it isn't because our listenership is declining. It's because our live listenership is declining because we're starting at an inconvenient time for many. And that's a bit unfortunate, but this is a West Coast bias show, so... That's the way it goes. Everything else is East Coast biased. This is going to be West Coast biased. So I apologize to those who cannot listen to the show live because of the hours we're on, but I don't apologize that much because we always have the archives. If you want to call the show and you're listening live, you can call 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is how that breaks out. We also have the Mount Charleston line. It's an old 70s rotary phone, which sits on top of Mount Charleston and forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. We also have the call to listen lines. These cannot be used to speak to me, but they can be used to listen to me. 
If you call up this number, you can hear the live show. And when we're not on live, you can hear one of our many streaming reruns where it just streams a random show in full and then picks another at random, another at random until we come back live the next time. We have more than 400 shows that it randomly chooses from over the last nine and a half years, which has been the length of our run so far. The phone number of the call to listen line is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736, or the alternate call to listen line, which works just as well, 641-741-1095. If you forget any of these phone numbers, all you have to do is click the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com, and they're all listed there for you. The call to listen line never buffers, never freezes, It does not require a smartphone, does not require a data plan, doesn't require a computer or the internet. No, 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 no. It's very simple. You just pick up any phone that could ever dial a phone number in the U.S., dial it, and listen. And provided you can call within the U.S. for free, and provided you don't have T-Mobile, then it's not going to cost you anything. And if you do have T-Mobile, it'll cost you one cent a minute, which is not my decision, and I don't get any of the money. We have a chat room if you want to chat with other listeners. If you're listening live, if you're not listening live, don't bother. But we have a chat button near the top of the screen. You need a forum account in good standing to get into the chat room. I will give you the agenda and then we will get going. The WSOP announced today that they're going to stop pussyfooting around the whole thing. They're just going to be straightforward. You have to be vaccinated to play. That just dropped today. It seemed like they were kind of, sort of trying to imply this without absolutely requiring this. Finally, they're like, you know what? You have to be fully vaccinated or you can't play. So obviously there's a lot of controversy about this. And I will tell you about this controversy, how I feel about it. I will tell you how some other people feel about it. I'm sure you can guess. Poker Fraud Alert exclusive. This is not being reported anywhere else on the web that I know of. Fox Poker, which is a small private poker room that is one that's run by an individual on their computer, and they manage all the deposits and cash outs. Fox Poker, which at one point was associated with Real Grinders, but had a falling out with Ray Davis and has not been associated with Real Grinders in quite some time. They are now having payout problems, and it is my opinion that they are broke and that they are trying to rob Peter to pay Paul in order to stay afloat. So I will tell you about Fox Poker, the controversy surrounding them, the payout problems, and how I feel about rooms like Fox Poker, and also why you can't even trust that you aren't being cheated on Fox Poker. So I will cover all of that when we do that story. The last several weeks, I have done a story for you. Not a news story, but I've done a story where I tell some story about something that happened. Often, it has been not about poker or gambling. Last week, it was about a scam from the Ukraine. There was a romance scam, a very complex one, that I thought was interesting. And a lot of you thought that, too. I got a lot of good feedback on that segment. Well, we're going to do another segment like that this week, except it's going to be about poker and gambling. In fact, it's going to be about both. I believe I have solved a long-running mystery, which was once a big story in poker in the late 2000s. Yes, we're going back to 2007, 2008, 
We did that last week. We're going to do it again this week about something totally different. So welcome to 2008, folks. We're going backwards in radio here. But you may wonder, why would you care about a story from 2007 or 2008? I think you're going to like this one. And it even has a link to the present. And I figured out, at least I believe I figured out, what was really going on in this story in the present. This is a story about a mysterious woman who came to me and wanted to tell me about Full Tilt and all the shady things it was doing in 2009. Not in 2011, after they stole all the money, but in 2009. And she wanted me to meet her somewhere so she could tell me everything. And then she ended up suing them. And this was a former rival of mine in Heads Up Poker, who in fact didn't like me prior to that and had complained about me to several poker sites. So I'll tell you about this story and I'll tell you about what I have discovered recently that I believe blows the lid off the entire thing, including the lawsuit. I have a report about Commerce that the high-limit room at Commerce no longer offers poker. That is pretty amazing. At the peak of poker, of the poker boom, that room was so full, they actually had to move certain middle stakes games out of that room into the main room because it was meant to be a middle and high stakes room It was a huge room, and yet it could not accommodate all the middle and high-stakes games. There were so many of them. That was when it was at its peak. Now, things have declined so badly at Commerce that they don't run any poker in that room anymore, and poker has apparently been moved out of that room permanently. Wow, that is a massive decline. We will discuss the fall of the high-limit scene at Commerce. Remember Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history? Remember that segment that I was doing every so often? Popular segment, too. Well, then I kind of got away from it for a while. Not because I meant to stop it. I just didn't really have that much to talk about and kind of forgot that I was even doing it. But then today I realized, you know what? It's been a while since I've done Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. So what I'm going to do today is I will do a segment on that, except it's not going to be about either the Mojave Desert or Las Vegas. (laughs) But it will be about a desert town close to the Mojave Desert in Southern California. It's close enough. But it's about desert center California that has a very interesting 100-year history, and it just sold for a little more than $6 million, the entire town. So we'll talk all about desert center. Tom Dwan finally put an end to Phil Helmuth's win streak. Tom Dwan also known as Durr, played Helmuth heads up, and he beat him. But as a bonus topic to that segment, we're going to discuss Tom Dwan's mysterious wife and why we never hear about her. That's a little bonus segment here, in addition to talking about his match with Helmuth. Speaking of heads up matches, Phil Galfond walking away victorious again. Can anybody beat him in PLO? Apparently not. Brandon Adams was the latest victim. He quit the heads-up challenge down 270K and lost the side bet. So we'll recap that pretty quickly. Vital Vegas is on a new kick. He has been calling out bad tippers, or at least ones he perceives to be bad tippers. And there was some controversy recently when he called out a tipper 
who tipped $200 to a slot attendant, and he was actually calling out this woman for not tipping enough. And I disagreed. So I'm going to tell you about why Vegas, Vital Vegas uh, felt that way, why I disagree, why he might be on this whole kick with shaming tippers, and why I think tip shaming is bad. I'm going to give you a warning about blockchain.com. Remember blockchain.com? That's what I've been advising everybody to use as a middleman site when depositing or cashing out to or from online gambling sites, including online poker. Well, don't anymore. Stop using blockchain for that. Immediately stop. Why? I will tell you when we get to that segment. But if you don't get to that segment, just don't. Do not use it for that. Find something else. Finally, coronavirus news. Third vaccine shot side effects. What are they? Are there any? How bad are they? This is something I want to know because I would like to take the third shot when it's available to me, but I'm a little bit scared of the side effects. So I looked into it and I will tell you what I found out so far. That's our show for tonight. So let's jump into the first topic, which is the vaccine mandate for the World Series of Poker. The WSOP has been all over the place regarding the COVID situation for 2021. And this is so typical for the World Series that they don't think things through. They just haphazardly decide things or delegate decisions to people who should not be making them. Everyone gets mad. Everyone gets outraged. And then they keep changing things until finally they do the right thing. Like, there's been so many times this has happened where they make an idiotic, mind-boggling decision, and then the poker world gets outraged, and then finally they eventually land in the right place. So here's what happened with the World Series, and it it really just shows how, how crazy this whole thing is with them. If you remember, KevMath found that in a rule, I think it was Rule 115, that you would get disqualified from the WSOP, from any event you'd be playing, if you were near anybody who was COVID positive. So even if you were at the table with someone, which is your no choice of yours, your, your place where they place you, and it turned out that person had COVID, or if the dealer had COVID, that tough luck you are going to be disqualified and you will get paid whatever place you're at presently. So if you haven't cashed yet, you get nothing. If you have min-cashed, you're going to get a min-cash even if you have the biggest stack in the tournament. So obviously this pissed people off because they would have to gamble with not only do they get COVID, but who is next to them. And this was really bothersome to people. (laughs) So as you can imagine... Uh, a lot of people were very unhappy about this, especially when it came to large buy-in events. They're like, I'm not going to risk 25000 just to get disqualified because the dude next to me has COVID. And that was very reasonable. There was a lot of Twitter bitching about this, and, and rightfully so. Some people said, oh, who cares what people on Twitter say? No, really, the entire poker community was pretty outraged by this rule. And what ended up happening was that they modified this rule. And we already covered this, so I'm not going to get into the whole story with that. But the first thing discovered on August 9th by KevMath was this Rule 115. Then, finally, the WSOP clarified that as long as you're not showing symptoms, 
that even if you were exposed to somebody who has COVID, you're not going to be disqualified. But if you were vaccinated, that's only if you were vaccinated. If you were not vaccinated, then you would be disqualified. So this was a way to kind of softly make everybody get vaccinated. The exact language of what they said was WSOP participants who are known to have been exposed to a person who's tested positive for COVID-19 will not be required to leave the tournament and quarantine if they're fully vaccinated. So a lot of people are unhappy about that because they're saying if we're not vaccinated, this means that if anybody was exposed to us, even involuntarily, like someone placed at our table or a dealer at our table, then we're disqualified. So this fixes the problem for those who are fully vaccinated. But for those who are not fully vaccinated, again, they're gambling with whether they've been exposed to someone with COVID and then they'll be disqualified even if they're totally healthy. So they were unhappy about that. At the time, I said that this isn't right. I said they need to either go fully vaccinated requirements where you can't play unless you're fully vaccinated or say, it's up to you. We don't care. We recommend you get vaccinated, but we're not going to enforce anything. That's what I said. They shouldn't go with this weird middle ground where people who are unvaccinated can play, but if they happen to be exposed to somebody at the table through no fault of their own that has COVID, then they're disqualified. That's not fair either. You shouldn't let these people play in the first place if they're going to have to play under the circumstances because there's going to be some who won't even be aware of this rule and there's going to be a lot of controversy. Then Daniel Negreanu gave some clarification that made it seem even more lax. He said, no on-site testing or proof of vaccine is required and World Series will not disqualify a player unless they volunteer they've tested positive. Also, he said, they're not going to be looking into the contact tracing database of the CDC Meaning, even if you admit to the CDC that you have COVID, that they're not going to know that. So basically, Negreanu's saying is, unless you directly admit to them, I am COVID positive, they will never disqualify you. So, so then really, what's the point? So it looked like at that point, they were doing the very, very, very bare minimum COVID-wise. They claimed that they would only disqualify people who were exposed to COVID-positive people if... They were unvaccinated, but as long as you say you're vaccinated, then they won't disqualify you, and they'll never check it, and they're going to make no effort to check it. So basically, everyone could just lie and say they're vaccinated, and other than the very, very vocal people on Twitter who've sworn they were not vaccinated, uh, they'll get away with it. So at that point, I especially said, like, why even bother to have this? You might as well just say, look, play at your own risk. That's it. We're done. Otherwise, all of this rulemaking is just stupid posturing, but really does nothing. Like, you've got to go one way or the other. You've got to either say, this is going to be a fully vaccinated event, or play at your own risk. We're not going to care about your vaccination status, and we're not going to care about who's at your table regarding their COVID status, because you know, we know you can't control that. So if you play this event, you may catch COVID. It's up to you. It should have been one of those two. I also said I'd be fine with either of those two. Well, they have gone in one of those two directions. And while it looked like they were going in the direction of do what you want, it turned out they went the complete other way. So now, as of today, the WSOP has announced that you have to be fully vaccinated in order to play the World Series of Poker 2021. 
fully vaccinated means that you have gotten both shots and then the appropriate amount of time has passed since you got your second shot. The WSOP put out a press release today, or actually not today, it was yesterday, but somehow, you know what it was today? It was today, but for some reason it has a date of yesterday. No wonder we didn't hear about it yesterday. I was going, why didn't we hear about this yesterday? And then it's typical WSOP. It says August 27th, 2021. And then under the press release, it says Las Vegas, August 26th, 2021. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, it's a minor mistake, but it's, it's so indicative of what's going on over there. The WSOP today announced that anyone attending the 2021 World Series of Poker and $10,000 No Limit Hold'em World Championship, best known as the main event, will be required to pr- show proof that they are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. The event returns to live play at the Rio All Sweden Casino with the policy in effect beginning Thursday, September 30th through Tuesday, November 23rd. So it looks like they are requiring proof and you cannot lie about your vaccination status. This is not a decision we have taken lightly. It is made with no agenda beyond protecting player eligibility and the operations of a unique televised gaming event, said Ty Stewart, WSP executive director. Now, let me stop right there. When he says no agenda beyond protecting player eligibility, he's trying to say we're not on the political left here. We're, we're not uh, making this decision in order to take a political side on the vaccination matter. We're just trying to do what we think is best, which, by the way, is, I would say, half true. I believe they're not being political, but I do believe they are doing what is going to protect the brand the most. This is a brand decision. It's not because they care about you. It's not because they care about the Democrats. It's because they're doing whatever they think is going to harm their reputation the least when this is all over. The nature of poker is to be in close proximity with your opponents for extended periods of time. And a seat at the WSOP is a commitment for both our company and the participants. We want players to be excited for their return to the WSOP while offering the greatest level of protection and limiting complications during the tournament this fall. Participants will be required to show proof that they are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 upon first registration to become eligible to, p- to participate in WCP events, including bracelet events, deep stack tournaments, satellites, and live action games. So basically, you can't register for anything unless you show proof of vaccination. The WSOP will make use will make use of Clear's free mobile app and Health Pass feature. Participants who successfully verify their full vaccination status through Clear may go directly to the registration cage. Uh, WSOP will also provide an on-site on-site center to verify alternate documentation, including physical da- vaccination cards and state or country specific health passes. So basically, what they're going to be doing is encouraging everyone to use this app called Clear. And I guess through that, you can somehow verify your vaccination status. I've never used it. And then that is connected to their database and provided you give this clear app permission to transmit your vaccination status, then they'll know you're vaccinated and you don't have to prove anything to them because you'll have already proven it to clear. Otherwise, if you don't want to do that or can't do that, then you'll have to bring like your physical vaccination card or anything else that proves you've been vaccinated. Participants must receive their final vaccine dose 14 days prior to when they play. This is inclusive of all participants, press and vendors. 
and I have to assume also employees. Consistent with current CDC guidelines and state mandates, all attendees and team members will be required to wear masks. Additionally, with the new policy, fully vaccinated WSOP participants who may have been exposed to a person who tested positive will not be required to leave the tournament in quarantine if they remain asymptomatic since the time of exposure, which is a bit of a change from what Negranu claimed, that they were not going to disqualify you as long as you don't say you tested positive. Now they're saying that if you have any symptoms, then they may kick you out. If, if you have symptoms, plus they know you've been exposed, they may kick you out which is kind of a new thing. But of course, the bigger story here is that they are not only requiring you to be fully vaccinated, they're requiring you to prove you've been fully vaccinated. And if you cannot, or you refuse to, then you will not be able to play. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of people unhappy about this. A lot of the anti-vax people are unhappy about it. And there's many others who aren't anti-vax but feel that uh, this is some sort of infringement upon their rights or that allowing the WSB to do so is pretty much ceding power over your body to the state. So let's discuss this. Now, first of all, I want to tell you again about my position on vaccination, my position on vaccine mandates, my position on mask mandates and my own politics, which you probably know about a lot of this stuff. I am a conservative. I've been a conservative my entire life. I'm a real conservative. I'm not someone who says they're a conservative, but then holds a lot of left-wing positions. I am a conservative, and I do not ever vote for Democrats. And I don't agree with very much that comes from the Democratic Party. Occasionally, there's something that I agree with from the Democrats, but it's not all that common. But if there is something that I feel my side is doing wrong or has the wrong view on, I'll say so. But I definitely am a real conservative, I'm sure most of you can tell. I also am fully vaccinated, and I wanted to get the vaccine as soon as I could. And I felt the vaccine was an important thing to get. I still feel that way, and I'm still happy I got vaccinated, even though I had a rather lousy experience with the second shot of the Pfizer vaccine didn't cause me any kind of long-term harm or even medium-term harm. But for that few days, it sucked. And for that entire week, I didn't feel right. But I'm still happy I did it, and I don't regret my decision. And I have been trying to encourage other conservatives to get vaccinated. Not because CNN or the left has fooled me or tricked me, but because I've looked honestly at the data. And even though I think the left and the media have lied many times and have handled this horribly and have politicized the virus, and have tried to take advantage of the virus to enact other social change they've wanted for a long time, even though I believe all of that, I also believe the vaccine is the correct thing to get. And that's what I tell other conservatives, to ignore all the noise from the left and just look look at the numbers, look at the data, and it'll be very clear that getting the vaccine is the correct thing to do, especially if you're over 35, and really, really, if you're over 45. So that's how I feel about it. However, I don't like mask mandates. In fact, I don't even think cloth masks do very much. It seems like they don't. In fact, it's never been proven that cloth masks are actually effective in preventing COVID transmission. Maybe they help a little bit, but then there's also downsides to cloth cloth masks. So it's not like... uh, Wearing them doesn't have any kind of downside or 
negative impact, especially to children. So I don't believe in mask mandates. I don't believe in requiring kids in school to wear masks. I think masks are mostly performative. I'm talking about cloth masks, not N95 masks, which are actually somewhat useful. Uh, The cloth masks are almost useless. And this has been pushed by the left and the media because Trump was not pushing them. He was kind of softly against the masking, and his supporters were especially against the masking. So this was used to make Trump look irresponsible and reckless. And they've kind of had to stick with this position because they've been saying all this time masking equals very responsible, not masking equals reckless and stupid. So the left and the media committed to masking, and it's stupid. So while I'm pro-vaccine and telling you all to get the vaccine, I'm anti-mask mandates, and I also think just masks in general, cloth masks in general, are pretty useless. And if you look at the facts on this, you will see that I'm probably right. I can't say for sure if I'm right, but there has been no credible study showing that wearing cloth masks really does very much at all to prevent the spread of COVID. And even Dr. Fauci thought this at the beginning and then uh, changed his position when he was under pressure to do so. I'm also against vaccine mandates. Now, how can I be pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine mandate? Well, there's a difference between saying I think something's a good idea and requiring people put something in their body. It is very, very dangerous to say that the government should be able to require citizens, healthy citizens, to inject something in their body that is new and has not been tested for very long by definition because it's new. Now, I believe this is the right thing to do. That's why I did it. But I was never under the delusion that it's without risk. I didn't think the risk was high, but I knew there was a risk injecting myself with that vaccine or having them inject me with the vaccine. And I know there's even a risk getting that third shot. There's a lot of unknowns to the vaccine. And if you deny that, then you're being just as dishonest and you're not following the science like you always accuse people on the right doing. So there definitely is a risk to the vaccine and mandating that everybody has to do it is a violation of their freedom. Because everybody should have the freedom not to inject something into their body that they do not want to put in them. Especially something new and untested. It's not like something that they've known for 50 years is safe. This is something that is very new and we don't know a lot of things about it. We don't know a lot of long-term things about it. In fact, we know no long-term things about it. So while I think it's a good idea, I think we should not force people. But does that mean that I think businesses such as the WSOP, do I think that they shouldn't have the right to force people to wear masks or to get vaccinated? Actually, I believe that every business should be able to do what it wants. And I don't agree with laws that say that such and such businesses cannot make vaccine mandates and cannot make mask mandates. Because it should be up to the business to decide what they want to do as far as who they're going to serve. Now, this is kind of an unprecedented situation. So you could say on one hand, well... This is eventually going to force everyone to get vaccinated if every single business will not allow someone in the doors who isn't vaccinated is going to de facto force them to do it. So that shouldn't be allowed. But on the other hand, 
if you look at it, there's a lot of people who are not getting vaccinated. And if every business were to close their doors to people who are unvaccinated, then you could make a fortune starting up a competing business that lets the unvaccinated people in. So this will always be corrected by the free market. There will never be a situation where you just simply can't walk into the door of any business and get what you need because of your vaccination status. In addition, there's a lot of things you can order for delivery, almost everything these days. So there aren't even that many businesses you have to walk into. And I know that because I existed for almost a full year not walking to any business. In fact, it was a full year. I went a full year without walking inside any business except when it was absolutely positively necessary. But it was very few times. And I existed such fine. I, very fine. It, it was a pain in the ass, but uh, I did it. Bottom line is, I feel if a business wants to require people to wear a mask or if they want to require people to have the vaccine, then they can. And they should be able to make that decision because maybe their clientele wants that. Maybe their clientele will only feel comfortable coming in if that's the situation. And there are many businesses where it's far more COVID dangerous inside the business than at other businesses. For example, the World Series of Poker. That is a very COVID dangerous place. That is a place where your COVID danger is probably among the highest of anywhere you can go. Because you're in there for many, many hours. There's thousands of people around you indoors in close proximity. It has all the elements of COVID danger. I'm not talking about COVID danger that has since been debunked, like passing around the chips. I always hear that stupidity like, oh, poker is dangerous for COVID because you're touching the same chips. No, it's not. That's not why it's dangerous for COVID. The chips are fine. In fact, you could lick all the chips that come around. And while I would not advise that, and while you may catch other things, uh, you're not going to catch COVID licking the chips. You're going to catch COVID from people breathing in the same room as you with thousands of people in there, and you're in there for 12 hours a day or more breathing in that same air over and over and over again. So that is why it is so COVID dangerous. So businesses like that should be able to make their own determination as to whether or not they want people vaccinated or not vaccinated. Some people believe this is a violation of HIPAA, which is supposed to protect your medical privacy to ask you these questions. It's actually not. HIPAA prevents your medical information from being accessed, but it does not prevent businesses from asking you about your medical status. And you telling them because you can always say I don't want to tell you and just not walk in they just cannot uh, transmit your medical data without your permission that's basically what HIPAA is doing and that was mainly put in place so you don't start getting uh, commercial solicitations because your medical information gets out pharmaceutical companies or whatever that's trying to get you to buy things uh, for your condition start marketing to you so that was the main reason that uh these HIPAA laws were passed. So they do not prevent businesses from asking you to say whether or not you're vaccinated. It would prevent businesses from accessing information that you did not voluntarily give. But they can ask you to voluntarily give something and you can refuse it. 
So it's not a violation of any rights. And I believe that should be the right of each, each business to do. And if you are on the political right and you're a free market person, which you probably are if you're on the political right, then you should support businesses being willing and able to do this. At the same time, I don't think businesses should be required to have people vaccinated, either who work there or who uh, or who are customers there. Now, maybe you can say in healthcare settings, there could be a justification to require vaccination by law, but everything else, no. That should be up to the business again, whether they want to require their employees to get vaccinated or not. Does that mean that I support the WSOP requiring vaccinations? No, but I also don't not support it. I'm really in the middle. And I'm not trying to cop out here. I would be fine if they went either way. I would be fine if they said, it doesn't matter. We're not going to enforce vaccine status. We don't care. We're not going to ask. And we're not going to try to get in the middle of all this. And we'll remove anybody who clearly has COVID symptoms and get them a rapid test. But everybody else, keep on playing. Take a risk. That's the way it is. I'd be fine with that policy. And I'd be fine with the current policy. I just didn't like all the middle stuff because the middle stuff didn't make any sense and it just created kind of like unfair situations and undue burdens on some and not others. Like I, I just didn't like how the unvaccinated people had a threshold for disqualification that was much lower than vaccinated people. That wasn't fair. I did not agree with that. As much as I want people to get vaccinated, I don't think they should be playing with two different rules about disqualification. So now it's not like that. Now it's just you have to be vaccinated to play. That's it. So fine. I think that's the right to do. And if I were in charge of the WSOP, I'm not even sure what decision I'd make. There's an argument on both sides. One argument is that people who are fully vaccinated, if you believe that the vaccine keeps them safe, if you believe that the vaccine keeps them from transmitting COVID, then if it's all fully vaccinated people there, then why are they even wearing masks? Why are they even worried about people who are unvaccinated? Because again, if you're uh, protected from COVID, then what are you so worried about? You could also say, well, we've seen breakthrough cases. So why have these unvaccinated people getting some of the vaccinated people sick? And then you can say back, yes, but we don't even know if vaccinated people are transmitting COVID, they may be doing it at the same rate as the unvaccinated people, and they're just not getting as sick. And that could be true. So there's a lot we don't know. So I would think it would be a valid statement to make at this point, especially in the age of the Delta variant, that being vaccinated is not as much of an advantage over COVID as it used to be prior to Delta. Because prior to Delta, if you were vaccinated with only a few exceptions you were pretty bulletproof as far as COVID was concerned. And that's not the case anymore. Now you can get COVID and you can get symptoms from COVID. You can get some pretty strong symptoms from COVID. And if you're older, you can even die from COVID, even if you're vaccinated. And that's happening at a much higher rate than it did prior to Delta. And apparently you might be able to transmit COVID too as a vaccinated person. 
So really, Delta has lowered the distance between vaccinated and unvaccinated people when it comes to COVID. That's the truth. Now, it's also true that most of the people in the hospital and dying of COVID are the unvaccinated. And that's a big data point, which you shouldn't ignore, and you should get vaccinated. But at the same time, I'm saying here that it would be valid for the World Series to say, look, you're deluding yourself if you think that playing with all vaccinated people is going to keep you safe. There's quite a decent chance that someone vaccinated there will transmit COVID to you and you will catch it as a vaccinated person and you will get symptoms as a vaccinated person. And you know what? If you do get those symptoms during an event, then they may disqualify you too. They may pull you out and COVID test you. I, I don't know what they're going to do if you actually get symptoms. They, they haven't been that clear about like if, if it seems like you have COVID, if let's say you're coughing a whole lot and it's a dry sounding cough, and then they say, here, let's do a temperature check. And then they do a temperature check and see you have 102. Like, wh- what do they do then? They take you out, COVID test you. I don't know what they do. But it would make sense they're not going to leave someone at the table who seems to have all the signs of COVID, even if they're fully vaccinated. So you're still taking that chance. It may make more sense just to say, look, play at your own risk. Because it's a risk either way. But at the same time, I can see why they're taking the safest path. They're saying, well, yes, it's possible that fully vaccinated people might be transmitting it just as much as unvaccinated. And it's possible that a room full of fully vaccinated people will transmit it to each other and still get sick. But we think this will happen to a far lesser extent than if we had unvaccinated people there too. So while we don't think this eliminates COVID danger, we think it reduces it a lot, even though we don't really have all that much data to prove that yet. But that's our best guess. If they want to take that position, that's reasonable. So I'm not even sure what the right thing to do is here. But I will acknowledge that this is one of the most COVID dangerous activities you can do. And therefore, requiring vaccination makes a lot more sense there than something like going to a restaurant or a grocery store. So this is going to count out a number of people who are anti-vax, who otherwise would have played the World Series. Alex Foxen's a very notable one. Kristen Bicknell, his fiance, another one. And there's others. I've seen some people writing on Twitter, well, this is going to be the hardest World Series ever because all the dumb people who won't get vaccinated will be out. Well, not necessarily. Do you think uh, Kristen Bicknell and Alex Foxen are players you'd like to have at your table? And yes, they're not uh, the typical anti-vaxxer, but what some people who are on the left and who have been haughtily telling everyone that they're following the science and everybody who's not and not getting vaccinated is stupid and ignorant and looking down on those people, while you can think they're making a mistake and making the wrong decision, and I'd agree with you, and while you can think these people are being stubborn and following a lot of conspiracy theorists and not looking at the data, and I'd agree with you, to cast them as stupid is not accurate because there are good reasons to not trust the government what they say. And I've covered this on many other shows. The messaging has been very poor. There's been a lot of lies told by the media and the government about COVID. 
And now it's like the boy who cried wolf. They're giving good advice to get vaccinated, and a lot of people don't believe it. I'm not one of them. But I see how it happened, and I see how people who are intelligent, like Kristen Bicknell and Alex Foxen, could have been led down a different rabbit hole, and they have a lot of reasons for their distrust. And then it's hard to convince them otherwise. Now, I'm not the type of person this will happen to. Because I don't allow myself to get led down rabbit holes. I don't get involved in any kind of dogmatic belief about something. My mind is always open to looking at data and looking at the other side. I read left-wing sites and will listen to some left-wing podcasts so I can understand what the other side is saying. But there's many who won't. And there's many on the left who won't and who are very attached to certain dogma. That's why we have all these mask wearers who are sure they're being safe and responsible when a lot of them are being especially reckless because they think the mask makes them bulletproof. So there's a lot of confusion and misinformation about COVID on both sides. So you can't say that we're going to be uh, counting out all the stupid people and that the smart people are going to be at this event and it's going to be really tough. Now, I will say that demographically, the worst players at the table, or at least the lesser players, not always the very worst, but the lesser players, the fish, the ones that you wanted the event, tend to be the ones who don't play a whole lot of poker and who have their money from other things in life. So you can have some very smart and talented doctors at the poker table with you, who you'd love doing surgery on you if you needed the surgery in their specialty, and you'd trust their diagnoses, but when it comes to poker, they're terrible. So there are very smart people at the poker table who just suck at poker. And then there's people who are great at poker who, when you speak to them about anything else in life, aren't very smart. And I'm not talking about anyone like Kristen Bicknell, who seems like a, a smart person. I'm talking about some people in poker who are really good at the game, but honestly, they don't seem that intelligent. So you have both. So what I'm saying here is that it is true that by removing people from the pool who may have been successful in other ventures but aren't good at poker, I would say that that group is more likely to skew unvaccinated than the average person. I'm not even saying they're stupid. I'm just saying uh, from the demographics of that type of group, someone who's not good at poker, who succeeded in some other career in life, but enjoys playing poker recreationally. From what I have observed, I've never looked at the data on this, and I doubt there's ever been a poll within poker about this, but just from my observation, this type of person is more likely to not want to take the vaccine than the average person in the population. So you are going to lose them. But... The truth is, you are going to also lose some uh, good players who just happen to be anti-vax. And you're going to have still a number of fish who show up who got the vaccine. It's, it's amazing how some people believe that the ones who got the vaccine are smart, responsible people who are going to be tough poker opponents. And everybody who didn't is an idiot. It's wrong. I know a lot of idiots who got the vaccine. They made the right decision, but they're also still idiots. 
So don't fall prey to that thinking. Now, what actually might hurt the World Series more, and people aren't really discussing, is that with these breakthrough cases, you may have a lot of older people. And when I say older, I even mean like my age, like people over 40. You may have more people over 40 and over 50 choosing not to come because of fear of the Delta variant or just feeling like it's uncomfortable to play in a mask. So you want those recreational players who are older. And the reason the seniors event is known to be a good event and the super seniors is known to be a really good event is that on average, the older poker players aren't as good as the younger poker players. And there's some reasons for that. We've gone over them before, but it is true on average. And there are lousy poker players who are young, and there are some great poker players who are old, and there's definitely more and more very good poker players over 50 as the great poker players of yesteryear age. In fact, I will be over 50 in not too long myself. By the next World Series, I will be 50. And I'm not going to magically turn into a fish next year. But you will have probably a lower percentage of older people in the field. And that will probably make the World Series tougher. Also, recreational players may be less willing to sit in a mask the entire time and won't come. The very dedicated poker degenerates, who are probably at least decent at the game, they probably already have been playing poker wearing a mask and do it for long periods of time or are willing to just put up with the uncomfortable mask situation so they can play. But recreational players, they may say, hey, it's not worth it. So that's the main reason you're going to lose some people who are recreational players and you'd like to have at your table. So overall, do I believe the World Series of Poker will be tougher this year than in 2019? Yes. But not so much for this vaccine mandate, but more just from everything else going on. Maybe a little from the vaccine mandate, but mainly from probably a younger field and from Rex staying away because they don't want to wear a mask the entire time. Will I play the World Series of Poker? I keep getting that question. Am I going to play? Answer, probably not. And I stress probably not because I have not made a firm decision yet. Does this decision from the World Series of Poker make me want to play any more? Well, I would say a little bit, but not nearly enough to push me to do it. The two main reasons I am not playing are, number one, not wanting to wear a mask the entire time, which is still required. And number two, being afraid of catching Delta there. I will say that my fear of catching Delta there has gone down a little bit because of this new rule, but it hasn't vanished or nearly vanished because I'm still not even a little bit convinced that a huge room full of fully vaccinated people won't be transmitting Delta. I think it will be. So that doesn't do a whole lot to convince me. Now, what if they did away with the mask requirement? Let's say the federal government and state say, okay, as long as everybody in the business is fully vaccinated, both customers and employees, then no mask required. That could be something we see in the coming months and possibly before the World Series. So it's possible they could lift the mask mandate. Right now, masks are required in casinos, so the WSOP has no choice 
regardless of what they want to do regarding the masking. So if masking becomes optional, then would I consider playing the World Series of Poker in a room full of fully vaccinated people? Maybe, because at least the mask issue will have been solved. I just don't want to be required to sit there for 12 hours with a mask on. I don't want it. I have people saying, oh, snowflake, you can't deal with a mask. Some people do it every day at work. Yeah, they do. And that sucks, and I kind of feel bad for them, but fortunately, I'm not one of them, and I don't want to be one of them, and I do not want to voluntarily go there and do it. I'm not telling you not to. I'm just saying I do not want to. I am volunteering to not do so. (laughs) I'm volunteering myself to stay home rather than do something I find unpleasant. So if they remove the mask requirement, and you may say, oh, wait, you wanted to remove the mask requirement? I thought you were worried about Delta. Yes, because I don't think the cloth mask does very much. I don't think it helps. I think it's performative. So I don't think I'll be in increased danger with nobody wearing masks there. It may feel like it looking at everybody with no mask on, but that's just uh, your mind playing tricks on you. I do not believe that that will affect the danger very much at all. But I do know that there will be a danger with thousands of people in the room with me for all those hours every day. So that still kind of scares me. So what circumstances could happen to where I decide to play the World Series of Poker? Well, it's not that likely. But let's say the mask mandate is gone and I can play with no mask. And let's say it is determined by studies between now and then that fully vaccinated people are not transmitting COVID very much. That they're either not transmitting at all or they're transmitting very little. And that even in a room with thousands of other fully vaccinated people, the chance of catching COVID is pretty low. And by the way, this is going to be a good experiment. We're going to see, I mean, we may not hear of everybody, but we'll see if we have a problem with COVID outbreaks during the World Series of Poker. This is going to be the first live World Series of Poker since COVID, where there's going to be a mass number of people getting together to play, and we're going to see if there's outbreaks there. It'll be very interesting to watch and how they handle it. It'll be very interesting to see if people get disqualified in the middle of events with big chip stacks because they're showing COVID symptoms, and it'll be interesting to see what they do to require people to test if they do seem to be showing symptoms. And what symptoms do they consider symptoms? For example, if you're coughing because the dry air, would you be required to take a test? I will sometimes cough during World Series events when I'm not sick because the air is very dry and my throat gets dry. I've told you guys that before. So if you cough a few times because of the dry air, are they going to require you to take a COVID test to continue and pull you out of the event in the meantime? These are all big questions which have not been answered. So it'll be very interesting to see. And overall, the World Series will be a good test of having a lot of vaccinated people together for seven weeks. Are there going to be any COVID outbreaks? And we're not going to get a full picture because people will go elsewhere other than the World Series while they're in Vegas, and they may catch COVID elsewhere. So fully vaccinated people may not catch it from each other at the World Series, but could go out... uh, and do other things in Vegas and they could catch it from unvaccinated people and then have COVID symptoms and people go, oh, look, they, they caught it at the World Series. Well, not necessarily. So we won't have all the answers, but it still will be interesting to see. But if there is a study that shows that fully vaccinated people are really not transmitting it much and if the mask is not required, then there's a good chance I'll go. But that's a huge if. I don't think these things will both happen before the beginning of the World Series or even before the end of the World Series. 
Is it possible I will change midstream if something changes? Or let's say even the Delta variant just kind of falls off because it has done that in other countries. The Delta variant has just been ravaging other countries prior to when it got here. And then it would like fall off a cliff and not become a problem anymore. So if that happens here and in Las Vegas, it just isn't a problem anymore, then maybe I'll consider it if there's no mask mandate. But I I just don't see, even with a mask mandate, that this is going to end by mid-November when the World Series is going to be over. So basically it had to end before the beginning of November. That's when the main event starts. So I would say there's a very high chance that I'm not playing the World Series. In fact, I think it's such a high chance that I have not made personal preparations for the World Series, aside from making those hotel reservations, which I made before Delta showed up, and I believed I was going to go to the World Series. So I haven't canceled those, and I put a lot of time and effort into these reservations, so it kind of annoys me that I wasted all this time wrangling with Caesars reservations and finally getting everything set, only to cancel the whole thing. So I'm not going to cancel it to the last minute. But I would say it's a pretty high chance I'm not going to go. So other than those reservations, I have not made personal preparations for being at the World Series like I usually am doing at this time of year. Or not this time of year, but the time of year equivalent to before the World Series. Of course, the World Series usually goes in late May. So usually, like at the end of April, or sometimes even before that, I'm making various preparations for the time I will be spending there. And I have not done that this time because I think it's going to be a waste of time. And I'll just have to try to scramble to do everything prior to going if it turns out that something happens to change my mind. So COVID is a rapidly changing situation, and I can't rule anything out. And a small part of me still thinks, hey, maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll be there. But most of me has already accepted that I'm not going to be there this year. And it'll bother me when I'm watching the World Series updates, watching people win bracelets, watching events go that I really wanted to play, wondering how I would have finished if I had played them, wondering if this would have been the year I won the second bracelet instead I stayed home. Yeah, I'll wonder these things. I wonder if I could have had another deep run at the main event like I did in 2019 the last time I played it. I'll wonder these things, and it'll make me kind of sad to watch it unfold. It'll be the first live World Series since 2004 that I have not attended. I've attended every live World Series from 05 to 19. And in fact, I cashed at least once in every single one of them. Go look it up on the Hendon Mob, you'll see. But I guess this will break my streak of cashing at least once every year there is a live World Series. But whatever. I don't want to sit there in a mask all day. And I'm kind of worried about Delta. 775-FRAUD55. 775-372-8355 is the number. You can text me at that number as well. And I will read your text on the air unless you ask me not to at the beginning of the text. Remember, you can text me 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, whenever a thought comes to your mind. Desert Runner texted, Druff, please still go to the World Series of Poker and represent Poker Fraud Alert. Someone texted asking, can they have permission to play? Yes, but for next week. <laughs> I can't do it during the show. Someone texted, really interested to hear your take on the World Series of Poker. Well, I'm glad that you're interested here. Hopefully you liked what I had to say, or at least found it interesting if you didn't like it. Okay, so we're going to move on 
you can text me during the show if you're listening live, and I'll read your text later and respond to you. I check it every so often. Caller, you're on the air. Yes, hi. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. If someone like Mike Postle, who obviously cheated and is a known cheater, is he allowed to go to different casinos and play tournaments? Like you were talking about, you know, tournaments online. But, I mean, is he allowed to go to the WSOP or other events and play? Or would he risk run the risk of playing and in the middle of the tournament they'd, they'd uh, ask him to leave? Or Because or I just I was I don't know the legal ease on that. I just want to know if you know the answer to that. Well, uh, each casino has a right to decide whether Mike Possel or anyone is allowed there or not. Now, he's not blanket banned from all casinos. He there's plenty of casinos he can go to around the U.S. and play under his own name, and and they'll be fine with him being there. There there may be some which have decided that they don't want him as a customer because of the allegations against him, and that's up to each casino. And they basically can all refuse service to anyone for anything other than like a federally protected reason. Like they couldn't say, we're not going to serve you because you're black or you're gay, but they can say, oh, we've heard bad things about you on the internet. We just don't want you here. They, they all have a right to say that. And uh, I, I know there will be plenty that would not say that. There may be a few that did. Uh, so I, I don't know. I've never uh, attempted to research which casinos allow him and which don't. But there is no blanket ban on him. All right, that's what I that's what I figured. But I would feel I I felt like something like the S WSOP with the high profileness of it. I think you know based on what he did, uh, what was accused of at least. I I would think that uh, I told my buddies I think they would be one of them where they wouldn't let him play. Uh, but I, I again I I could I could be wrong and. The last thing I want to say, and again, I enjoy listening to you, to uh, what you what you uh, bring to the table. But uh, uh, I, I follow your your. I read a lot of your threads and your on your uh, forum, and there's that uh, slot uh, communities thread, and they're talk, you're talking about that lady uh, who changed her name from slot lady to the all casino action. And today, uh, you know, her and this new guy won some big jackpot, like eight thousand dollar jackpot, and and uh, people are saying that that it's her uh, that her it's her uh, husband. They're pretending that they're friends, but it's this guy Victor's really her husband. I I don't know if you would ever get the real answer, but that lady I, when I watch a few of her videos, she's so nasty and rude to to people, and I just it's amazing to me how many people just give her, give her money for nothing. I mean, just I, I don't know. It's just crazy, and I, I read your your threads about it and. It's just uh, pretty amazing to me. I, I feel like she's pulling another scam, pretending this is just someone that is a content creator. But I think she has a, a, a much more serious relationship with this person. But she never tells anybody the truth. It's yeah. just all very generic. Well, let, let me explain to the users. Another, let me explain to the listeners what you're talking about here is a lot of them don't know about her or that thread. Uh, there's some discussion on Poker Fraud Alert in the Scam, Scandals, and Shadiness forum on this uh, slot creator thread. I forget the name of it. It's a, th- a thread about like YouTube slots. There's a number of people on YouTube who play slots uh, and record it, and then uh, people watch it. And there's this one YouTube slot player who goes by the name Slot Lady, who is a woman who's about 28 years old, fairly pretty, and... Uh, she seems like 
a slot machine degenerate who's been uh, losing a lot of money playing both uh, slot machines right. and, and, and blackjack. And uh, some people give her money as donations for creating this content. And there's some people who believe that she's getting a lot of money just based upon the fact that she's a 28-year-old female who's fairly pretty, which is probably true. If she, if she were just a dude or, or a, a chick who's 55 years old, uh, she probably wouldn't be getting the same money. But there's been some people who have been put off by her because sometimes she's very moody. Sometimes she seems kind of uh, rude to the people watching her in the chat. Uh, some people think that she's kind of a phony. And then there's been some weird things going on with her channel lately where it changed the name from Slot Lady to All Casino Slots. And then there's this weird dude who also appears now playing on the channel that uh, doesn't appear to have a lot of association with it. He's just all of a sudden there and people are wondering who he is. So the whole thing's a little bit strange. She also started claiming she's getting a divorce. So there's a lot of weirdness going on with her and with her channel. I, I don't think this is any kind of outright scam, and that's why I haven't really covered it here. I've, I've watched some of her content, though I kind of speed through it. I, I couldn't stand watching someone play blackjack or slots for an hour. I'd go crazy. But uh, I'll, I'll kind of speed through it, and then I'll also watch anything that people say is uh, notable and i've been i mean todd could i could i could i just say i've never seen this woman when she plays table games i've never seen someone who according to her has been having a channel for four years i've never seen a, a person play so poorly uh, all these games i mean she literally loses almost every time she plays these table games and and that jackpot she won tonight was like eight thousand uh, dollars with this guy this random guy now victor who they seem to be like in love but uh, she said that's the biggest jackpot ever on her channel so you gotta wonder how she's still around in four years if she never wins hard hasn't won a, a bigger than eight thousand dollar jackpot in four years and she always loses and table. I mean, she doesn't know what she's doing, and it's just it's just crazy to me watching her. And these people keep giving her money in the super chats. I mean, I just it just blows my mind. I watch for amusement, and it's just crazy to see. Yeah, it's, it's the whole thing's a little bit weird, and I, I suspect there's some sort of uh, gambling addiction involved here. I think there are some things to that channel that aren't quite what they appear to be, and I think people's suspicion is warranted. Uh, I'm not super fascinated by it because, as I said, I don't think it's an outright scam. It's not like Christopher Mitchell, who's just like a direct scammer. So, I, like, this is something that I think is not totally honest, and also there might be a lot of uh, problems in her life that are being kind of uh, masked in these videos. So it's a thing I have a mild interest in, and, and I've been watching, but we'll, we'll see what happens with it. I do think the changes to the channel and the appearance of that dude are a little bit weird, and we'll see what happens. But uh, if, if it's something notable enough, I'll do a longer segment on this show. I've never talked about it before until your call here. But uh, oh, and, and just to uh, I appreciate it. And just to quickly say something about the uh, Mike Postle and the World Series thing, that actually is a very good question. If Mike Postle would try to play the World Series, and I have no idea whether he wants to or not, but if he were to try, what would be the World Series take on it? Because I know there would be some people there who would object to this and say Ooh. they don't want to see him there. I guess we lost the caller. Anyway, he did bring up a good point. Like, I don't know what the World Series would say, and I've received no information on this, so I really have no idea. And I could see it going either way. I could see where the World Series says... We don't want you here. It looks bad for the brand. We don't want you. And I could see them saying, look, we're not getting involved uh, unless Mike breaks a rule here. We're not going to kick him out. So it could be either way. I also don't know if Mike wants to play the World Series. 
So I don't know. I guess there is a chance you could see him there in 2021. Keep in mind that there was uh, no World Series since all of this began. There's been no live World Series since all the drama began, because remember, it began in the fall of 2019, and there was no live 2020 World Series. So this would be the first World Series where he could play. And we'll see if he shows up, though I don't think it's all that likely, but possible. And how would the World Series handle it? I don't know, but that's a great question. And to be honest, I've never really considered that before. But, you know, whatever they want to do, they can do. Each casino can decide this on their own. I think it's very unlikely that he would be banned from all or most casinos in the country. Most casinos are not going to care, even if they're told about this. I'm not saying no casinos will ban him, but I think that the vast majority he could still play in. Especially casinos. Poker rooms might be a different story, but I think there's still plenty that would uh, allow him to play. I mean, look, Russ Hamilton can play in poker rooms. He has been playing in poker rooms ever since the UB scandal. So that should speak volumes. Let me move on to the next topic we have, which is Fox Poker. This is a Poker Fraud Alert exclusive. I like to cover everything that I feel is worth covering in poker and gambling, especially stories which are not getting press elsewhere. Because if it's a story that's on poker news and card player and cards chat and all these other gambling and poker news sites, it's not all that exciting to hear on Poker Fraud Alert because you've probably already read about it elsewhere, or you could if you wanted to. Now, you may want to hear my take on some of these situations, and I'm flattered that people want to hear my take on these situations, but I like it much better when I can bring you a story that nobody else is covering because I think there's a lot of interesting and good stories in poker and gambling that, for whatever reason, are ignored by other poker and gambling media, sometimes because whatever reason they don't find them or they don't know about them or they dismiss them as unimportant or in some cases they're afraid to cover them because they don't want to piss off someone or something. And you guys know that I'm not like that. I'm not afraid of pissing off someone or something. I just always put everything out there and I report all relevant poker news and all relevant gambling news that I think that the listener needs to know. So this is one of those situations and I think this one's just not being covered because it's a small site and because larger poker media just uh, doesn't really understand that scene very well, or they don't think their readers will appreciate it. But I get so many questions about sites like Fox Poker. I get so many people asking me about playing on these private poker sites and whether I trust them, whether I've heard about them, whether I think they're a good idea. I get this constantly. I get a lot of people who asked me, should I play on ABC Poker Room? And can you trust it? Have I heard about any scandals? Do they pay people? And I give people the same answer every single time. And that answer is no. And they say, wow, have you heard anything bad? No, 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 no. I'm not saying I heard something bad, I tell them. It's inevitable that you probably will eventually. Because these are run by individuals. These are run by people typically in the U.S., who are very aware that they are breaking the law, very aware that they could go to prison for running a room like this, and yet still are willing to run this out of their home for real money. So it shows these people are in a desperate enough situation 
to where they're willing to run such a thing. And therefore, these tend to not be the best quality people. Yes, I know I'm generalizing, but the problem is that is typically the case. So even if there's an outlier, someone who's willing to take the risk, who's a salt of the earth, wonderful person who will never screw anyone and is very responsible and will never mismanage the money, usually that's not the case. And you'll never know whether it's the case unless you know the person really well. And I mean really well to where you're sure this is not going to happen. So I always advise against playing on sites like that, even if it's easy to get money on and off, even if the games are really good, even if you're getting rake back, even if people you know are recommending it, even if you've heard bad things about Bovada and about ACR, I still say, if you want to play online poker, stick to the big rooms. Is Ignition Bovada perfect? Not at all. They even screwed over our own Trader Ruski. Is ACR perfect? Not at all. We've had many stories about crappy things that have happened with ACR. Are those the best two options in the U.S. right now? Yes. When people ask me where should they play online poker, I tell them one of those two places. Though bet online is okay too. So I guess one of those three places. But that's what I recommend. And I always put the caveat that those are not perfect, that you may have a bad experience there, and that you definitely shouldn't fuck around with those rooms, like try to play with uh, bonuses uh, on two different accounts or whatever. They're going to get sensitive to that and ban you and take your money. And you're going to have no recourse. And I mentioned the customer service sucks in these rooms and there's bots. So there's a lot of things with these big rooms that are not ideal and that I don't like. And I wish it was a better situation, but it's not. So if you want to play online poker in the US, I still say you should stick to the big rooms. Why? Because I know when I have money in Bovada that when I hit that cash out button that they will pay me very quickly by Bitcoin. And anytime I want that money, I can get it very quickly by Bitcoin, and they will reliably pay me. And that has been the case with that site ever since I started playing there in 2005. And in fact, that was the case with the site even five years prior when I wasn't playing there yet. They've been paying people very well for 21 years on Bodog slash Bovada slash Ignition. America's Card Room also has a very good record with paying people. Bet Online has a pretty good record with paying people. They had a small period of time where they had uh, some issue, then they resolved it and they were able to pay people again. So for the last several years, they have been good at paying people. I wouldn't trust them as much as I trust the other two to pay you, but uh, they've been pretty good with paying you. And when I have uh, cashed out of Bet Online from uh, sports bets, because I do sports bet over there, uh, they have paid me very quickly. And Brandon has told us on here they've paid him very quickly because he plays poker on Bet Online. So That's the most important thing. You can't have anything more important on a poker room than paying you. That is the most important thing. Second most important thing, though close, is that they are not cheating you at the games. Why is that second? Because if the site's never going to pay you, then that's the ultimate form of being cheated. Because no matter how much you win, you get paid nothing. Like, you could be on a poker site that doesn't pay people, and uh, you could win... And your balance could say $100 billion, but if they can't pay you even 1000 See a caller coming in. You have to unblock your caller ID to call in. But if they don't ever pay you, if they won't even pay you $1,000, then your $100 billion balance is worthless. So that's the most important thing. Second most important thing is that they don't cheat you, such as 
super using where they can see your whole cards and play against you, such as banning you and confiscating your balance unfairly, things like that. And then it goes down the list of different important things about a poker room from most important that they pay you down to least important. Maybe that uh, the software is good. So when selecting where I play, I have to be sure they have a good recent record with payment. And that's why I play on Ignition, because they have a very good recent and not so recent record with paying people. They've done great with paying people. And that allows me to somewhat overlook some of their other shortcomings. The reason I'm giving you this speech about being paid is because on all these private poker sites, you cannot take that for granted. And past behavior by small poker sites does not equal present behavior. That many times a site which is great about paying you today will be terrible about paying you tomorrow. So let's talk about Fox Poker. Fox Poker... I first heard of them when it was being promoted on Real Grinders by Raymond Davis. Now, we're not going to talk about Raymond Davis and his various uh, legal issues, and we've covered it before on this show many times, but that's, it's not relevant to this story. So we're not going to get into that. Uh, when Raymond Davis was first associated with Fox Poker, he wasn't running it, but he was uh, a promoter of Fox Poker. And remember, back then, Real Grinders was a very large and active group. So obviously they made some kind of deal with Ray Davis, where if he promoted the site on... Uh, Real Grinders, that uh, he gets something for it. So uh, Ray Davis was promoting Fox. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll take calls. Uh, I know some people want to call in, but we'll take some calls after I explain this whole thing. Ray Davis was promoting Fox, and he was promoting him pretty aggressively on Real Grinders, which at the time was a very large and active group, and I was uh, very actively participating there. And I didn't want to be a jerk on Real Grinders because, you know, I was I knew I was a guest there and Real Grinders was respectful towards me and Poker Fraud Alert and I didn't want to be the jerk to say, hey, I, I, I don't approve of these type of sites and you can get cheated, etc., etc. So I basically kept my mouth closed. However, when people asked me, I would tell them the truth of what I thought of Fox and all other rooms like that. Now, let me deviate to the side for a second and tell you about another problem. The other problem is that the, poke, the room they are running on Fox, to my knowledge, is the exact same software that we use on Poker Fraud Alert for our poker room. So you may say, oh, good, wow. So they trust it as much as you do. And I say, no, I actually don't trust it. So why would I run poker software for Poker Fraud Alert that I don't trust? Well, I actually trust the software. What I don't trust is people running that software on their computer because if I can't trust them, I can't trust the software. Why? Because it was shown, and I had a whole show about this in early 2020. In fact, we had on a guy who had hacked that software to where he had an exploit that he had made that the owner of any poker room using that software can see all the whole cards. Right, people keep calling. Keep saying, Do not call right now. We're in the middle of talking here. But we had the owner of... Where he had the, we had the creator of the software package that people could install to see all the whole cards if it's running on their system, and also where they could enable others, like friends, to log in remotely and see all the whole cards. So 
yes, you couldn't exploit it if you were just a player on there, but if the owner was shady and put that software on there, then he and all his friends could see all the whole cards and crush you in poker. So unless you can totally trust the owner of the room, then you could be cheated on any room that is running this Poker Maven software, the same one we run. So if you see any software on one of these private poker rooms that looks like ours, then the owner could be cheating you. The reason I trust it here is because, number one, we don't have any real money poker. We have a free roll. So you can win real money, but you can't risk real money. Second is the owner of that poker room is Belly Buster. I trust Belly Buster. He's been around forever. He's not a scammer, nor is he going to cheat anyone. And if he was going to cheat people, I don't think he'd be cheating people for the small money we give away in our free rolls. So I feel good about that software running on Poker Fraud Alert because I trust myself and I trust Belly Buster. But I would never trust that software run by somebody I don't know or run by somebody I don't know well because they could put on that exploit and you can buy it pretty easily. It was demonstrated to me. I actually saw it in action. We had on the developer of that exploit and we even had the owner of that software, the one who actually wrote the software, the Poker Maven software. He didn't come on the show, but he posted on the Poker Fraud Alert forum and he admitted that yes, that exploit can exist. He d- it doesn't surprise him and that basically any poker software that people run off their home computer, if you don't trust them, you can't trust the software because any exploit like that can be written for any software. And you know what? He's right. So you have to trust the operator of the room not to be super using you and not to have his friends super using you. But definitely that software already has an exploit written for it. I've seen it. I watched it in action. So for all these reasons, I say you don't play on the rooms like that. You just don't. You got to stay away from them. And it can be tempting. You can have people who you play with at the card room, who you respect, who tell you these are great games. And you should see they're running all day. The players are terrible. It's way easier than playing here at the casino. I'll buy you in, cash you out. And they'll, it can even be a reliable person because these are known as agents. See, the way this works is that the person running the room is not always the ones who are buying you in and cashing you out. There's sometimes people working under them called agents who handle the money. But all the agents do is they're like a go-between. So even if you have a good agent, then the owner of the room can still screw you because he's holding the money and he may ultimately run off with it. You can also have bad agents who screw you and then the owners of the rooms don't want to get in the middle. So there's many different ways that you can get screwed on these rooms. You can get cheated. You can have a bad agent who screws you. You can have a bad owner of the room who screws you. You can be super used on there. And you can have it where everything's running fine and for months everything's cool and you're winning money and you're happy. And then one day you go to cash out and you don't get your money. And then you get a bunch of excuses. And then you realize you're never going to get that money. And that is what's going on presently on Fox Poker. And there's a lot of complaints I am seeing on social media about Fox Poker. Let's go back to Ray Davis. Ray Davis had some kind of falling out with them and went from promoting Fox Poker pretty heavily to saying that he no longer recommends it and that he has nothing to do with them. Now, Ray Davis has gotten in drama with a lot of people, even unrelated to his uh, recent legal issues. So... That by itself didn't mean a whole lot. You know, it could have just been a personal issue he had with them. Who knows? I, 
I didn't pay attention to that all that much aside from noticing that he was saying he doesn't recommend it and that uh, he's backing away from it and he doesn't support them anymore. I wasn't playing on there. So while it was of interest and it was notable, it wasn't something super interesting to me because I wasn't a player on there. No one close to me played on there. And it could have been for other reasons besides Fox Poker being unreliable. But that was already kind of the, the first sign that things weren't perfect over there. Now, you may say, well, you know, look what Red, Ray Davis was accused of. You know, who can trust him? But, but you can also say, look, there's, there's reasons things happen. And that's already a potential red flag on top of everything else with all these rooms. Well, looks like at the end of this whole thing, uh, Ray Davis ended up being proven correct because uh, they are having problems big time on Fox Poker. And I'm a member of uh, various poker groups on Facebook. And uh, it seems like when these type of things happen, like in these small poker rooms, that's where it tends to be discussed. And that's why you're not going to see it so much on uh, poker rooms, uh, on on poker news sites and... uh, uh, even on forums, but where you'll more see where people are uh, talking about it on these uh, Facebook groups, and you have to pay attention. And when you start seeing that happen, then you have to start saying, hmm, I wonder what is going on. So I started noticing more and more people complaining that Fox Poker was slow paying them and giving them a lot of different excuses which was kind of bothersome because <laughs> uh, when you start seeing multiple people say that, it's totally a where there's smoke, there's fire situation. And that's very much what it looks like here. So I've seen a lot of screenshots from of chats of people who were having issues with Fox Poker, and they all pretty much look the same thing. They all, they all look very similar. And I would be very, very surprised if this is all a misunderstanding. I'd be very surprised if Fox Poker is going to pay everybody. They're just having temporary temporary issues. A big problem is they're not even explaining why this is happening. It's not like they have a good explanation for why they are slow paying people. Like I would think a good explanation, though not one which covers everything, is that the methods of payment that they're using are just not working to pay a lot of people quickly because you can have limits on your bank of how much money you can send out every day. You can have limits on PayPal regarding how much you can send every day. And if you're paying a bunch of people at once, you can bump up against those limits very easily. So you have to pay them in pieces. I've had to do that before myself. I've had to pay people like in three $1,000 increments through Zelle or whatever, if either my limits or their limits are not high enough to send them like $3,000 at once, even if I have plenty of money in my account to easily cover that 3K. So when I have to do that, no one says, oh, Todd's broke or he's slow paying me. They understand. Now, I give them very good communication. I say, I'm going to send you only 500 or only 1,000 right now, even though I owe you 3,000 because my bank or your bank is not letting us send more. And then I'm going to send it the next day and the next day. And people always say, fine. And then I do it. But if someone were to be super uncomfortable with that, then I'd say, okay, well, what would you like? Do you want me to send it to you all at once in Bitcoin? I can do that. Like I would try to provide alternatives if they were very nervous that this was my excuse to slow pay them. Though what I'd probably say is, hey, just give it a few days. You know, you don't urgently need the money. Uh, I'm, I'm going to pay you. you know, if, it, if it 
takes a lot longer than I'm claiming, then uh, you know I'll send it to you in Bitcoin or whatever, but it'll be fine. So that that's what I would tell these people normally. However, the reason that excuse doesn't work for these rooms is that they are not offering an alternative. They're not saying, well, on PayPal, it's going to take a while to get all your money, or on Zelle, it's going to take a while to get all your money. But if you want right now, I'll send it to you in Bitcoin. Because there's no excuse right now why the site, if they have the money, there's no excuse why they cannot purchase cryptocurrency and offer to send that to people who want to cash out. At least put the offer out there. Not everybody wants cryptocurrency. But people saying, oh no, they owe me 4K here on Fox Poker and they're sending it to me like 300 at a time every few weeks and I have to really, really, really bug them to get them to do it. Why isn't Fox Poker saying, okay, we're having issues sending very much cash through PayPal right now, but would you like I can send you 4K tomorrow in Bitcoin? And then the person has that option. No one has been given that option. And it's not because the people running Fox Poker are stupid and don't realize that option exists. They know that option exists. So why would they be slow paying people? Well, usually slow paying is a version of either robbing Peter to pay Paul or stretching their bottom dollars thin. So let's look at this. Let's just give you a hypothetical situation. Let's say you owe 100 players an average of $1,000. That means you need $100,000 to pay them. Well, let's say you only have $10,000. You could either pay an average of 10 players and tell the other 90 you're getting nothing, or you could send each of these players much less. And then you could pay every single one of these players a fraction of what they're owed and make it appear like you're processing cash outs and then tell them that they have to wait and they'll get more. Now, in reality, you're $90,000 short. In reality, the $100,000 that you're supposed to have on deposit to pay them, you don't have, and you only have 10000 So what you're doing is you're covering up the fact that you stole the other 90000 on deposit, and probably a lot more than that, and you're making it appear you're still cashing out while you're trying to get the remainder of the money together. And then what goes along with that is robbing Peter to pay Paul. Because robbing Peter to pay Paul is where you're hoping more deposits come into your poker room to where then you can pay people with these deposits and hope you'll eventually get out of the hole. Because remember, you're, correct, you're collecting rake in each of these uh, hands that are dealt. So you're hoping the rake will make enough to correct your shortfall. But how does a shortfall happen in the first place? And this is what I've criticized Full Tilt for and criticized UB for and criticized all other poker rooms that have run off with people's money, like Lock Poker, another big one that did that. Player money should never be touched. Player money should be put in a separate account and it should be held and never touched other than for cash outs. Now, whenever they rake, then they should be able to take that out of the player funds. But basically... All the player balances combined on the site, you should always have in a separate bank account to where if every single person wanted their money and wanted to cash out in full tomorrow, you should be able to pay all of them immediately. And if you can't, then you have stolen the money. If you're even $1 short of that, you have stolen the money because it is not yours to take. You are holding the money for the players who are battling each other at the table, and then you're taking a rake from whatever pots are being won. 
but you do not have a right to dip into the player funds. You need to be able to cash out everybody 100% if they all want to cash out tomorrow. Now, maybe it'll be difficult to get the money to them, but theoretically, if you could pay them without any kind of uh, limits from the banks, you should be able to pay them tomorrow. And if you can't, you're a thief and you have stolen the money and there is no way around that. And I've seen a lot of excuses being made for why this happens. Oh, you know, it was either dip into the player funds or shut down the room because we were losing money and and the only way we keep keep going is if we dipped into the player funds and if we didn't do that, then we have to shut down and, and nobody gets paid. And I'm like, no, it's very simple. When you cannot continue operating, you need to suspend service or you need to raise money from elsewhere. Maybe sell part of your business to somebody else. Raise money through uh, some sort of investment solicitation. Something like that. You cannot dip into the player funds because it's not your money, and dipping into the player funds is stealing. I've heard the excuse, oh, well, banks do this all the time. Banks, uh, they're always uh, acquiring assets against their deposits, and this is how the banks got in trouble in 2008 and had to be bailed out. Yeah, but that's the banks. This is not a bank. You're not the same as a bank. You are required to hold every dollar that is in people's balances. And that's the way all casinos have to operate or they will lose their licenses. All legalized casinos, online and otherwise, have to always have all the money on deposit. If they don't, they have stolen. They've committed a crime. And I have never seen it once where a poker site that claims that they need to pay you slowly over time has all the funds on deposit. Whenever they say that, it is because they are broke. Once in a while, they get out of the hole, but usually not. And I don't mean like a very, very short period of time when a site with a long history of good payouts legitimately has a payment processor problem. And when that happens, usually they can't pay anybody in that time frame. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when they can still pay you, but when they can only pay you once every four weeks for a very small amount of money. That means they've stolen the money. That means they don't have the money to pay you. When you don't get clear answers as to why this is happening, when you get an attitude like you're being the jerk asking about it, these are all indicative that you are dealing with a room which has stolen the money and doesn't want to own up to it. So when they treat you like you're the asshole for demanding action, demanding faster payment. What that usually means is that the money has been stolen and they're trying to make you feel like a jerk for asking about it. And that's what seems to be going on at Fox Poker. This is pretty obvious to me because I've seen this happen time and time again. Some on large sites, some on small sites, but I've seen it. Ray Cruz Jr., I don't know him, but he is a moderator on Poker 4 Breakfast, Poker Number 4 Breakfast, where I'm a member. It's a poker Facebook group. He wrote the following. I originally requested a 4K cash out from Fox Poker on July 14th, 2021. As of the time of this post, I have yet to receive the full cash out amount. There has been little communication on their part the entire time. I've had to also be diligent in the tracking of the chunks I've received, as there have been multiple errors throughout that process as well, again, with almost no communication of funds being sent. Then he posted some screenshots. He's talking with uh, Andy Trombley, who is uh, one of the owners of Fox Poker. 
That's T-R-O-U-M-B-L-Y. He wrote, uh, would like to withdraw 4K, Zelle, and or PayPal. And then he gave his Zelle and PayPal addresses. And he said his name is Mr. Doctor on the site. So then he gets no answer. He said this is July 14th. Just sits there, no answer from Andy, who normally catches people out. So he goes, being processed? No answer. Question mark. Next day. No answer. A week later, July 23rd. Update? Question mark. July 29th. He says, looking for any update or info on my withdrawal, Mr. Doctor for 5K or for 4K. Funds have been pulled. No response in two weeks. Funds have been pulled, meaning that they, they actually took 4K out of his account. And he finally says back, looks like $500 sent with Bitcoin. I'll retag them on remaining. Them, meaning whoever's processing the payments. He said, I did not provide a Bitcoin address for this withdrawal. That was last time. (laughs) They're saying, well, we we paid you $500, which still is a a fraction of 4K. And he's like, "Uh, no, I didn't give you guys a Bitcoin address. And he says, okay, I'll fix that in pending. Do you have still access to that address, that Bitcoin address? Uh, So (laughs) then... He said, uh, update, I don't even think I've gotten half. It'll be a month on the 14th. Any method I need to use. We'd just like to get this wrapped up. So communication on this would be greatly appreciated. Then someone named uh, Teddy, who's also associated with the site, said, I will message admins. I'm sorry for the delay. He said, I would, then uh, Ray says back, it would be nice to get an actual update or plan slash time frame for being paid the remainder. Andy then says back, make sure they focus yours and get get it paid up ASAP. Then he asks, Ray says, so do you have any information on the actual timeline where this will be completed? I've only received 200 more. Still not half of the withdrawal. Trying to be patient, but we moved beyond an excessive wait a long time ago. So then Andy says back, huh? I'm showing 1,500 remaining. So they're they're trying to trick him into believing he's been paid more than he has. Either that or their record keeping is piss poor and they really think he's been paid more than he has. But either way, it's pretty bad. He says, would be helpful to me now to, to know when and where it was sent. I only have 1,700 tracked as received. Even if it were 1,500 remaining, this is still ridiculous. I am aware of 500 Bitcoin, 500 PayPal, another 500 PayPal, and 200 more PayPal. <laughs> so... This is a gigantic mess. Andy then says checking, and he comes back on August 17th. The 800 came from Alex via Zelle on the 15th. And then Ray Cruz says back, to what Zelle email? Unlikely. It wouldn't have cleared by now, but I don't see it. So Alex says, Ray, sorry, they wrote your email down without the Z, so they copy and pasted the wrong email. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure it's because of the Z. I'm sure because his email was missing a Z at the end. That's why they didn't pay him. He said, I just stopped it. It's always a, the check is in the mail. We mailed it to the wrong address trick, basically, the, the electronic version. So Ray Cruz, not wanting to make it look like he's being difficult, then gives a thumbs up and says, ETA on remainder. Alex says, I'll get you this 800 as soon as my cap resets. Again, we're talking about the limits that he claims he's bumped up against, which is, I'm sure is an excuse. He says, and the rest? Well, Andy will let you know about that. So then Ray says, come on, guys, a month? And Alex says, trying our best to spread around equally so no one gets nothing for extended periods. Okay, that's the first thing I believe. 
trying our best to spread around equally so no one gets nothing for extended periods. That's exactly what I was just saying before. They don't have the money. They have a little bit of money, but they don't have nearly the amount they need to cash people out, let alone the people who aren't requesting cash outs. So they're spreading it thin. So this way, everybody gets a little bit every so often. Keep everybody just happy enough to not completely go off. So then Ray Cruz says back, so you can't even give me a straight answer on when I'll get the rest after this long still? Wow. Yeah, wow indeed. So then he wrote, so we made like another 600 of progress in a week. Still a significant balance to be waiting on. Would love an explanation as to why or as to when this will be completed. So I guess he got 600 more. So it brought them up to uh, 2,300, but I guess they still owe 1,700. So you see they're slowly paying him when he's really making a lot of noise, but they're not telling him why. So then Andy says back, Alex just resent the Zell that was initially sent to the other email. So he says, so you guys only send a chunk when I complain? Can we just get this over with and get the last chunk sent also? He says, also, the, the Z- Andy says back, again, the Zell had already been sent. It was just sent to the wrong email. So back to the wrong email thing. He canceled it and resent. I asked him about it when you messaged, and he hadn't sent. Only canceled, so now it's sent again. So in- instead of saying, sorry, you know, here's why we're paying you slowly. Here's the timetable that's going to come. Here's exactly what's going on. He's giving an attitude here, going, look, 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 it was because we sent to the wrong email, man. Get off our case. So then Ray Cruz finally got tired of this shit and said back, dude, don't give me attitude when you're the one stringing me along like this for over a month. I'm trying to just be done with it. I don't like having to deal with it any more than you do. I've been more than patient with all this nonsense. And then Andy says, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, obviously something bad was happening there and still is happening there. We've seen a lot of messages like this, a lot of screenshots like this, and all of them have the same theme. And there's other screenshots being posted. This is a discussion someone named uh, Derek Hellerstedt was having with them, with both Alex and Teddy. Alex said, we can't control what people say. It is what it is, unfortunately. We can do crypto, but it will be super slow. PayPal faster. Now, wait, wait, what? what? Why will crypto be super slow? The network's not even that congested right now. So what is he talking about? It's going to be super slow. So then Derek says back, you can't control it, but not addressing the accusations doesn't help either. That's all I'm saying. Silence speaks volumes. Very true, Derek. Alex says back, I've told plenty of people same things I've mentioned above, not really hiding or anything. And then so Derek says back, why not do it out in the open instead of in Messenger? Also, if money is owed out to multiple people, why is Andy staking hundreds of dollars out daily? I guess Andy's also running stakes on people, which you may wonder, why would he do that? Why would Andy, if he's broke, be staking people instead of uh, paying people out? Wouldn't that indicate that he really does have money? No. When you're staking people in tournaments, what you could be hoping for is a big score. So Andy may not be staking people so they can min cash. He may be staking people in the hopes that they hit a big score and he gets 50% of it and he can pay them. So that's what people who are in financial trouble will do is they will try to find ways to raise money really quickly and take wild chances in order to raise that desperation money so they can save their rep or the rep of their business. So that really looks like what's going on here. And I see a lot of other screenshots of uh, similar conversations. So it's bad news over there. I have a feeling soon enough 
we're going to find out that there's no more money left and it's going to be gone. Derek Hellerstedt also posted a screenshot of him saying to Andy, it's time to start answering questions. You guys are talking about, you have guys talking about going to local authorities, man up and pay the fucking debts. You have 11 people owed 1K plus per person. Time is running out. So what's bothering everybody is they're giving excuses, but they're providing no proof and they're refusing to post publicly about it and address the issues. So whenever you see this, it's always the same story. It's always a version of the same story. And that is the people owing the money are broke. They know everyone's discussing it. They know it's trashing their rep. They know it's trashing their business's rep. But there's nothing they can do because they know they cannot pay people and they cannot provide proof the money is still there. Now, let me tell you some things they could do even if they are having issues getting the money out, which I don't believe, by the way. I don't believe they have the money and can't get it out. But let's say they're having trouble getting the money out for whatever reason. What they could do, for example, is have someone trusted watch them on a live stream log into their bank account showing the money that exists or explain either in public or to someone very trusted why they are having the issues they are and be as transparent as possible, and show as much as possible. Like, for example, let's say I owed a lot of people money. Let's say, for example, you guys all bought pieces of me for the World Series, and I cashed big in an event, and then I owed a bunch of you a bunch of pieces of this that were all four figures or more. And then when I went to go send people these pieces, I ran into issues. So let's say uh, Zell... You bumped up, my, my limits were way too low to send the amount I needed to send out. And uh, let's say that all the other apps to send money had that same problem, and PayPal had that same problem. And let's say people just didn't want to have checks from me. They wanted to get it in some other way. And let's say I just didn't have enough Bitcoin, nor was I able to obtain the Bitcoin as quickly as I wanted to send out, which maybe is what they mean by crypto being slow. What would I do then? Would I just say, well, just trust me, you'll get it? I'm having some problems, but you'll see it. I think people would probably trust that, knowing that I have no history of scamming. But there would probably be some people a little bit worried. So what I would do to alleviate people's worry is I would offer to explain exactly what's going on, show them exactly what's going on, or show them a bank account balance that they could watch me log into through a live stream, even like a private live stream that would show my balance that could cover everything. Or I could show them all the cash I'm currently holding on a live stream, whatever it is. Something where I could prove or at least semi-prove that the money's here and then I can give them daily updates on what is holding me back and what I'm doing to rectify it and that I would give them every alternative possible. So let's say I had all that going on. Well, I could still send a check. So maybe I'll say, okay, whoever is willing to take a paper check mailed to you, I can pay you any amount. Or whoever's willing to meet me or have someone you know meet me at a card room, I can pay you in cash of any amount. Something like that. Something where I am making the entire amount accessible immediately if you want it, even if it's in a non-preferred format. And where I'm giving you daily updates and where I am making it 100% clear what is happening and what is holding me back. And anything short of that is shady. And when people are accused of something and they're innocent, 
the normal behavior is to want to shout from the mountaintops that they're innocent and offer to prove that they are innocent, provided it's something that's provable. So if it's something that's a he said, she said thing, you can't really uh, disprove that, even if you're totally innocent. So sometimes it's better just to ignore it. But if it's something having to do with financial transactions or solvency, then there's a lot of ways to prove it. So if people accuse you of that, and if it's harming your reputation, your business's reputation, the smart thing to do, and not the smart thing, the thing that anyone would do, it's human nature to want to say, no, they're wrong. The accusations are wrong. Here's why it's happening. I will prove this to anyone. And here's 10 different ways I can prove it. And here's what I'm doing to rectify the situation. That's what you say when you're innocent, because you know the facts will support you, and you know that when it's looked into, those accusing you will end up with egg on their face. That's what you do if you're innocent. That's what you do if it's a misunderstanding. But when you give evasive answers, or you give non-answers, or you give an attitude, or you just tell people to wait and be patient, that's because you have something to hide. And we've seen it time and time and time again in poker. That's what's going on with Fox Poker. I don't know where the money went. My guess is that the owner or owners of Fox Poker either have a gambling problem or a spending problem, whatever it is, and they dipped into the player fund. They've probably been doing it for a while, and now they've probably dipped in enough to where they cannot cover the cash outs. So this probably didn't just happen. Much like Full Tilt, they kept taking the money out, uh, some here, some there, some here, some there, Eventually, there was none left. For a long time, they were able to process cash outs while they were almost broke. Then when Black Friday hit, the government's like, okay, well, uh, where's the money to pay the players? And like, uh, well, there isn't any money anymore. Sorry. (laughs) So a lot of times, because cash outs are only a small percentage of the overall balance on the site... A lot of these sites can operate stealing most of the money without anyone ever knowing until there's a run on the bank, until everybody wants to cash out at once, or until a lot of people want to cash out at once, or until the site gets in such trouble that they've taken just about all the money to where they can no longer cover the cash outs. Now, if I am not correct about this, if my assumptions are wrong, if this is one of the rare cases where the shifty acting owners are actually innocent and they're just handling it really poorly but in reality they have all the money waiting to be paid there i invite you andy and alex and teddy to contact me 775-372-8355 and show me where the money is and i will use my expertise of uh two decades of covering scams like this I will use my expertise to determine whether you do really have the money or whether you're lying to me. And then I will come out and tell everybody on these groups whether I believe that you have the money or not. So prove to me you have the money. Prove to me to my satisfaction the money is there. And then prove to me why you cannot pay people. It's not just enough to show money. You also have to prove why you cannot pay the money. But they'll listen to me. I have nothing to do with you guys. I have no reason to lie for you. People know that. People know I have no friendship with any of you. I don't even know you guys. So show me, and I will come out to these Facebook groups and any other Facebook group you want me to come to, or anywhere else on social media. I will go there, and if you're innocent, I will tell them. I will tell them that from the best of my ability, 
I was able to see that you guys have the money and that the reasons you can't pay are legitimate and not to worry. But I don't think you're going to do that because I don't think you can show me that. I think you don't have the money. I think the money is not even close to what you should have. I have a feeling that almost all the money on deposit on Fox Poker is no longer there. And you're trying to string people along until you can get enough deposits to cover it. Or maybe some of Andy's stake horses could win a big tournament and rescue you guys. And if you have stolen even $1 on deposit, that means that you are thieves. And by the way, if you show me you have the money, I don't want to just see the money you owe the people cashing out. I want to see that you have every dollar that is on deposit on the site. I don't think you can show me that. I don't think you will offer to show me that or show anybody that. And if you are playing on a site that has anything but every single dollar that's on deposit being held in reserve for those who cash out, then you are playing on a site run by thieves and you are going to get screwed. Now, did Fox Poker start this site believing they're going to scam everybody and steal their money? I can't know for sure, but I doubt it. I don't think they started off believing they're going to scam people. I believe that, like so many of these other poker sites, they start off with good intentions, and then, for whatever reason, things kind of go astray. Maybe the owner needs money from other things, or has a gambling problem, or they overspend on promoting the business. One of many reasons why they run short of funds And then they see all that player money. They say, hmm, well, that's just sitting here and not everybody's coming for it. So we can dip into this. I mean, we're collecting rate. We're getting deposits. So no one will ever know. That's how it happens. And then once it gets to a desperate point, that's when players start complaining. Then it's too late and people are not going to get paid. Now, let's say you have money on Fox Poker. What do you do right now? Well, the only slight good news in this situation is they are still paying people, albeit slowly. So the squeaky wheel will get the grease. So the more noise you make, you see this Ray Cruz guy got uh, more than half paid here, which still sucks. He should have gotten all paid last month, but he's been making the most noise and therefore he has gotten more than half the money. I guarantee if he said nothing, he would have gotten nothing. So tell them that you want to be paid. I would cash out your entire balance now and stop playing there. Cash out your entire balance. Tell them you want to be paid. Tell them you're aware of their problems, but you want to give them a chance. Tell them you'll even report that they cashed you out quickly if they do. That may incentivize them to cash you out. By the way, you don't have to keep your word there. Or you can semi-keep your word. You can keep your word and post that they cashed you out quickly, but say that doesn't mean anything because I just want to let you guys know I promised I would. And uh, I'm telling you guys that, but they may be doing this for appearances because <laughs> that's probably what's happening. And that's, that's another trick, by the way, where they like to uh, cash out certain people, especially with smaller balances. When I say they, I don't mean Fox Poker, but I've seen other sites where they will cash out these smaller payments just so people will come on social media and say, oh, yeah, I got my money. And this way they'll look better. But make a lot of noise. Tell them you're going to talk about it on social media. Tell them you want to get paid in full. Tell them you don't want delays. Tell them it's very important to you to get paid right now. And you'll have a higher chance of getting paid now before they completely run out of money. But I find it doubtful that everybody who currently has money on that site is going to get paid. I think the whole thing's going to crash down shortly enough. And that's going to be that. 
they had a 20k guaranteed tournament a, a few weeks ago and apparently the uh, winners haven't been paid a the, the winner of that tournament said uh, can I get the balance I'm owed can I get paid you fucks banned my chat nice scam operation fucking scum uh, paid me for this pay me for the 790 I was owed you fuck you scum fucks ban my chat for telling the truth and chat you communist scum <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure if that's the guy who won the 20K guaranteed, but whatever it is, uh, someone whose chat was banned for saying he wasn't getting paid. That's nice. I don't know if that's the winner of that event or not, but uh, isn't that nice they ban your chat if you rightfully say that you're not getting paid and there's a problem? They're trying to keep it quiet. Okay, I'm gonna, I see people are trying to hammer phone calls here. I'm going to open up the phones here for people who want to call in about this. I don't want to hear about other topics now, so if you call and want to talk about another topic, I'm going to hang up on you. But if you want to call in, you want to talk about this, then I will take your call. Of course, right now, nobody's calling in. <laughs> I was getting hammered with so many calls, I had to put it on uh, Do Not Disturb. Now I'm not getting calls. Not only do I recommend you get everything off Fox Poker immediately, but I also recommend you stay off all sites that are private poker sites. Any site that is run out of soon dude's bedroom, do not play on. Do not play on it. Only play on large or fairly large online poker sites that have a known good cash out history. And how do you find out? Ask on a forum. Ask on Poker Fraud Alert. Ask on 2 Plus 2, wherever you post. Ask, does this site pay people presently? Are they good with payments? And how long does it take? And if the answer does not sound good, do not play. I can tell you ACR and Bovada and Ignition do pay reliably and quickly, and so does Bet Online. I can tell you that. So if you want to play on any of those, despite all their other issues, they do pay you. Next topic is... One that I have been meaning to discuss for a long time. And I did a write-up on the forum. So at the end of this whole segment, or if you'd like to read along, you can go over to the Poker Community Discussion sub-forum on Poker Fraud Alert. And you can read the thread about this subject. The thread is called... Case closed years after shutting down, full tilt is still being sued over bot-related account closures. So go to that thread if you want to read along as you're listening to this segment, or if you'd like to read about it afterwards. But this is, once again, Poker Fraud Alert story time. We've been doing this every week, so I'm going to put on the campfire here. There we go. little bit dangerous to light a campfire in this room, but I think I have it under control. It's just something that I'd like to have in the background so I can feel like you're all gathering around and listening to my story. Oh, crap! Hold on a second. My curtains are on fire. Hold on a second. Fortunately, I keep a fire extinguisher in this room. My girlfriend will not be happy about the curtains being destroyed in here. 
So let's go back to the year 2007. I know, you're probably thinking, oh no, not another story from the 2000s. We already did that last week with Mason Malmuth, and I'm saying, look, this is going to be a Mason Malmuth-free show. We're not going to discuss Mason Malmuth drama on this show, but we are going to stay in the late 2000s, because this is a very interesting story, and I just got new information that pretty much answers almost everything that was unanswered for all these years. The year was 2009, and I was showing up to a Burbank, California restaurant to have lunch with an attractive woman I met through an online poker site. Burbank, by the way, is east of Los Angeles, northeast of Los Angeles. But this was not a date, and romance wasn't in the air. We were meeting because she promised that she could dish the dirt on the second biggest poker site in the world, which is Full Tilt Poker. And I was about to be given a lot of exclusives about a lot of Full Tilt's dirty laundry. Again, this is before Black Friday, before they were found to have stolen all the money. She was going to dump a bunch of information on me about shady stuff Full Tilt was doing. So who was this mystery woman? We weren't meeting for a date, but we were meeting at a restaurant in Burbank so she could tell me everything. Was she a Full Tilt insider? Was she a hacker? Was she an ex-lover or ex-friend of a Full Tilt executive? Nope. None of those things. She was a former heads-up limit hold'em specialist who played on the site. She won a lot of money on the site, and her account had been shut down because she was accused of botting and multi-accounting. She was known there as Poker Girl Z, but she played on other sites as Mad Hattie, Jonesin, and Silly Sal, among other names. She was a consistent winner over a period of several years online during the 2000s, Usually played things like 50-100 Limit Hold'em or 100-200 Limit Hold'em. Heads up only. I watched her. I played against her. She was a winner. She did appear to be a very good player. For years, she and I did not get along. She was temperamental. She was tilty. She would talk shit in the chat. But the worst thing, the thing that really made us butt heads, was the fact that she was guilty of hitting and running against fellow regulars heads up. Now, in case you don't know what that is, hitting and running heads up means that you sit down to play somebody heads up, you win a a few hands, and then you get up and leave. Now, you may say, what's wrong with that? It's up to you how long you want to play poker. Well, it's an etiquette violation. When you sit down to play somebody heads up, it is assumed that you're sitting down for some kind of substantial match with them. It doesn't have to be six hours, but it also shouldn't be three hands. And if your goal is to sit with them and run away after three hands, while you're allowed to do it technically, it's considered a dick move. Why is it a dick move? Because that's not a real match, that you're just trying to get lucky over a period of three hands and and then run off on them if you do. So in the community, hitting and running is frowned upon, and people who are known as hit and runners are looked down upon. In live card rooms, in fact, what often happens is when games break down to heads up, they rarely start heads up. When In live card rooms, when games kind of keep shrinking, people leave until it gets down to heads up, or even sometimes three-handed, the remaining people will have a conversation and say, okay, how much longer are we going to play? And then everybody agrees to play 
whatever that amount of time is and then decide again at the end of that time if they want to continue playing unless one of them goes bust. And this prevents hitting and running. And if you agree to that and then violate it, uh, you're considered a huge dick. So I just had this situation in uh, late 2019, early 2020, where I'd be playing like commerce or the bike. I had that happen a few times that the game be breaking down and we'd say, okay, you guys want to keep playing? Yes. Okay. How long? Okay. 30 minutes. Okay. 30 minutes. We'll, we'll all promise to play 30 minutes. At the end of 30 minutes, we'll discuss what we want to do. And everybody kept to it and it was fine. What she would do is she would keep playing you, but then the second she'd either take a bad beat or a few bad beats or a few losses in a row, she'd type done and get up and move to another table by herself, even if she was way up. So she could start like 3,000 ahead of you. You win 500 back through like a single bad beat. She'd type done, sit out and move to another table after like a few hands. And you'd say, what the hell? <laughs> you're up on me. We've only played a few hands. You lose one to me and you type done and leave and then you expect me to not follow you to the next one? Because it was worse that she wasn't... It's it's worse than just leaving. She would leave and go to another table and expect you not to follow her. And if you did, she would sit out and curse you. So we had a lot of battles over this. And what I would do when she'd pull this crap on me is I would go sit with her anyway and then I'd tell her I'm going to keep following you until you keep playing and if you are going to do this, then don't play me in the first place. Once you start playing me, you've got to play a real session or I'm not going to let you just move to another table. So she'd complain to poker sites about me and it would be interesting to see what they would do about it. So some sites would clamp down on me and say, I can't do that. If she doesn't want to continue playing tough luck, you can't follow her. If you do it again, we're going to ban you. Other sites said to her, Stop whining about this and stop hitting running people. If you don't like the way the guy's uh, behaving when you play him and if he follows you, then uh, stop playing him. When he sits down with you, just sit out. And if he keeps following me, then say something. But you, you, if you're going to play with him a few hands and jump to another table and he follows you, it's your own fault. Some of the sites told her that. Full Tilt handled it in a really strange way. They banned my chat. <laughs> this had nothing to do with chat. In fact, she was talking tons of shit to me in chat and using all kinds of profanity. I, I was just debating with her about how what she's doing is unethical. But somehow I got my chat banned, which, by the way, was a very shady thing the way Full Tilt handled this. Uh, a little aside I'm going to tell you here. I didn't write about this in the thread, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, they banned my chat over this, which made no sense. And... I wrote back to them and I said, this makes zero sense why you'd ban my chat. And I'm expl I explained to them why I did what I did. And I said, look, if you don't want me to do this anymore, fine, but bring my chat back. And they said, nope, sorry, our decision stands. Your chat is going to remain banned. I said, well, if this is a chat violation, the truth is she committed a much worse chat violation because look at all the stuff she typed to me, all the profanity, all the really nasty stuff. I didn't insult her at all. So why aren't you banning her chat? So they responded back, okay, you brought up a good point. We're banning her chat for the same time frame, which was like two weeks. So I'm like, okay, I'm not thrilled about this, but at least she lost her chat too. So what they really did behind the scenes is they told her, look, we promised him that we're banning your chat, but we really don't want to. So just don't chat. So she kept to that, except she didn't realize that you know, on full tilt, you could uh, change the emotions of your avatar, like happy, sad, angry. So apparently when your chat is banned, you can't change your avatar emotions either. That's just the way the software was written. So like when I tried to make myself happy after I won a pot, I couldn't change it when my chat was banned and it was annoying. So I noticed watching her 
that she was able to do it. I'm like, shit, her chat isn't actually banned. So I wrote to them and I said, um, you guys never actually banned her chat. So at that point, they got nasty with me and they said, this isn't up to you. We've made our decisions. It's none of your business what we did with her. Uh, your band stands and no, we're not discussing her any further. So I got really pissed off. And I thought, wow, this shit, site's kind of shady. This site's kind of uh, shifty with the way they're dealing with this. I mean, it's one thing for me not to agree with the way they're handling it, but uh, to lie to me and say they're going to ban her chat too and then quietly tell her not to chat. And I knew they told her that because she wasn't saying a word in chat while I was banned. Then when I caught them, for them to just say, F you, we're not discussing this any further, I thought, wow, that's really crappy. Like, stars would never do this. So anyway, I had a friend at the time who was a red pro there. Actually, I had a friend who was the uh, live-in girlfriend of a red pro. So I went to her and I said, do you have any influence here? Because she had told me before she had some influence over Full Tilt, this friend of mine. So she said, yeah, mention my boyfriend's name and you know, they'll, they'll take care of you. So I mentioned his name. I said, I'm friends with such and such. And, uh, you know, he said to mention his name here and that uh, I should be treated fairly. I, I forgot what way I put it, but I, I basically let them know that I know someone who's a red pro who's friends with the owners there and that uh, this isn't fair. And can they please have a manager review this? Something along those lines. So I got back, the, back this obnoxious letter from Full Tilt, an email that is, telling me that they don't care whose name I dropped. Uh, the decision stands and all the name dropping in the world is not going to change that. Is that freaking obnoxious or what? So I went back to her and I said, guess what they just said? They said, all the name dropping in the world isn't going to change there. She's like, okay, let me take this from here. So then she called someone and a day later I got an email, your chat ban has been reversed. No explanation, just it was reversed. So obviously she got that done. That made me really start to wonder about Full Tilt and the fairness of everything going on there. And it just seemed really shady to me. Anyway. Can you imagine from this story that uh, she and I liked each other very much? Obviously not. Obviously, the two of us pretty much despised each other. Now, I despised her from the standpoint of not liking the way she behaved online and not appreciating all the reports to poker sites about me and this stupid disciplinary action on full tilt where they pretended to ban her and really didn't and all that other crap. Like, I didn't like all of that stuff, but I didn't hate her with a passion. I just kind of disliked her. So I wasn't looking to do anything bad to her. I just uh, didn't care for her and she didn't care for me. And that seemed to be the way it would stay. But that's who I was meeting in Burbank two years later. So why would I be meeting someone like that, I, that I disliked, that reported me constantly to poker rooms, that I had a fight with Full Tilt about how could I be meeting her for lunch at a Burbank restaurant two years later? Well, what happened was that she got banned from Full Tilt later that year in 2007. She was accused of botting and multi-accounting. She played on Full Tilt as Poker Girl Z, and there was another account named Grego777 that was also banned that was her boyfriend. And she admitted it was her boyfriend later on. And it was accused that she was multi-accounting and that both accounts were using bots. She tried to 
convinced them that this wasn't true, and they were not buying it at full tilt. She then did what everybody else does when they get banned and the poker sites would not budge. She ran to 2 plus 2, which back then was a very active site and where people always took their gripes when they were unfairly banned and often when they were fairly banned and they wanted to play victim, hoping to get the public on their side, even though they didn't deserve it. So whenever these people would show up saying such and such site mistreated me, you'd always have to sift through it and try to figure out if the person's telling the truth or not. Anyway, Poker Girl showed up to 2 plus 2 and pled her case. And I saw that. And of course, part of me wanted to laugh. Part of me wanted to feel satisfied about this whole thing. Now, I hadn't heard of her being banned until she made that 2 plus 2 thread. But part of me was kind of satisfied to see that after everything that had happened earlier in the year. But the part of me that doesn't like to see anybody screwed over on poker sites overrode that. As much personal satisfaction I might have gotten from seeing this happen to her, I did not want to sit, sit style. I did not want to sit silent if she was banned unfairly, because my dislike for her aside, I did not want to see her money confiscated. She didn't deserve that, and I did not want to see anyone banned from two plus two who hadn't actually. Or not, I didn't want to see anybody banned from Full Tilt, who hadn't done anything wrong. So, I decided to comment. Now, I didn't get into the thread until it had been going a while, because I didn't see it at first. But once I became aware of it, I decided that I would comment. And, surprisingly, I was not against her, even though most of the thread was against her by then. I got involved in this fairly late. She posted this on October 23rd, 2007. I got involved on November 10th, 2007. And by this point, the thread was 30 pages long, and most people were against her. Most people didn't believe her. Most people believed she was botting, and she was really not doing very well there. But I decided to be fair about it. I I, I basically made a post there that was saying that I saw some signs of her botting, but I also saw some signs she wasn't botting, and that I never seemed to suspect that she was a bot. That, like, in hindsight, I can sort of believe she was using a bot because I saw a lot of behavior that is bot-like, such as doing very light call-downs, which a lot of bots do in heads-up limit hold'em. However, I said she had a tilt problem. She not only chat-tilted, but her play degraded when she was chat-tilting. And she would abruptly leave after taking a bad beat. I said, bots don't do this. And even bots where a human is supervising the bot, the bots don't start playing worse when the human gets emotional. So I said, my opinion is that I think she's probably not a bot based upon these characteristics. And that was my opinion. And I said, look, I had some problems with her before. She and I aren't friends. But I will say, even though some things about her play are suspicious, the tilting and the emotion and all that other stuff really makes me think that it isn't a bot. However, I do find it weird that nobody has ever seen her at Commerce or any other area card room, especially someone who's an attractive uh, female, which she was. I find it weird that all she does is play heads up Limit Hold'em, 
And she just came out of nowhere to just appear in these games and win at them. But no one saw her coming up. No one saw her in live card rooms. So that is kind of a weird history. It is weird that nobody knows her. And yet she's a winning player like this. No one watched her come up. So I said at the end of the post, I'm leaning towards her innocent. But I believe it could go either way on this one. That was what I said at the end of my 2 plus 2 post. I didn't read all of it verbatim, but that was basically what I said. Also, I provided a link to see some photos of her that were posted publicly on PokerRoom.com because that was where she mostly played prior to Full Tilt. So I showed that she was once once played the World Series in 2006 with a seat she won from PokerRoom.com and she went to a party they had at the World Series and they posted pictures of her and it said, here, this is Poker Girl. So I wasn't giving away any secrets. It was right there on Poker Room site. But I said, if you want to see her, here she is. So people were like, oh, wow, she, you know, she's pretty. <laughs> they, were, they were surprised that, uh, that this pretty girl was the one behind all this. I said she looked about 40, so she wasn't young, but uh, this you know, attractive 40-year-old was behind all this. But it was suspicious who she was and where she came from. But at the same time, there were a lot of reasons to believe she wasn't a bot. So that was basically what I said in my 2 plus 2 post. I also noted in the post that there was a very similar confiscation of funds to hers just four months earlier in 2007. It was for a similar amount, and it was from another otherwise unknown female limit hold'em heads-up specialist. So I said this is highly suspicious that two unknown female limit hold'em specialists from the Los Angeles area were both accused of botting and both had their funds confiscated within four months of one another on full tilt. I noted that was kind of weird as well. So I was fair about everything. I did not let my personal dislike for her color my post about her. And you can take a look. I linked my post in this thread that I wrote on Poker Fraud Alert about this. And you can see how fair I was despite the fact that I personally disliked her. Because you know what I disliked more than her behavior towards me was poker sites confiscating money for violations that people did not actually commit. I did not want to see that happen to anybody. So, how do you think she reacted to this? Well, strangely enough, her first reaction was to be frustrated that I said she was 40. (laughs) I, I kid you not. Her first response to me was, 40? Are you kidding me? Now, she didn't say how old she was, but she was like shocked that I said she was 40. She was insulted that I said she was 40. Well, the picture wasn't super clear, but she kind of looked about 40 to me. I had no information about her age. I just just kind of ballparked it. And I wasn't that far from 40 myself at the time. I was uh, 35. But, you know, she looked older than me, but not like way older. I thought she was pretty, but she looked older than me. I thought she was around 40. That was, that's what I posted there. She's around 40. So I don't know why she was so insulted about the 40 thing. But that was her first big focus of why are you saying I'm 40? But then she went on to respond positively to me. Why? Because she saw that she may have had an ally there, a potential ally. Because I would be the perfect ally in this situation. Here's someone who didn't get along with her. Here's someone who she had complained about in the past. Here's someone that had plenty of fights with her in the past. 
And if I were to come out in her corner and say, even though I don't like her, I don't think she was botting, that would be very strong, especially because I was a known member of the Limit Hold'em community then with a Limit Hold'em bracelet. I mean, like, I would have credibility to say that she's innocent and people would believe it. So she really wanted to get my stamp of approval here, despite our past. But I was not going to be manipulated like this. I was not going to be... uh, goaded into taking her side just because I made an even-handed post despite my personal dislike for her. Anyway, we went back and forth in the thread. I asked her some questions. I actually got her to admit that she was Grego777 sometimes. She said, well, Grego is my boyfriend, and uh, yes, sometimes I played on the account, and I did this because... uh, uh, Sometimes I wanted to get action, but it was usually him. Anyway... That immediately turned a lot of people off. As soon as they saw her admit that she multi-accounted and that her initial woe is me, I got treated unfairly report on there didn't mention the multi-accounting, only mentioned the botting. They're like, oh, so you're multi-accounting too? Okay, we're done with you. We're done. So, so, so that was pretty much the end of what little sympathy she had. But And I asked her some other questions. She was kind of evasive about them. So I, I started to back away from the thread because I wasn't convinced she was botting. I still wasn't. I still thought it could go either way. Uh, but I was not thrilled with some of her responses. I thought she was less than forthright there, and I kind of lost interest in possibly defending her. So that seemed to be that. However, someone messaged me. Someone, an acquaintance I had messaged me on AIM. Remember AIM, AOL Instant Messenger? Someone messaged me on AIM and said, Poker Girl wants to talk to you. She won't tell me what it's about. Here's her AIM scream name. Now, this was not in 2007. This was almost two years later in 2009. So after all this time, after that thread was passed and it looked like she wasn't getting her money back and I kind of backed away from it, in 2009, suddenly she wants to talk to me. Now, we did not have any private communications even when we were getting along better in that thread. Like We, we had not PM'd or messaged or anything. So this is out of the blue. In 2009, she wants to talk to me. But I assumed it had to do with that. But I wondered why after almost two years she'd be contacting me now. So this person gave me her AIM screen name. So I messaged Poker Girl Z on AIM. And she said, I have a lot to tell you about Full Tilt. And you're the only one I trust in poker right now. Can you call me? So I did. Now, I kind of understood why I was the only one she trusted because I was known at the time to be a big advocate for poker rooms acting ethically. I had just been on 60 Minutes talking about what happened on UB and AP, and I was a big face of the exposure of the super user scandal. So it made sense that she would come to me, and of course she knew, like she did two years prior, that people knew I wasn't friends with her, and that if I came out on her side, that it would carry some weight. So I thought maybe she had some stuff she wanted to share with me that she thought uh, nobody else she could trust with the information or that nobody else would use the information correctly. So I was very curious about this. I bet you are too. So I asked her on the phone, what's this about? What do you want to tell me? She said, "Uh -uh, I can't tell you on the phone. I've got to meet with you in person. I said, okay, well... What's your real name? I, 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 I can't tell you my real name either. I just please, please meet me 
at this restaurant in Burbank on such and such day, and I'll tell you everything. Isn't that mysterious? It's like in a movie. Meet me at the Burbank uh, Olive Garden, and I'll tell you everything. Goodbye. It wasn't the Olive Garden. I forgot where it was, but (laughs) I had to meet her at this Burbank, California restaurant on this date to find out this huge story about Full Tilt. She promised me a huge story and one which would incriminate Full Tilt beyond my wildest dreams. Now, keep in mind, I was not an anti-Full Tilt crusader. I was still playing there. I was annoyed the way they treated me two years before. I didn't totally trust them. But for the most part, I thought they were fine. They just kind of flawed. That's kind of what I thought of Full Tilt at the time. So it's not like she went to me because she knew I hated Full Tilt. I didn't. But that she had a lot of information to give me that she only trusted me with. And I had to wait till I got to Burbank to meet her. So I wasn't even living in the Los Angeles area at the time. I was living in Vegas at the time in 2009. So my parents still lived in uh, Southern California. I arranged to go see them. So I wasn't wasting a whole trip down to Los Angeles for this nonsense in case it turned it out turned out to be crap. Uh, And then uh, I did that, and I showed up to meet her at that restaurant. So I was extremely curious about her. I knew she was real. I had seen that picture of her. I knew someone who had met her at that poker room party in 06 that briefly met her, and they said, you know, she was a real person. She seemed to really be the one behind the poker girl account. So I, I knew that pretty woman I saw in the picture from 06 was her, but I, I was curious about her and her story and why no one knew who she was and how, how could she have risen to this level in the Limit Hold'em scene without ever being known by anybody. It was a big mystery to hear. I, I, I really wanted to find out what was going on, plus everything with Full Tilt. Like, it was very intriguing. So I showed up, and she was already out there waiting for me. I got there on time, but she was already out there. She was there early. She was attractive and well-dressed, In fact, you can see a picture of her, which looks very similar to how she looked at the time when I showed up to meet her, right down to what she was wearing. She was wearing like this black outfit with gloves on, with kind of like a a scarf or something around her neck. In fact, people thought at first when I posted that picture that I snapped a picture of her and posted it without her permission. No, this is actually a picture that is publicly available of her somewhere on the web that I found recently, but it was a picture from that time period around 09, and she was, I think, wearing this exact outfit. So this really is what she looked like when I walked up in front of that restaurant. So I thought, wow, okay, she's looked like that attractive woman I saw there. Now, there were a few differences. She looked a little bit older than what I'd seen in the 06 picture. It was a little surprising because it had only been three years, but she definitely didn't look young. Uh, definitely looked at least 40, but, but she was pretty. I mean, you'll see in the picture. And she said, hi, my name is Larry. I said, what? Larry? Like, I thought in my head, like, what the hell? I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm meeting like a transsexual or something? I didn't understand. The, like, how's this woman Larry? She didn't look like a Larry. So I, I said, Larry? She said, yeah, I know my name's unusual, but that's me. That's my real name. There's one R in Larry, L-A-R-Y. My name is Larry Kennedy. So I said, okay, weird name. I've never heard of a girl named Larry, but all right. Maybe it's short for Larissa or something. So Larry and I went into the restaurant, sat down, and ordered lunch, and I was waiting for the big bombs to drop. Larry went on to tell me that the big story was that 
she was suing Full Tilt Poker because she was banned. And I thought, okay, is that it? <laughs> like, like I, I, I was expecting something huge. Not hey, I, we're, we're, I'm suing Full Tilt to get back the money. She had forty-seven thousand dollars confiscated, and her boyfriend Grego, whose account she quote sometimes used, had thirty-three thousand. So she lost about eighty k there between her and her boyfriend. Okay, sucks. I know why she was annoyed. If she was innocent, but like a lawsuit to recover that while it's moderately interesting is not enough to get me down to meet someone at a restaurant to, to hear the big story of that. So I was immediately disappointed that this is the big bomb. But, but then she went on to tell me that there's a lot more. She said, Full Tilt is actually operating bots, not her. She said, she's not operating bots. It's Full Tilt that is operating the bots. And that they're doing it in order to seed the game. So when games are kind of dead, they run bots there to be like prop players. And the bots also beat people and they keep the money. She said she had proof of it, and she actually named various red pros on Full Tilt who she claimed were in charge of that effort, names that you guys would know. I'm not going to repeat them out here because I don't want to falsely accuse anyone because this was never proven. But she claimed that certain pros on Full Tilt were in charge of the botting effort. She said the site was also breaking all kinds of laws and violating RICO statutes, she said they were also closing accounts like hers on purpose simply to seize people's money, that they were always looking to close accounts so they could just keep the money. She said there's so much more that I can't even tell you yet, but it's all going to be stated in the lawsuit. She said the lawsuit was very close to being filed and that she'd repeatedly been threatened not to go through with it. Well, this was a little bit more interesting than just her suing them over her account closure, but... I wasn't all that convinced. She provided no evidence that Full Tilt was using bots. She wouldn't even be able to name the bots to me. I said, which bots are it? I I can't tell you yet. She couldn't prove to me that they were maliciously shutting down accounts in order to steal money. In fact, from what I had known, whenever accounts got shut down, people would get the money from that account. Like previous opponents that had lost to those accounts would get some of their money back. So it looked like Full Tilt just redistributed that money and didn't keep it. I told her my suspicion was that their security deposit their security department was simply incompetent and that it was not something malicious. And I told her I did not think that any of this was on purpose and that even her account shut down if she was innocent was a matter of them incorrectly believing she was botting, but not anything malicious meant to steal her money. She said, oh, no, 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 it's totally intentional. You're going to see. And she kept insisting that I will understand it all once the lawsuit's filed and I will become a believer, but she cannot present me with any proof yet. I just had to trust her. Well, I was getting tired of this. This was not what I was hoping for. Just a bunch of baseless accusations about full tilt, some of which didn't make a lot of sense. I was not being brought anything of substance. In fact, I was not even brought an accusation that they were stealing the money on deposit. She did not say that, funny enough, even though full tilt really either was or was about to. (laughs) So the one thing they were doing that was really bad, she didn't know about, or at least didn't accuse. So I decided I heard enough of this, and at least maybe I'll get something out of this meetup by pivoting the conversation to her. So I asked her, why haven't I ever seen you at Commerce? Why hasn't anyone ever seen you at Commerce? So she claimed that she much preferred to play online and barely played live anymore. She said she previously played at Hollywood Park 
many years ago, but I didn't play there enough myself to be able to validate or debunk such a claim. I had only played there when I was a low-limit player, so if she was a middle or upper-stakes player, I wouldn't have seen her or not have paid attention to her being there, and I wasn't there that often anyway, so there's no way I could confirm or deny that she was playing there regularly. And I asked her where she learned to play poker in the first place. Remember, she just kind of appeared at high stakes and was a winner. So I said, where'd you learn? She said her dad taught her when she was a young girl. I said, okay, what about Grego? Was that you? She says, well, if you promise not to tell anyone, I'll give you the truth. She said, yes, I used both accounts. I was the main one using both accounts. But as you saw, I never played at the same table as Grego, and we never entered tournaments together or anything like that, ever. All we did is we played at separate heads-up tables, and yes, it was usually me. Grego occasionally played also, but it was mainly me. And please don't tell anyone that. On 2 Plus 2, I said that he played sometimes, and I played sometimes on the account, but it was usually me on it. But please don't tell anyone that. I said, okay, well, why? Why did you use two accounts? She said, well, some of the fish didn't want to play Poker Girl anymore because they had lost to Poker Girl and I wouldn't get their action. Also, some people would not sit with Poker Girl in the first place because they were afraid to lose to a girl, so they were more willing to lose to Grego, another guy. So it was useful. She said, I wasn't cheating anyone. And also, Full Tilt was knowingly let other people use multiple accounts or switch accounts on the site without telling anyone else. So I thought about it. I said, you know what? She is right about that last part. David Benjamin, Guy Le Liberté, and others were allowed to create new accounts at will. And that was known to be happening, and people kind of had to figure it out for themselves. So they were allowing multi-accounting in certain cases on full tilt. And I thought, okay, well, if she saw that they were lax about this, if she knew Benjamin had several accounts and they looked the other way, then her doing it too, you you can understand why she might thought that was okay. So I asked, okay, well, what about Grego? Does he even play poker? Would I know him? She said, well, he plays, but you know, he's not on the account very much. It's usually me. You know, He's my boyfriend. He lives with me. I actually taught him how to play, she told me. So then I asked her about the other account that had been closed four months prior to hers that had a lot of similarities. I said, look, both of you were heads-up limit hold'em specialist females. Both of you were winners. Both of you were unknown in the live scene. Both of you were from the L.A. area. Both of you began on Poker Room, from what I could see. Both of you were supposedly at that 2006 party where there's pictures of you, except uh, this other woman wasn't in any of the pictures, and then transitioned over to Full Tilt. This other account it was named uh, Beat Me One, by the way. So Beat Me One was also at that party, because I, I saw the list of who was at that party, and Beat Me One was there, but there's no pictures of Beat Me One. So I said, how come you guys have so many similarities? I mean, you've got to at least know each other, right? Oh, no, 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 no. I don't know Beat Me One. I said, how can you say you don't know her? You were at the same party. She says, well, I, I know how it looks, but I don't know her. I met her once at the party. She seemed nice, and that was it. I, I didn't even remember her name until she posted it when she uh, complained about her balance being confiscated. Well, I didn't believe this. Too many coincidences. So I knew at the very least she knew this person and wasn't admitting it to me. So that was already kind of bugging me. So I said, are you sure you don't know Beat Me One? I'll keep it quiet. I'm not trying to ruin your lawsuit or trash your rep. I just want to know the truth. It's just, I've been so curious about this, and there's been rumors around for years that you actually are Beat Me One. So that you, if that's true, then you already got banned once from Full Tilt for botting. And then they may have just hit your other two accounts here four months later. Is that really what happened? No, 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 it's not me. I promise, she told me. 
and I don't know anything about her. I, I, I would tell you if I did. I just, I don't know her. I don't know her, she said. Well, I, she didn't sound very sincere. It sounded like she was nervous when answering these questions. I was pretty convinced she knew Beat Me One or maybe was Beat Me One. So I dropped it and I was pretty much out of questions. And then I decided to ask one more thing. I said, well, I hate to ask this, but uh, since you brought it up on 2 Plus 2, since you made such a big deal about it, are you really 40? Now, usually it's not wise to ask a woman around 40 if they're really 40. Women tend to be very touchy about being 40. But since she made such a big deal on 2 Plus 2 about the 40 thing, and since I didn't feel she was being all that forthright with me after bringing me out there to Burbank, I didn't really care about asking if she was 40. So then she paused for a few seconds and smiled and said, how old do you think I am? And I said, uh-oh, how do I answer this one? It's always hard to answer a woman when she says, how old do you think I am? So I tried to be a little bit polite here. I, I thought she was around 40. And I definitely think, didn't think she was much under 40, but I decided to be polite and say 36. I didn't really think 36, but I said 36 to be nice. Well, she said, you're going to be surprised when you hear the answer. I'm 48, and I'm almost 49. Wow. Well, I was impressed. She looked great for 48. So I asked, wait, 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 wait hold on. So you're almost 49, and two years ago... When you were around 47, you were insulted that I said 40? Wouldn't it be a compliment? She said, no, it wasn't because everybody thinks I'm younger. Everybody thinks I'm in my 30s. And for you to say 40, you're the first one who's ever called me 40. Even though I'm way past 40, you're the first one who ever said I was 40. So therefore, it was an insult, even though you thought I was seven years younger than I actually was. (laughs) That makes no sense. It makes no sense. I guarantee, guys and girls... If you tell me that you think I'm 40, you think I look 40, I'm not going to be insulted. I would have been insulted when I was 35, but at this point, when I'm 49 years old, if you want to tell me I look 40, I'll be thrilled to hear it, if it's true, if, or if you feel it's true. <laughs> I'm not going to go, wait, 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 you don't think I look 35? How dare you? How dare you? All right, well, whatever. She looked very good for 48, I'll say that. So we parted ways. She thanked me for coming out and meeting her. Then she reminded me, don't post any of this online yet. Don't post anything until we file the lawsuit. So I told her I'd keep my word, and I left. So I was true to my word. I told nobody about this meeting. Then she did indeed file her lawsuit a short time after that. There's a link to a story about that lawsuit that I posted on Poker Fraud Alert. But I still didn't have any of my answers. Was she really using a bot? I really did not figure out anything more about that during that meetup. Was she really the one behind the Beat Me One account? And uh, if not, who was the woman behind the Beat Me One account? Were there any other allegations about Full Tilt that she made that were true? Besides the closing of her account, did anything else that she had to say about them that was about uh, them using bots and them uh, closing accounts on purpose and violating RICO. Like, was any of this true? For the next 12 years, I did not know. But since last month, I think I do.
And that's what this segment is about. Let's pivot to something else, which may sound off topic, but it's not at all. I want to tell you about a man named Rob Wrightson. Have you heard of him? You probably haven't. He was a longtime professional gambler. He's now into hedge funds, but back in the 90s and the 2000s, Rob was making a lot of money via Advantage Gambling. Despite that, he is not a household name in gambling. You probably haven't heard of him. But he is indeed a member of the Blackjack Hall of Fame. If you Google Rob Wrightson, R-E-I-T-Z-E-N, Rob Wrightson, you will find him in the Blackjack Hall of Fame. He is reported to have made a ton of money in Blackjack. He claimed that he formed and bankrolled blackjack teams. They utilized counting, shuffle tracking, and various other techniques to get an edge. Claimed they were very successful. Also, prior to that, Rob and some other legendary blackjack players, also in the Blackjack Hall of Fame, even taped computers under their clothes to assist them in counting and coming up with greater edges in real time, where they would get little pulses from the computers that were taped under their clothes to give them signals of what to do, which is very illegal, by the way, but uh, they did it. Additionally, in the early days of the California Indian casinos, presumably the uh, 90s and 2000s, Wrightson co-founded a corporation called Core. And Core was a banker of the high stakes games at Indian casinos, where the tribe either didn't have the bankroll or didn't want the variance of these high-stakes blackjack games. So basically tribes that were small, that uh, didn't want to offer high stakes because they were afraid if someone goes on a lucky streak and pounds them, this core corporation would come in, basically rent the table space from the Indian casino, and then they would basically be taking all the wins and losses at the blackjack game. So it would still be the casino dealers working those tables, but it was completely bankrolled by Wrightson's uh, corporation he owned with somebody else. So he claims he made a lot of money that way. He also was always on the prowl for new recruits to his blackjack teams and always looking for new edges in gambling. Now, was Rob Wrightson a poker player? Not really. In fact, if you look at the Hinden Mob, you will see he has no tournament results. However, Poker was very big in the mid-2000s, as you probably know, and Wrightson obviously couldn't ignore that. And while his focus was on casino advantage play, he did wonder if there is a way to make money in poker without uh, having to grind it at the tables himself. He finally realized that there was money to be made via heads-up limit hold'em play. Heads Up Limit Hold'em is a game that can be solved by computer. It's one of the easier games to solve by computer. Solving meaning creating a machine that can outplay a human. So he got together some engineers and they spent a lot of time and money to develop a Heads Up Limit Hold'em bot which could beat all humans. Now, he claimed that he could have unleashed this bot onto poker sites and crushed everybody, but he said that he preferred to do it a different way. He preferred to use it as a teaching tool to find humans and have the bot teach them how to play better. And that's, at first, 
what he set out to do. Unfortunately, finding players who could learn from the bot and play like the bot was not easy. Most people just didn't have the aptitude for it. You couldn't just get an average person and sit in front of the bot and have the bot teach them. Most of them just could not apply it anywhere near as well as the bot. So what he decided to do was create what he called his clocks. So what he did is he got uh, 20 small clocks, took out the face of the clock, you know, that says 1 through 12 on the clock. He took that out and replaced it with a piece of cardboard that instead had a bunch of different uh, decisions you would make for Limit Hold'em. For example, one of the clocks would say pre-flop middle suited connector, meaning something like uh, 8-9 suited or 10-9 suited. And then the second hand would go around the clock, as it normally does. He took the minute and hour hand off, but the second hand would spin around. And whatever the second hand was pointing to in that situation is what you do. So let's say you have 10-9 suited in the big blind, heads up, and your opponent raises you from the button, and it's to you. You take out the clock that says pre-flop middle suited connector in big blind, and then it will say, according to wherever the second hand is pointing, what to do. So it may say three bet, or it may say call. Those are really the only two options. You would never fold that there. So that would be the options there. So he claimed he was able to compress the entire game of limit hold'em, heads up limit hold'em, that is, to 20 clocks like this that would be making decisions randomly based upon the second hand. And when I say decisions randomly, I mean all of these decisions are at least semi-good decisions to make there, and the second hand is mainly it, it, what it's basically doing is randomizing the decision. So when you're deciding, for example, whether you should three bet the 10-9 suited or just call the 10-9 suited, that would be decided by the second hand, which is just randomizing whether you do, so your play becomes less predictable. He claimed that by making these 20 small clocks, that then he could give them to any amateur player who could simply follow to do whatever the clock says for that particular situation. They'd consult the right clock, and they could play similar, but not quite as well as that bot. And he figured that this clock method was good enough to beat most heads-up limit hold'em players, especially the fish. So he was able to put together a big stable of players to sit and play heads-up limit hold'em using these clocks. However, he needed sites that had heads-up tables. He couldn't just... Uh, have them sit at full ring games, this wouldn't work. This was only solved for heads up. So he had them sit on sites where they had heads up only tables, which had a maximum of two players. And then he also instructed them to leave if it seemed like they were outmatched or losing. And that's the way most of the people in his stable played. The site he liked the best, for whatever reason, was PokerRoom.com. Not only was it kind of an off-the-radar site with relatively few pros, but the few good players there tended to stay out of each other's way. People tended to learn who were the winners there, and they'd only play heads up against the fish. They usually would sit alone and wait for fish to sit with them. So it was really weird on Poker Room. Like, you'd go log into the Poker Room lobby, and you'd see tons of tables open, but they all have one person at them. One, 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 all the way down. You're like, well, why are these people not playing each other? I'm surprised the fish didn't think that. So there's this gigantic list of people looking for a heads-up opponent, but none are playing each other. 
And it wasn't just like Rayson's players there. It was also uh, just regular pros on there too. They all kind of avoided each other. There was one exception to the players using the clock strategy, and that was a small Chinese woman who played under the screen name Redguard1, R-E-G-G-A-R-D-1. She came to the U.S. in the 1990s and barely spoke English. I don't know how she met Rob Wrightson, but uh, he got to know her and noticed she had natural ability to learn and adapt to a lot of these things, and she ended up being the best one in his stable. Redguard1 got good enough playing the bot to where she didn't need the clocks and became a great player in her own right, according to him. So she didn't play using the clocks, and she took on some more tough opponents than the rest of them were. Then came the first blow to the whole operation, because it was doing very well, and they were winning a lot of money. But the first blow came in October 2006. The UIGEA, which is the Unlawful Internet uh, Gaming Enforcement Act, was passed in the United States as part of the Safe Ports Act. It was tacked on to that. And it overnight, literally overnight, explicitly made online poker illegal. And it caused a lot of poker operators to leave the U.S. market. Even Party Poker, which is a large operator, left the U.S. market, as did a lot of small poker operations like PokerRoom.com and most of the other sites where Raitson had his stable playing, because those were the sites that tended to have the heads-up tables. So this pretty much whittled down his operation to just full tilt. Full tilt did have heads-up limit hold'em tables at high stakes and middle stakes, but really there were not any other U.S.-facing sites that had these. The rest had left the U.S. market. So he concentrated on full tilt, and uh, he only had a few people from his stable continuing to play. So could he continue to print money with just full tilt? Or was it going to get tougher for him? Well, unfortunately for Mr. Raitson, it was a lot more challenging than expected, and for reasons that he never pictured. Let's deviate again. You may so you may kind of have an idea where I'm going with this Raitson story, but let's go to another tangent here, which will all tie in together as we finish the story. Mike Thorpe is known as Crazy Mike. Mike sometimes listens to this show, by the way. He may be listening to the segment. I didn't tell him about it, but he may be listening. If so, hi, Mike. Mike Thorpe is and was a very eccentric guy. Now, he wasn't weird-looking. He was a normal-looking young man in his mid-20s at that point in uh, 2007. He had a military background. He was loud, he was blunt, and he was often rudely forward, asking you intrusive questions and making blunt comments, which many would consider inappropriate. Not like sexual comments, but he'd uh, just make blunt comments about you or about or ask you intrusive questions that uh, were kind of uncomfortable. He appeared on the poker scene around 2005 or 2006. People know him today as Crazy Mike, and in fact, you could probably find him playing at Resorts World. He runs a game called Crazy Mike's Game at Resorts World, which is a high-stakes mix game, so he is still around. He also had certain obsessions. He was very obsessive about certain things. One of the obsessions I became aware of first was his obsession with Pepsi. In fact, my first encounter with him was on Cake Poker, which was then a small site, and his name on Cake Poker was actually I Love Pepsi. (laughs) 
In some cases, he actually paid floor men in poker rooms to get Pepsi into the room, even if there was no Pepsi being served by the casino. Even if the casino had a contract with Coke to only serve Coke, he would bribe floor men to either go out and buy Pepsi from the store and serve it to him, or to have someone go do that and bring it to him. So he actually had Pepsi delivered to him in the poker room that he'd pay extra money to get, often a lot of money to go get, because he was so obsessed with Pepsi and would not touch Coke. That's an example of his obsessiveness. When he would play live poker, he would often scream out a yelp, which I called the hyena yelp, and that name actually caught on. It really sounded like a hyena. Uh, So whenever he'd win a pot, not every single time, but when he'd win a pot and be kind of excited about it, he'd go, so you'd be playing in a quiet poker room, and you'd hear that, I'm not even doing a good imitation of it right now, but you'd hear this, in a quiet poker room, he go, what the hell is this? And it's just him yelling out when he's winning a pot. And it's especially loud if you're at his table. People are kind of startled by it. Eventually, enough people complained to where the hyena yelp was banned from most rooms, including the World Series of Poker. He was told he would be uh, thrown out if he continued it. So the hyena yelp kind of died. Mike loved heads-up poker. After only taking a short time to hone his heads-up skills, he started challenging just about everybody to play Limit Hold'em. He excluded a few people like Joe Cassidy and others that were known to be heads-up crushers at the time, but uh, just about everybody else he said he would play. At first, everyone assumed he had to be a fish, but uh, even though his heads-up style was unusual, he was actually fairly good and people realized it. He wasn't great, but he was fairly good and people realized there wasn't a lot of value playing him. So once people realized that he didn't get a whole lot of takers and the few people who were willing to play him were ones that uh, he said he didn't want to play in the first place. However, that was not the only reason people were avoiding playing him. See, he had another obsession that he called ethics. Now, on the surface, that would be great. Like, who wouldn't want to have a guy in poker with ethics, right? Well, unfortunately, his ethics were his own personal ethics, which often didn't correspond with societal or poker ethics. And if he felt something was a matter of, quote, ethics, he would get very obsessive about it and very difficult about it. Now, one of his more irritating quirks having to do with ethics came in the matter of hitting and running, which you'd think would have really made him hate Poker Girl, which kind of did, but that wasn't the only reason he hated her, which we'll get shortly. But if Mike was down in a heads-up match, no matter how long he was playing that opponent, he would accuse them of hitting and running if they left at any point while he was still down. (laughs) You could have a 30-hour session with Mike heads-up, and if you say at the end of the 30 hours, you know what, Mike, I'm getting real tired, we've played for 30 hours, I'm going to play 30 more minutes and leave, he would literally argue, come on, man, you're, you're hitting and running? What are you doing? Why are you hitting and running me? That's not fair. That's not ethical. People got annoyed by this. No matter how long they'd play him, even if they gave him a sufficient warning they were going to leave in such and such amount of time, never good enough. Always, quote, hit and run. Unless he was winning, then he's okay if you leave. This also gave rise to him demanding heads-up freeze-out matches where each person would sit with a preset amount of money, usually like 10K, and then play until it was completely gone on one side. So some people took him up on these matches, but laughably, he would still accuse them of hitting and running when they would beat him in a 10k freeze out and then refuse an immediate rematch. (laughs) So he was a very difficult guy in a lot of different ways. However, 
The best-known ethics-related quirk of his at the time was his quest to get rid of online poker bots. He created a website called DestroyTheBots.com. If you try to go to DestroyTheBots.com today, you will find it does not exist. It's long gone. However, you can go to Archive.org and find it there. In fact, I linked it in that thread I'm talking about on Poker Fraud Alert in the Poker Community Discussion thread. You can click on my link to DestroyTheBots.com and see an old version of it from 2006. The website simply consisted of a mission statement that it wants to get rid of all bots in online poker, and he listed all suspected poker bots to his knowledge that he had discovered across the many U.S.-facing online poker sites at the time. This is before the UIGEA, so there were a lot of sites to choose from. Mike became an anti-bot activist, and what was the poker community's reaction to this? Do you think that they were happy about this, unhappy about this? It was actually mixed. On one hand, people were aware, or they were aware thanks to him, that there were a lot of bots in poker, especially heads-up poker, and that Mike's activism in raising visibility to the issue and listing the bots for people to watch out for was a good thing. And I'll agree with that. However, some were skeptical of his methods and thought that he was too quick on the draw, that he would accuse anyone who would beat him in a match of being a bot, and he was libeling and slandering a lot of people who were legitimately playing and not using a bot just because he didn't like them or he had lost to them. So this was causing headaches for a lot of people. At the same time, he did really catch many actual bots, and some of these were banned from poker sites after he called them out. So he did do a good thing in that way. And some of these bots were not even previously suspected or publicized as bots by others that Mike really figured it out on his own. And his exposure helped get those accounts terminated. So overall, thinking back to the whole thing, I I believe his anti-bot quest was likely a net positive for poker, but it also had a lot of collateral damage to some people who didn't deserve it. Anyway, one room which did ignore Mike was poker room. See, there were certain online poker rooms which took Mike's word as gospel. And the second he'd accuse a bot, or accuse someone of being a bot they would start investigating very aggressively. Other rooms just thought he was a crackpot and wanted nothing to do with him and ignored any report he made. So Poker Room was one of those, one of the latter that just did not believe him. So this is what Mike wrote on his site, DestroyTheBots.com, in June of 2006 about Poker Room. Quote, This site has many bots. Support does not care about bots. Bots in most limit hold'em games, both low and high limit. Well, he was actually correct about this. Poker Room was indeed overrun with bots, and the room did not care. Mike even posted a list of these bots on Poker Room, as he did for all the sites. And believe it or not, he actually missed some. I looked at his list just yesterday, and I noticed that there were some bots there he didn't list. Some ones I knew were bots, but uh, somehow Mike didn't catch them. But I did notice some of the names that I had remembered from back then that were indeed bots. So Mike was at least uh, identifying a lot of legitimate bots. Or shall I say illegitimate bots, because they shouldn't have been there. Botting in online poker was and always is and always has been against the rules because it's not fair to the human players. Bots can beat human players because they don't get tired, they don't make mistakes, they have no emotion, and they have perfect memory. So it's not fair to human beings who have all these natural weaknesses being human. Mike's quest to destroy the bots became 
a lot easier and more focused once a lot of sites were forced out of the U.S. market. See, he only cared about the market he could play in, which was the U.S. market. So once Poker Room and most of these others, which had these heads-up limit hold'em tables where, where the bots loved to be, uh, once those were out of the U.S. market, then he stopped worrying about them. In fact, a lot of the bots disappeared because they were U.S.-based. So he set his sights in the one place where it was still easy to find heads-up limit hold'em action. Full tilt. And that's where he finally scored three of his highest-profile bot kills of all time. Hmm, I bet you're starting to suspect which accounts he killed, aren't you? So, Mike was known on 2 Plus 2 as Mr. Gatorade. I don't know why, maybe because he loved Gatorade 2 in addition to Pepsi, but whatever. He got to be known in the 2 Plus 2 forum community as Mr. Gatorade. In May of 2007... He brought the public's attention to a suspected bot named Beat Me One. He wrote, I hate bots. If you want to watch a good limit bot, watch Beat Me One that will only play 5100 or 100200. I am updating my site as we speak, and it's getting a major upgrade about the bots on all four big sites. Shortly after this, Mike gave a hint of what was to come. So apparently he had somebody's ear at full tilt. And apparently even though he was questioning of Full Tilt's motivation, he was praising them for starting to take bots more seriously. He wrote, Full Tilt, when asked, said they would investigate, and they did, and for months, and magically right there before the Full Tilt interview with the media, all bots on the list and some other suspected bots not on the list were subsequently found to be using bots and were destroyed. More to come on this on my site in a couple of weeks, as there are still ends that need to be tied up. Full Tilt did well in getting rid of these guys for the fairness of the games and not to allow the negative attention that the bots got on there. 2 plus 2 is one thing, but the national media is another. Great things are about to happen with the bots, and I am excited. You will be excited too, unless you are a bot. So Mike was saying in May of 2007, early May 2007, that Full Tilt has finally been getting rid of bots because they're starting to get national media attention and that he's been pushing the bot thing and they don't want to look bad. So that's what's finally spurred them into action. So while he didn't like their motivation, he's happy that they are doing something finally, regardless of the motivation being selfish. But he said, there's a lot more that's going to happen and that stay tuned, that you're going to be very happy. It's going to be very exciting when you see what happens and you'll be happy when you see it unless you're a bot. This ominous warning to the bots out there is that something big is about to happen and you're going to be happy. Well, Mike was not posturing. He had inside information from Full Tilt that the hammer was about to fall. And the hammer was about to fall on one of his biggest suspected bots as far as, uh, when I say biggest, I mean like best. Like he really thought this is the best bot he had encountered. Beat Me One. Beat Me One had their account terminated and their $70,899 balance was confiscated and distributed to past opponents. Beat Me One tried several tactics to get this reversed, but failed. They tried uh, emailing back and forth with support, got nowhere, and uh, they even tried to contact the corrupt Kawanaki Gaming Commission that was overseeing Full Tilt and got zero resolution, which is not surprising. So they were just banned and their money confiscated and were told decision is final beat me one out of options what do you think they went to go do of course they took their case to two plus two just as poker girl had except this was before poker girl got panned this was in may of 2007 and this was uh before poker girl got banned poker girl got banned 
I think, in late September. So Beat Me One pled their case on 2 Plus 2, and they accused Full Tilt of blinding, blindingly acting on Mike's accusations without providing any proof that actual cheating had taken place. Basically, they just said they took Mike's word for it and did a BS investigation and banned them. Beat Me One claimed that their name was Lisa and that they had not done anything wrong. And they, in fact, they posted a number of these emails they had back and forth with the, quote, collusion investigator who closed their account at Full Tilt. Beat Me One wrote, I've been playing at Full Tilt ever since the majority of poker sites closed to U.S. players. For a while, Mr. Gatorade, that is Mike, has been posting on 2 plus 2 and on his site, endlessly saying that I'm a bot and encouraging others to complain to Full Tilt. I do not use software to help me play, and in fact, do not even use Poker Track or any other external aid. I de- develop my game through years of hard work. I got tired of Gatorade slander a while ago and challenged Gatorade to a live match, but he never responded to my email. I'm not a bot. Full Tilt recently barred me and confiscated my money. They won't have a conversation with me. They just keep telling me the equivalent of black is white and up is down for the, so for the sake of decency, and all that is good, uh, and just so they may steal my money. You can read for yourself the proof they cite below. I played strictly heads up on full tilt. Some of the winning players who frequent this site might be happy to have me out of their way, but you should consider this. When I'm out of his way and he can't beat you, then you will be a bot, and the weaklings at full tilt will listen to Mr. Gatorade and determine that you're a cheat because the real definition of bot is anyone that Mr. Gatorade can't beat. McCarthyism is alive and well on 2 plus 2. Now, I don't know if this person was meaning it's alive and well on full tilt or on 2 plus 2. I'm not sure. They wrote 2 plus 2, but I don't know if they mean 2 plus 2 because they were bringing this to 2 plus 2. For Full Tilt to claim that they are confiscating my money to compensate the victims is ludicrous. I am the victim. My reputation and livelihood are destroyed. Full Tilt has profited over 7K and 70K, and Mr. Gatorade will profit from easier games conveniently. His campaign put Full Tilt into a game they cannot win. They either bar the players Mr. Gatorade wants gone, or they succumb to his threats of attacking them through media. They chose the easy way out. If the group wants to preserve the game, I suggest that you folks tell Full Tilt that they need proof of wrongdoing before they bar a player and steal her money. And that, quote, in order to protect the integrity of future bot investigations, we will not be releasing the details of the investigation is not good enough to confiscate a player's money. Finally, I wish to offer a challenge to Mr. Gatorade. I will play you live 200-400 heads up at the bike until one of us loses or any other reasonable format you may suggest. Or alternatively, since you seem intent on destroying my name on 2 plus 2, we can do the following. I will play you and one other player uh, you choose online simultaneously. That way, 2 plus 2ers can watch the action. I will pay to fly to a representative uh, to fly a representative from each of you to my location to watch me play so you can be assured I'm human. Put your money where your mouth is. So anyway, that's a pretty strong post. And... Here's one of the emails from Jeremy E., the collusion investigator. Hello, Beat Me One. Once again, the evidence we have against you is substantial and our decision is final. Your account will not be reopened, nor will your balance be refunded. This case is closed and not open for debate. If you wish to further pursue this matter, you can contact the Kawanaki Gaming Commission at this link. I have had many discussions with our poker security manager regarding this case, and we are of a single mind on this issue. So, Full Tilt seemed really, really certain that beat me one, who said her name is Lisa, was botting and brought this to 2 plus 2 and posted some of the back and forth with support. It also shows that 70899 was being taken out of the account, which 
it was. So almost 71K was confiscated from Beat Me One over this. This was posted on June 1st, 2007. And really, Beat Me One did not get very far with this as far as sympathy. People were immediately skeptical. People were immediately thinking that this was a bot who actually was banned for botting and now is whining to 2 plus 2 because they didn't get their way and they didn't get out of it. Death Donkey, whose real name is Chris, Chris Vitch, he still plays, good player. He's won a bracelet before. He goes pretty far back in poker, and he was an avid 2 plus 2 poster at that point. He already was familiar with Beat Me 1, and he was already one of the people discussing her in a previous thread prior to this. He said, if I were innocent, I'd come here and say exactly what you're saying now. But if I were guilty, I'd say the same thing. So for 70K, I'd make them prove it, you know? Why don't you address some of the allegations from that other thread? How is it that you played hundreds of thousands of hands heads up on full tilt and never played a single one against the other regulars mentioned in that thread? Are you surprised that your stats line up so closely with a few players in that same game? Do you have some reason for refusing to chat? If someone's accusing you of being a bot in the chat, it seems like you'd at least say, no, I'm not one. Do you play long marathon sessions waiting for someone to come along for hours at a time near your computer all the time so you can auto post and immediately begin playing? I don't think it would be tough to get some data miners to show you've played some ridiculously long sessions. Nobody's saying you can't be a good player and be using a bot too. Hell, maybe you program the strategy for it. This is a tough spot because Full Tilt can't or won't supply evidence and you aren't doing a good job of it yourself. Well, Death Donkey brought up a lot of good points here. In this other thread, people had pointed out some peculiar things about Beat Me One. Beat Me One's strategy was very similar to other winning heads-up players on the site. Beat Me One would never chat with anybody. Whenever people would say, hey, are you a bot? I heard you're a bot. Can you answer me? Beat Me One would never answer. Beat Me One was always right there at the computer to begin a heads-up session. So Beat Me One would be waiting heads-up, and the second you would sit with Beat Me One, Beat Me One would be right there to play. Wouldn't take a minute to get to the computer and she'd hear it beep. She'd be right there as if she's sitting there waiting for you to sit with her, even if hours would pass with no one sitting with her. Now, it's possible she happens to be just on the computer all day, but it's also possible that there's something automated playing for her. So he brought that up as well, that that was observed. He also mentioned that she played some ridiculously long sessions and just never seemed to get tired. So he said that if someone were to put all of this together, what everybody noticed they observed in that other thread before she ever got banned, that a lot of these things could probably be proven, not just anecdotally from people's observations. So he said that she wouldn't answer these questions. She won't address these allegations. He, he didn't have a lot of trust for her here. He thought this story was uh, very questionable. And he said she's not really doing a very good job proving that she didn't do anything wrong. And she went back and forth with people in this thread, but was never providing anything that was really proving much. It was always, oh, here, I'll, I'll show up and pay, play people heads up and prove I'm good. Well, again, as Death Donkey said, she could be good. Maybe, maybe she's a great player, but she's also using a bot that's even better than she is. So just because you're a good player doesn't mean you're not also using a bot. And she still hasn't proven she's a good player. She's just claiming she will, but so far uh, uh, no one's taken her up on it and she hasn't done it. And no one knew who she was. There was a lot of suspicious stuff here. And, and why was Full Tilt so positive about this? 
So she wasn't doing very well in this thread, and uh, as it went, uh, she didn't get a lot of sympathy. It ran 27 pages. By the end, the general conclusion was that she seemed shady. She hadn't proven her case. Full Tilt escaped the whole thing smelling like roses. And Mr. Gatorade had the first large notch in his bot-killing belt. He had gotten other bots terminated before, but Beat Me One was the best-known bot that he ever got shut down, and he savored the moment. Rob Wrightson, remember him? The one with that stable using those clocks? He just suffered his first real defeat in the Heads Up Limit Hold'em realm. Remember his star player, Red Guard One, the one who didn't need the clocks? That uh, Chinese immigrant who didn't speak very good English? Well, her real name was Lisa Arnold. Hmm, Lisa Arnold. Who else is named Lisa? Oh, yeah, Beat Me One! Ha ha! It's all starting to tie together now, isn't it? So, Lisa, Beat Me One, Red Guard One, all the same person. In fact, Red Guard One also played as Red Gur Three. Not Red Guard 3, but Red Gur 3, almost the identical name, on Poker Room. I remember Red Gur 3 killing it on Poker Room in the heads-up tables. That was all that same Lisa person. This person was playing for Rob Wrightson. Rob Wrightson was bankrolling the entire operation. Everybody playing in Rob Wrightson's stable was playing with his money and getting a percentage of the winnings. He was staking all of them. And they were all using his system. All of them using the clocks, except for Lisa. Beat Me 1, a.k.a. Red Guard 1, a.k.a. Red Gur 3, and whatever other name she used. Apparently he felt that Lisa was something special, and that she was the best player of his stable by far, which is why he let her play without that clock, at least according to him. Now, As you can imagine, Lisa didn't speak or write English particularly well, because she had only come to the country about a decade prior. Now, when I just read you those posts from Beat Me on 2 Plus 2, did this sound like it was written by a non-native English speaker? No, of course not. sounded like a person who was born in the U.S. In fact, they even talked about McCarthyism. Could you see someone who just came to the U.S. from China, barely knowing English a decade ago, knowing very little about U.S. culture, talking about McCarthyism 10 years later? Of course not. So those posts were highly unlikely to have been written by Beat Me One. They were almost surely written by a native English speaker. If you go back and read them, you'll see that. The entire tone of the post, it's definitely by someone who was born speaking English. It wasn't someone who just came to the country when they were an adult and barely knew a word of English. I think it was probably Wrightson writing those posts, but I'll never know. Anyway, he still had an ace up his sleeve, though. Beat Me 1 got 71K confiscated. Beat Me 1 did not win in the 2 plus 2 court of public opinion, but he still had some accounts. He still had some people in his stable that Full Tilt had not caught yet. Some years prior to this, and we're talking now about 2007, Wrightson was eating at Arnie Morton's Steakhouse in Beverly Hills. Arnie Morton's Steakhouse has gone downhill 
I have had some disappointing experiences there for the last 15 years or so, and I finally gave up on them. But I remember the first time I went to Morton's in the 90s. They're like a small chain of steakhouses. I think it originally started in Chicago, but they have a famous location in Beverly Hills as well. And that was the first one I went to. And it was really, really good. I, it was the best steakhouse I had ever gone to. the best steak I'd ever tasted. The potato was fluffy and really, really good. Everything was great there. The service was great. I was very, very happy with Arnie Morton Steakhouse when I went there for the first time in the 90s. And for several years, that was my go-to steakhouse. And then I started noticing uh, mistakes, and the steaks weren't that good anymore, and the service was uh, a combination of uh, rude and confused. And I said, this is not the same Artie Morton's I used to know, and I quit going there. Anyway, whenever this was that Wrightson was going there, this is in the period we were still good, And he was served by an attractive woman with an unusual name, Larry. Hmm. It's all tying together. Larry made conversation with him, and uh, he told her at some point that he was a professional gambler. They struck up a friendship, and he decided that Larry would be a good candidate to join his team of players. Now, Larry was not the natural that Lisa was. Larry relied more upon Wrighton's clock and his tools Larry also had a bit of a tilt problem, an emotion problem, where whenever she would uh, lose a hand, take a bad beat, take a few bad beats, she would go off and chat. She would not play as well. She wouldn't follow what the assistant's clock were telling her to do. And she chatted a bit too much and was a bit too obnoxious, and it affected her play. This is the opposite of Lisa who had the opposite, you know, Lisa wouldn't chat at all. So she chatted too much and let it affect her. So she played with two rules. Number one, leave the match when you're starting to get emotional, because then you're not going to follow the script of how to play and you're going to mess up and you're going to be negative expectation and you're going to get clobbered. So if you get emotional, if you start to feel tilty, get up and leave until you calm down. And number two, if someone who can beat you sits with you, quit them. So this actually helped confuse Larry's opponents. Remember Larry is Poker Girl, Poker Girl Z. It confused her opponents, such as myself. I knew she was good, but I also knew she had a tilt problem and tended to get very emotional. That's why I played her. Because when she wasn't playing her A game, she wasn't good. And all I had to do was put a few beats on her and she'd flip out. Provided she stayed with me, she would chunk off money. But when the body accusations came out, I couldn't quite understand it because I remember she chatted. She was emotional. She was tilty. Taking bad beats would affect her play. That's not the way a bot would be. But at the same time, never something never sat quite right with me about the whole thing, about how nobody knew her, about how she just appeared at high stakes without previously been seen at low stakes, about how this attractive woman just became this heads-up crusher without ever being seen anywhere on the way up. So once uh, Mr. Gatorade and Full Tilt laid waste to that Beat Me One account, Wrightson needed uh, another player. He already had Poker Girl playing, but Larry had a boyfriend named Greg Amatoy. 
O-M-O-T-O-Y. Now, Greg was not much of a poker player, but he didn't have to be. He just needed to learn how to use Wrightson's clocks and could be a winner. So the Grego777 account was born, and uh, Wrightson was back in business with two, maybe more than two, players in full tilt. Unfortunately, the celebration didn't last long. In October 2007, or maybe September 2007, Full Tilt banned the Poker Girl Z account with about $47,000 in it, and very shortly after that, banned Grego777 with about $33,000 for a total of about $80,000 that was confiscated. Poker Girl then showed up to 2 plus 2, just as Beat Me 1 had back in early June. And Poker Girl made a post just like Beat Beat Me 1, claiming that she was victimized by false accusations. Now, Poker Girl was probably posting as herself, because she was a native English speaker, and she was able to write well enough to where she could explain her situation. She didn't need rights in or anyone else to to, uh, compose these posts for her. So I believe it was her writing these posts. A few months later, she even made a second thread, which more focused upon vilifying Mr. Gatorade for the whole thing. But neither thread brought her much sympathy, especially because she avoided mentioning the Grego account at first until I brought it up. And then once she admitted she used that account sometimes, that really killed any sympathy that was left for her. But I was still very curious. I knew for a long time she was using the Grego account. That's why I questioned her about it. But I I never worried too much about the Grego account because just like she mentioned, I noticed they were never at the same table, never in the same tournament. They didn't even play tournaments. So they really weren't colluding in any way. They just She was just using two different accounts to play heads up to get more action. And I'd seen others do it on there. So I said, okay, well, this isn't a huge deal. So I was really wondering, was she actually guilty of botting? If it's just a multi-accounting thing, I, I wouldn't have agreed about this uh, money confiscation. But if she was botting, then definitely confiscating the money was the correct thing to do. So... I agreed to meet with her. Something always nagged me about the whole story, and I I wanted to know the truth. That's why I had agreed to meet with her. Now, notice at our 2009 lunch, which I described earlier in the segment, notice that she didn't mention anything about Rob Wrightson, didn't mention being part of a stable, didn't mention anything about Beat Me One, other than that she met her once in a party and that she barely knew her. Hmm. Well... I think you're starting to understand what was going on. But you might wonder, how do I know all of this now? Who told me about all this stuff? How did I just find this out back in July of 2021 after all these years? Did I perhaps have a source at full tilt? Did I get to speak to a former friend of Poker Girls? Or maybe a former associate of Rob Wrighton's? No, none of those things. It was all right there in plain sight for anyone interested enough to look into it and put two and two together. Now, it wasn't super easy to find, but it's not exactly hidden either. Cigar Aficionado did an article about Casino Advantage player Rob Wrightson in the 1990s. I think like in 97 or something. So about 20 years later, they did a follow-up piece on Rob Wrightson and about his poker play or shall I say his poker stable. I recommend that you read this follow-up piece. 
I don't think you can even read the original anymore. I never saw the original either. But the important thing is the follow-up piece in 2017, and I linked that in the Poker Fraud Alert thread. But the follow-up piece explained a lot and allowed me to add all of the parts of this story together to come to a conclusion. It was very easy for me to fill the blanks at that point. There was a small Chinese woman described in the article as Red Guard 1, Lisa Arnold, and obviously she was the same person, Lisa, on the Beat Me 1 account and Red Guard 3. The 20 cardboard clock method of playing was presumably used by Poker Girl, who was a former steakhouse waitress with little to no poker skill and just befriended Wrightson and he thought he could use her for the stable because she seemed bright enough. She was basically just clicking buttons. Now, what the article dances around, and the article dances around describing Poker Girl's skill. It talked about how she won all this money, but it lavished praise upon Lisa of being such a great player who learned from the bot and didn't need this clock, but it never said the same about Poker Girl. It talked about how he developed these clocks so, quote, anyone could play his strategy and win, at least against okay-ish opponents or worse. It strongly implied that Poker Girl was one of those anyones. Didn't say it specifically, but you could kind of infer that from the article. In this article, they described a 2017 meetup between Lisa, Rob Wrightson, some other associates involved with uh, designing this bot, but Poker Girl herself was not present. Larry Kennedy was not present at this meetup in 2017 that the author wrote about. He was there too, the author. Uh, however, the Poker Girl screen name was used when they created a new account on an online poker site and played microstakes with Lisa attempting to coach the author of this article on how to become a winning Limit Hold'em Heads Up player. Now, I have a problem with some of Wrightson's claims, including the whole clock itself. I bet you're wondering about the clock, too. Is it really possible to have made a series of 20 cardboard clocks that one can refer to to advise you to play winning heads-up limit hold'em against anyone but the best players? As a limit hold'em expert myself, who has played the game now for 20 years, who has been winning at Limit Hold'em since 2003. The first two years, I was about break-even. Since 2003, I've won every single year in Limit Hold'em, including against some very tough opponents. I've played a lot of heads-up. I would be shocked if that 20-clock scheme could yield a player who is good enough to beat fairly good heads-up opponents. I don't believe it. It's just too simple. Could it beat fish? Yes, because fish make egregious mistakes that uh, just like a a fairly simple strategy uh, could teach someone to beat if they only played big fish. But anyone who is a good player, a fairly good player, should be able to beat a novice who's just clicking buttons according to those clocks. And yet, Poker Girl was killing it. Not as much as beat me one. But Poker Girl was winning and winning consistently, and I saw it, and others saw it. So could she do that just by using these clocks? I don't think so. In fact, I played a number of hands against Poker Girl when you add it all together, and I was a loser against her. I could not consistently beat Poker Girl. And I found her to be pretty tough, other than when she was tilting, where it looked like she went off script and just uh, played her own tilty way. Then it looked like that 
Poker Girl was playing a very tough style that I couldn't beat. I don't believe 20 clocks could beat me. Also, remember, in this article, it said that Wrightson had 100 people playing in his stable at the peak. That would mean he had to construct 2,000 clock devices because it was 20 clocks for each person for his 100 deep stable. Now, do you think he really made 2,000 cardboard clocks rather than just giving everybody a bot to advise them or play for them? What do you think? Keep in mind, this is the same guy who admitted in the article that he wore computers under his clothes to help him play blackjack. So this same guy who admitted he will do anything to get an edge over the casino somehow was super ethical when it came to poker and just wouldn't bot. He made sure just to let them uh, use these cardboard clocks, which technically were within the rules, he thought. Now, he claims that he actually mailed in the 20 clocks to full tilt to show them what his stable was doing after these people got their money confiscated as a last-ditch attempt. He said, hey, I'm their coach. I gave them these clocks. This is how they learned to play. So this is what they were doing. There was no botting going on. Full Tilt said, you got to be fucking kidding me. That's not what was happening. They didn't believe the story for a second. So he claims they just wouldn't believe him when that's what's really happening. I have to say, I don't think the clocks were being used. Now, do I think he mailed in the clocks to Full Tilt? Yes, My guess, and again, this is just a guess. I have no knowledge of this part. But my guess is that there was botting going on. My guess is that there was a bot that was advising them and that that, uh, Poker Girl would sometimes go off script of what the bot was telling her to do because she would get too emotional. And that would be why she would quit me. She wasn't trying to be a bitch and hit and run me. She had promised when she's playing with Wrightson's money. The article does say that they were all playing with his money. She's playing with another person's money who's backing her. And she had a problem with going off script and playing terribly after she'd take a beat. So he probably told her, as soon as you feel yourself getting emotional, you have to agree to quit. So she would quit. She'd run to another table and I'd follow her. Then she'd say, shit, I don't want to keep playing this guy because I'm still emotional I don't trust myself, and I promised Rob I'm not going to do this. So she'd sit out again and say, I don't want to play you. I'd say, tough luck, you have to. You only played a few hands and ran off after you beat me for 2500 and we're not going to have this here. You're not going to hit and run me and switch to another table. If you want to hit and run, then leave, is what I told her. You can't hit, run, and then sit at a different table and expect me to respect it. So we'd get in a big argument, and she didn't know what to do because she promised him that she's not going to sit and play while she is emotional, but at the same time, she still wanted to be there in case like a fish sat with her. But she wasn't going to play me in that state, and she promised him that she wouldn't. I don't know this for sure, but that's my theory, and it all fits. It also fits why we had two different poker girls. We had the poker girl who was the heads-up killer, whose style resembled that of a bot, and was very talented at heads-up poker. And then we had the poker girl who was a tilty head case who just played nonsensically. I mean, we had things like where I'd make a flush on the river and and she'd four bet me and then I'd see all she had was top pair the whole way. And I'd go, what the fuck? She had to know I had the flush here. Like, it's obvious limit hold'em. When the flush card hits and when check raises you, you you call there. You You don't three or four bet it. So she would just start hammering it because she'd be so mad that she got bad beat. So that's not the way a bot plays, of course. 
So she must have just gone off script and promised she won't do that. And when she did, she would quit. Obviously, she lied to me about Beat Me One, a.k.a. Lisa. I asked her point blank in person, are you sure you don't know her? Oh, no, no, I don't know her. Yeah, she was at the party. She seemed nice. I don't know anything more about her. Bullshit. That was her stable mate. That was another one of Wrightson's horses. She knew who Beat Me One was for sure. So instead of saying, yeah, I know who it is. I just can't tell you. She just outright lied to me, which kind of pisses me off. I understand why she did. She just didn't want me to know this, but kind of pisses me off. She brings me out there to, quote, tell me the whole truth and then tells me only what uh, she wants me to know that's convenient for her and her lawsuit and her public image. Now, this lawsuit is still continuing. This was filed in '09. It's still open presently. They've actually refiled it a few times in different formats. Uh, there was a class action suit that was filed as recently as 2007 that is still ongoing. This was filed August 14th, 2017. Class action complaint. Larry Kennedy and Greg Amatoy against a whole lot of defendants, some being corporate, including corporations that no longer exist, like Tiltware and Pocket Kings Limited, which is full tilt, and uh, then individuals like Chris Ferguson, Howard Lederer, Ray Batar, Phil Gordon, Andy Block, uh, Phil Ivey, Perry Friedman, John Juanda, Eric Lindgren, Eric Seidel, blah, blah, blah. So that was filed in 2017. They were looking for $900 million in damages for this whole thing. <laughs> wow. Maybe that's where Postle got his idea. This is their third attempt, according to uh, Poker Super agent Brian Ballsbaugh, who broke the news about this refiling of the lawsuit. He said, uh, third try for th- by this plaintiff. So this is still going, this lawsuit. So it surprised me a bit that Wrightson did this interview with Cigar Aficionado, knowing an article was going to be published naming... Larry Kennedy, they named her full, fully there and even talked about the lawsuit a little bit, and naming Lisa Arnold. Now, he probably thought, okay, this is safe because of the clocks. We'll just say she used clocks, but I can read between the lines here. I think that since he admits that he spent a lot of money to have engineers help him develop a heads-up limit hold'em bot that could beat the game, that could beat really tough opponents, but that he used it only as a learning tool... And that this is a guy who is a longtime Casino Advantage player that would do whatever he could to win. And that he actually had a bot that he designed. But, oh, no, 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 they didn't use that bot. They used cardboard clocks. I think it doesn't take a genius to fill in the rest of the blanks why all these accounts were banned for botting and why Full Tilt was so sure about what they had found. So, in my opinion, even though the court case is still open... This case is closed. My judgment, in my mind at least, goes to Full Tilt. And after Full Tilt's egregious theft of the funds that was committed in 2011, and probably before that, I never thought I would ever say that my personal judgment goes to Full Tilt in this one. But yes, in this case, I think Full Tilt did the right thing. My opinion is that they were all using bots, or at least were using bots to advise them, and then they would click the buttons. And I think that the reason this lawsuit is going on for so long is because Wrightson, who seems to have a lot of money 
and has a deep role, probably just on principle is mad about the confiscations and wants the money and keeps pressing. Someone's obviously bankrolling this endless lawsuit. And I don't think it's Poker Girl, who, by the way, is no longer in poker. And somehow, Lisa, remember Lisa Arnold? Somehow we don't see her in poker either. After Beat Me One was banned, we've never seen her again. I haven't seen her on any other poker sites in the last 14 years. If she was such a heads-up crusher, why didn't she continue? There were a number of people who would sit and play heads-up and then just go sit sit out when uh, someone else would sit there with them, like on Poker Stars. So why didn't we see her doing that? Why don't we see her playing anywhere? Why are there no Hendon Mob results for her? Why does nobody know her at Commerce? Why has she just seemed to quit poker 14 years ago after this? I think we all know why. So my personal judgment here goes to Full Tilt Poker. And I was used, or at least attempted to be used, as a pawn in this whole thing. Not a major pawn, but a small pawn, kind of like one of those at the side of the chessboard that you hope maybe gets to the end and can help you uh, checkmate the king. I wouldn't even be surprised if Poker Girl was told to meet with me by Rob, by Rob Wrightson, thinking that they might have an ally here, an unwilling ally that could help uh, convince Full Tilt to change their minds. These are all just guesses on my part. Anyway, if Rob Wrightson or Larry Kennedy or Lisa Arnold or Greg Amatoy, if any of you are hearing this, these were all my deductions from reading the Cigar Aficionado article and from reading everything else that I have in the forums and from my personal experiences on Poker Room and Full Tilt in the 2000s. If I am wrong, then you are welcome to contact me and correct me. I would like to hear from Larry why she lied to me about the situation with Lisa. I haven't read the complaint that uh, any of them of these lawsuits that insist that Larry and Greg didn't use a bot, but I'm very curious now if these complaints had anything in there about being part of Rob Wrightson's stable or that his stable had a bot teaching people how to play right there in the Cigar Aficionado article that names Lisa Arnold and Larry Kennedy right there. So is this known? Is this mentioned in their complaint? Does Full Tilt even know this? Do the individuals being sued even know this? I don't know. But I have a feeling. I've not seen it, but my guess would be that this stuff is not mentioned. But if it's not, it should be. It's very important. So I don't think this lawsuit's ever going to go anywhere. But I think they pretty much gave away the farm right there in that Cigar Aficionado article. I think it doesn't take very much to deduce what was going on there. I think that casts major doubt on their case where you have the one who was backing Larry that he had developed a bot spending a lot of money to do so. It says there that he, quote, spent millions developing it. I don't know if that's true, but uh, he definitely spent a lot of money developing this bot that was used to, quote, teach people how to play. So once you know there's a bot involved in that stable, that pretty much kills the whole case. 
So all this is what I deduced by finding this article. I stumbled upon this article. I wasn't even looking for it. I was I was looking for something else, and I stumbled upon it last month. And I'm like, wow, I remember all this. Wow. So that's who Beat Me One is. That's who Red Girl Three is. Oh, that's that's how this. That's why Poker Girl played like she did. Like it all came together for me. All these things I wondered for all these years. I wasn't actively thinking about it, but there were, every time I think back to it, I would go, "Wow, what what was the case with that? Who? What was Poker Girl's deal?" Like I was always confused by this. I'm not so confused anymore. <laughs> It's funny what you can find when you search the web. But any of you who want to dispute any of this, you're welcome to come on this show, or you're welcome to email me or chat with me or have a telephone call with me and uh, tell me where I'm incorrect and provide me with proof. And I will correct anything I got wrong. Because a lot of this I deduced and put together by just inserting pieces that fit with one another. I won't say I'm 100% right with all this, but I have a feeling I'm not very far off. Did you enjoy that story? I hope you did. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number if you wish to call into this show. Looking at the chat room, CGen said that using devices like computers attached to your clothing... It was not illegal when Rob Wrightson used them. Yeah, I wasn't sure about that. That's why I didn't say that. But uh, you might be right. I'm not sure what year they changed the law about that, that you can't use any kind of uh, device to assist your play. Now, it was always against casino rules. That's why he taped them under his clothes. But against the rules and illegal are two different things. Card counting is against the rules in most casinos, but not illegal. CGen is saying that when Wrightson was using the devices under his clothing that it wasn't illegal. So, okay. Very possible. But still, do you think that he printed 2,000 clocks instead of just letting everybody use that bot he developed? I think we all know that answer. (laughs) Okay, I want to talk about commerce since we talked about a place that Larry did not play. Played a lot of commerce. I've covered this somewhat over the years. I'm going to cover it now, maybe for the last time. Commerce has been the dominant poker room, not only in Los Angeles, but in the world for the last about 19 years. They called themselves the world's biggest poker room, and they were. Not if you count online, but the world's biggest live poker room. And indeed, they were. They had two very large rooms, which ran poker, plus they had an upstairs room, which ran tournaments. They were huge. Their turning point was in 2002, when they constructed a brand new and, frankly, very modern and attractive high-stakes room. Now, when you think of high-stakes rooms, you probably think of like a little room off to the side or elevated a little bit, where you have one or two high-stakes tables and maybe a TV in there. That's what you picture when you think of a high-stakes room in a poker room. What about a very large room? A very large room that uh, can hold, I don't know, 50 tables? A high-stakes room that's bigger than most poker rooms' entire room? But 
all high stakes and middle stakes. One that has gigantic flat screen TVs on the wall. Even back in 02, when flat screen TVs weren't automatic. And I mean, these were gigantic. And they even had the ability to all combine into one giant screen. It was very modern. Even by 2021 standards, it looks modern, even though it was built almost 20 years ago. And the whole thing looked very nice, pretty classy. And it even had a hotel. It had a new hotel that was constructed that was there to support the casino. It was a Crown Plaza Hotel, which is a chain. And it wasn't a luxury hotel, but it was decent. And you could get a nice poker rate there. If you played poker there, you can get a $79 no-tax poker rate to stay there overnight if you're too tired. I think even 69 during the week. So it was a great place to play. And prior to O2, the high-limit action in L.A., was mostly at Hollywood Park. The middle and high stakes limit hold'em action was there. But Hollywood Park had a lot of issues. First of all, they had no hotel, but the bigger issues were the area was really lousy. There were people who were followed home and mugged and sometimes even killed. There were people mugged in the parking lot. The high stakes section was just an elevated area. There was no big high stakes room. It was very inferior to Commerce's new room. Now, Commerce still had their main room, which is older, that was also very large. But now all the middle and high stakes action was in the high stakes room. Now, in 02, that was before Chris Moneymaker won. That was before the WBT was on TV. So we weren't at the poker boom yet. And they still had enough action to where they built that high stakes room. And what action they didn't have yet quickly moved over there. The dominant game at the time was Limit Hold'em. They occasionally ran a no-limit or even pot-limit hold'em game. Remember pot-limit hold'em? They did not have PLO. That was not a big game at the time. Stud still ran there, but it was mostly limit hold'em in the room. In 03, after the poker room, no-limit became a big thing, so the high-stakes no-limit game showed up there as well. They also ran mixed games in the room. Anything that was middle or upper stakes ran in that high limit room. So it was running 1020 no limit and higher. And it was running uh, 2040 limit hold'em and higher. At one point during the poker boom, during the peak of the poker boom, it got so busy in there that even the massive number of tables they had, like 50 or something like tables, whatever it was they had in that room, there was so much action that they could no longer keep the 2040 limit hold'em and 2040 stud in that room. So they actually moved the 2040 limit games out of the middle and high stakes room and moved it into the main room. That's how big things got there. They were making a fortune. They were riding high at Commerce. Now, Commerce was not without its issues. The players behaved very badly at Commerce and nothing was done, especially if they were regulars. The dealers were constantly abused. Other players were abused. Fist fights would occur. Almost fist fights would occur a lot where people looked like they were almost about to trade blows, but it didn't quite happen. It would be uncomfortable to be there because people were always pissed off at commerce. There's a lot of lot of bad behavior at the place and it was tolerated. And if you've been to commerce, you've probably noticed that. You've probably seen that. 
Also, Commerce did not have a very player-friendly attitude. They were pretty rigid with their rules. The rake was high. They pretty much took an attitude of, it's our way or the highway. But that's where all the action was. And they could make the rules and get away with it. There were other rooms in L.A. There was the Hustler. There was the Bike. There was Hawaiian Gardens. There were even others. But Commerce was the dominant room. And of course, Hollywood Park still exists, but they were a shell of their former self. Commerce was the dominant room in L.A. And it stayed that way through the rest of the 2000s and the rest of the 2010s. There were some attempts to try to take Commerce's action. It just never worked. Well, in the late 2010s, the bike made the most concerted attempt that they had done yet. I've discussed that on this show recently. But they appointed hosts to invite people to their new mid-stakes limit hold'em games and mid-stakes mixed games over there, and upper-stakes limit hold'em games and mixed games. And the hosts were given the ability to give these players perks, such as free hotel rooms at the nice new hotel they had just built at the bike. And by the way, the Commerce Crown Plaza had gone downhill a lot. It uh, really was looking a lot older than it actually was. It was now about 15 to 20 years old and looked 30 years old. So the bike had a much nicer hotel. And they empowered these hosts to give people a lot of things that uh, Commerce wouldn't do, and they charged a lesser rake. The bike is only about five miles from Commerce, so they were really competing for the same crowd. And the bike was starting to have some success. But just as the bike was starting to take some of Commerce's action, and just as Commerce was starting to panic and actually cut their rake in half temporarily to compete with the bike, but they called it a rake special, not that they were doing it because they were petrified of losing the action to the bike. Just as it seemed like the bike was going to finally take the action, unfortunately, something happened. And what happened was that the bike started making some of the same mistakes the Commerce did. And the bike started to become rigid. And the bike started to become player unfriendly. And people started saying, what? Well, the whole reason we came over here was because the bike was doing things better than Commerce. But if they're going to be like Commerce light, then screw it. So people started going back to Commerce. So crisis averted, Commerce's game started to get active again, not nearly as active as they were during the peak. They still had a lot of emptiness in the high stakes room. In fact, they had already started to move some of the California games. California games are kind of like these uh, modified casino games that they're allowed to run. They can't run real casino games there, but they moved some of those into the high stakes room because they just were never filling up those tables there and they didn't need them all. But they still had a decent amount of high limit and mid limit action in that room. And some of it started to come back from the bike and the bike's game started to uh, wane somewhat. It still existed, but it was not, it was becoming less of a threat to commerce. Commerce even raised the rake back because they considered the crisis over. But then came early 2020 and you know what happened in early 2020 COVID and all card rooms had to close. Well, when they reopened, Somehow the bike regrouped and made a second attempt to capture that action, and this time it was a success. It was the perfect moment for them to strike. All the rooms had been closed for a while, and Commerce, instead of responding with aggressive moves of their own to keep their business and get it going again, sat by and let it happen. The worst thing they did, and I talked about this before, 
they had very prominently displayed on their website and on their app, effective May 3rd, players' card reprints will now cost $5. (laughs) What? That's the way you get people back after the shutdown? After people haven't been playing live poker for a long time, you finally reopen and your marketing ploy is to tell everyone to come down and pay $5 to get their player's card back? They, They seriously did this. Of all times to charge people for reprints is when they haven't been there for a year because of freaking COVID. So I guess they got annoyed that people were losing their cards and they decided they're going to charge them for it. Like That's one way to really drive everybody out. So they, they had morons there that were in charge. And as a result, all the action moved to the bike. So I actually called up Commerce in June and I asked what limit holding games you have going. They said, oh, we have a 4.8, 8.16, and that's all we have. What, what, hold on, what? You don't have above 816? What about 2040, 4080? No, no, no. We, we have an interest list, but I don't think it's going to go tonight. Come on the weekends, maybe it'll go. I go, wait a minute. You used to have this like 24-7. Yeah, well, since the pandemic and since the reopening, it's been a little bit slow. I go, okay. Then I call the bike. I go, uh, hey, what do you guys have running right now in Limit Hold'em? Oh, yeah, we have uh, two 2040s, two 4080s, one 6120, and one 200-400. I go, what? You have all that? Yeah. So while bike had all that, commerce had nothing. Nothing above 816 limit hold'em. Huh. So I reported on that previously, but we have a new update on the whole thing. According to someone who went to commerce and posted on 2 plus 2, commerce has finally thrown in the towel and they have shut down the high limit room to poker. Remember I mentioned the California games we're taking up some of the room in 2019 and 2020. Now they take up all of the room. They've been moved there. And there's no more poker in the famous commerce high limit room. Not one poker table runs there, according to this person on 2 plus 2, who I believe. He claims that they moved what little remains of the middle stakes games, like the 2040 limit hold'em, to the ugly main room and basically conceded the permanent loss of that action to the bike. Wow. That's just crazy for me to think about. During the boom, they had 2040 in the main room, but because there wasn't room for it. Now they had 2040 in the main room because there's no more middle or high stakes games other than that. What the hell? In the meantime, the bike is thriving. The hustler's thriving. Even Hollywood Park is apparently doing better with more action. And by the way, it's not just limit hold'em. No limit hold'em. Apparently, the uh, middle and upper stakes action has also vanished from commerce. So commerce is now really just that main room, which pretty much has lower stakes. And then they squeeze some middle stakes in that main room. And then they have the California games in the high limit room. And that's it. So they're pretty much conceding that it's over. Now, maybe that was just a temporary situation, but I don't think so. I was shocked when I made that phone call, and then I saw the report on 2 plus 2 just about a week ago. So that was a very rapid descent to the bottom. And while Rome was burning, these morons were printing big notices on their website that they're charging $5 for replacement cards. Can you imagine how dumb? So now there's really no dominant LA poker room. I'm hearing that there's plenty of mid-stakes games running at Hustler. I'm hearing that the bike is still doing quite well. I'm hearing that Hollywood Park is having a rebound. And that they may have more of a rebound when uh, 
There's that uh, new stadium built nearby. Hollywood Park may have a future. Everything old becomes new again, perhaps, in the 2020s. Who knows? This may be just something that spreads around all the rooms and commerce is actually the odd man out. So what was once dominant will now be the secondary option to several other competitors that always lag behind. Really weird. And it'd be even weirder if the new football stadium brings it full circle and Hollywood Park takes over as the dominant room in L.A. So that would mean that Hollywood Park ruled the 90s, Commerce knocked them off their perch in the zeros and tens, and then Hollywood Park took their place back on the perch in the 20s. Wouldn't that be weird? Hasn't happened yet, but it's possible. In the meantime, there's just no true leader in L.A. poker anymore. Commerce has been dethroned, and it's their fault. This didn't have to happen. But this is what happens when you become too complacent and too customer unfriendly, when you have hungry competition looking to take over. Especially when you have something like a pandemic interrupting the business, and you've got to restart, and you've got to bring people back in. And your competitors work very hard to bring people there, and you work very hard to drive them away. It is time for the next segment. It is time for something we haven't done in a while. Mojave Desert and Las Vegas History. Yes, Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. We're going to bring it back for this show. And we're actually going to talk about something that is not in the Mojave Desert or Las Vegas. (laughs) That's a great way to bring it back, right? To bring back a topic that's about neither, but yet is part of this segment. But it's close enough. It's in the Southern California desert. I'm not even sure which desert it's part of, technically. But I believe the Mojave Desert technically ends a little bit north of where we're going to talk about. So I'm going to be accurate here and say that this is not the Mojave Desert, but it might as well be. This is in the desert off the 10 freeway as you head toward Phoenix from L.A. We're going to talk about Desert Center, California. And you may wonder, why would this be something we would cover on this show? Well, whenever I find an interesting story about a small desert town that's in the Southern California or Southern Nevada desert, I will cover it on this show because it's interesting. And Desert Center happens to be in the center between Los Angeles and Phoenix. So it's 197 miles to Phoenix from Desert Center, and it's 175 miles from L.A. to Desert Center. Desert Center has a 100-year history, and it's in the news presently because the city was actually bought by somebody, and for not very much money. The town of Desert Center was recently purchased for... One million dollars. Well, not that cheap, but not that much more. $6.25 million bought the town of Desert City. Not a building or a business in Desert Center, but actually bought Desert Center. 
So why would an entire town sell for a little more than $6 million? Well, to know that, you must know the history of Desert Center, which I'm going to tell you. And interestingly enough, it actually has a connection to something that's very well known today, and in fact, maybe something substantially in your life today, which you would never attribute to Desert Center. So it's not just a small town that has a quirky history. So I found the whole story of Desert Center to be very interesting. And that's why I decided to cover it on this show. Desert Center is really in the middle of nowhere. You probably have passed by Desert Center. I have, if you've driven between LA and Phoenix on Route 10. But you probably haven't stopped there. And when you pass through it, you probably noticed that you had not passed through anything of any consequence in quite some time. And that has really always been the case. In 1915, a man named Stephen Ragsdale was driving through the area and uh, his car broke down. Now, 1915 cars obviously were not very reliable, so that wasn't a surprise. But he broke down over there, and he decided that he would actually like to come back to that area and settle down and start a business there because he felt he felt that the area really needed something like a rest stop. Even in uh, those days, in the mid to late 1910s and early 1920s, there were still vehicles traveling back and forth, and he felt that uh, there was a stretch where there was uh, nobody there and nowhere to stop, and so he felt that a rest stop could be something that would be lucrative over there. So he moved his family to where he had broken down in uh, Desert Center, which... uh, There was a little thing there, but really uh, there was no town actually there. Like there was some guy who had a small business that had like a well over there, but that was about it. So he decided to actually make a rest stop over there. In fact, he uh, used a former uh, Model T truck to, he modified into a tow car. So he had a, uh, a tow truck kind of. And uh, he had a 55-gallon drum of gas that he would pump by hand. So it's not like a gas pump that you'd see today. He actually would uh, manually pump out gas from a drum. His wife, Lydia, served food and drink to travelers that would come through, and they would uh, sell that food and drink to them. It was... 50 miles in every direction to anything of consequence. He called the place Desert Center. He called it Desert Center because he felt it was in the center of the desert, far from everything. Then they changed the road, they meaning the federal government decided to build U.S. Route 60 near Desert Center. And the sand road, which he had previously driven on and broken down on, where he had uh, 
set up shop had become obsolete. Now there was Route 60, about uh, five miles north. It was paved. It was straight. It was a much better road. But now he was no longer near it, so that was no longer going to work. So uh, he quickly abandoned what he had set up at the original Desert Center, which he called Old Desert Center, and built a new service station off of Highway 60 and called that Desert Center. So this was actually the second Desert Center, but he was really the only person in Desert Center. So he, uh, uh, this was now in 1926. So for five years, he had started in 1921, but uh, in 1926, five years later, when they ran US 60 through the area, there was no I-10 yet. Then he moved over there. So he actually built a service garage, a big service garage, and uh, a better gas station. He built a wooden structure which served as a market. And in fact, at one point, they became the largest Coleman camping equipment dealer in the country. Coleman goes way back then, still around, obviously. He constructed a post office. He even built several cabins that travelers could rent out and even built a swimming pool that was near the cafe they had also built. So this is a much uh, bigger operation at this point. I have to give this guy credit for having the ability to build all this stuff. I don't know if he got any help. So he was trying to get people to realize Desert Center was there and was advertising it. There was a publication called Desert Magazine at the time. And he wrote, uh, you need us, we need you in one of the ads. Another ad said, our main street is 100 miles long. Another ad said, we lost our keys, we can't close. Referencing the fact that they had a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week cafe that uh, had always been 24 hours, even since they opened in 1921. I don't know who worked in that cafe. Maybe he and his wife took turns. I don't know how they managed it 24 hours, but that's the way it had been. So Desert Center started to thrive, and uh, it started to grow. It never became huge, but the problem was uh, they still didn't have much of a population. Now, Stephen Ragsdale had children, and the problem was he needed his children to be educated, and uh, Riverside County, which is where Desert Center is located, did not want to send a teacher to work in the town because they felt that there were not enough children there. So he asked them, how many children do you need in order to have a teacher come out here? So they told him. And he noticed they were just a little bit short. So he placed an ad in various Los Angeles newspapers, said that he wants an auto mechanic with a large family to come out and live there and work for him. So he actually got one. Some auto mechanic who did have a large family came out, agreed to work in his garage, and they had enough kids to where it pushed it over the threshold, and Riverside County sent a teacher to teach at the school there. They, I guess they built some tiny schoolhouse, and they now had a teacher for it. Desert Center had some competition eventually, there is uh, 
about 19 miles uh, west of Desert Center, you'll see something off the 10 called Chiraco Summit. Chiraco Summit became their uh, main competition, and it started in uh, 1933. And it was uh, started by the Chiraco family. And uh, they were of Italian descent. The Chiraco Summit sounds like it would be something that's high, but it's not. It's only 1,700 feet, but in the area, that's one of the higher points. Chiraco Summit uh, still exists today, but that now provided an alternative for travelers in the area to visit. So they now had competition. Prior to that, when they opened, there was nothing around in any direction for 50 miles. However, in the early 1930s, they ended up with something else that still has an implication today. A doctor named Sidney Garfield had just graduated from USC. Yes, that same USC that we all know today. And he went to go visit a former USC classmate who had a medical practice in India. Now, Garfield struggled during the Depression, and uh, he had seen that his friend in Indio was doing very well. So he asked his friend, why is your medical practice in out-of-the-way Indio, which, by the way, is where they hold Coachella now, but Indio, even then, was, was a nothing town. So he said, how are you doing so well out here when in L.A., doctors like me are struggling for patients? because people didn't have money to go to the doctor, so they weren't. So uh, how come you're doing so much better over here? So his friend told him, the reason we get so many patients is because there are no doctors for 50 miles around, and that there's 5,000 men right now digging the Colorado aqueduct. And when they need a doctor, especially if they get injured when they're digging or whatever, that they, uh, they need someone so I always have a constant stream of business. And these men have money because they're uh, being paid by the company that has hired them to dig the aqueduct, which is called Seven Companies. Garfield was so impressed by this situation in Indio, he decided he's going to tr- do the same thing. So he was going to be the second doctor in the area. So Garfield set up in Desert Center. And he built the only air-conditioned building between Riverside and Phoenix. Riverside is about 300 miles or so east or west of Phoenix, closer to L.A. And in that stretch, in the early 30s, that was the only air-conditioned building in the entire stretch. And much like his friend, he was getting people who worked on the aqueduct, who need medical care. The problem is Garfield wasn't a very good businessman. Garfield was willing to let the men be treated and bill them later. And what would happen was these men would then go blow their entire paycheck on drinks and they would never pay him. So he was about to go broke. Well, then a man named Henry Kaiser, Henry J. Kaiser, was... In the area, he was uh, uh, the head of uh, six companies incorporated, which is different than, different than seven companies incorporated. But uh, Kaiser was uh, the head of six companies incorporated. 
and they were uh, also building a stretch of the Colorado Aqueduct. He happened to go to Garfield's clinic, and Garfield said, hey, you know, uh, I'm about to shut this down. I'm, I'm broke. Nobody ever pays me. So the few people who are willing to pay up front, you know, I, I, I can't just wait for them. Everybody's just expecting care at the time when something happens to them. And what if they don't have any money? I don't want to turn them away. And, you know, I don't know how to handle this. I, the whole idea didn't work out. So I'm about to leave. And Kaiser said, wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. I have an idea for you. How about you partner up with us here? And what we will do is we will take out five cents out of each man's paycheck to prepay for their medical care. So if anything happens to any man who works for me, they can come see you for free, but I will give you a nickel out of each person's paycheck. Now, you may laugh at that. Say, come on, nickel? Like actually five cents? Yes, actually five cents. However, this was in the early 1930s. So if you enter into an inflation calculator, what is a nickel from, say, 1932 worth today, that is worth a dollar. Now, that's still not very much, but uh, taking a nickel out of each paycheck out of uh, thousands of workers, you see actually then does provide a real stream of income for this doctor because basically uh, he doesn't have many expenses there. 1930s medicine was not very sophisticated, as you might guess, nor did they have uh, expensive medical equipment they had to buy. So in the 30s, if you got injured or got sick, you go to the doctor and they do whatever the best they could with what they had there. It was better than nothing, but it wasn't that great. So anyway, you could you could run a doctor's office in the 30s for pretty cheap without all that much overhead. So with a nickel out of each paycheck and with 5,000 men that were working for Kaiser, that was the equivalent of $5,000 per paycheck. And I have to assume each paycheck was probably every two weeks. So the guy was getting um, more than $10,000 a month for his clinic. And all he had to do was see whoever was coming through there and not charge them anything. So while he wasn't making huge money, uh, Garfield was now, uh, he was now doing decently. And things got a lot better for him. Things got even better for Garfield when Kaiser then had his company start construction of a dam called the Grand Cooley Dam, C-O-U-L-E-E. And again, he had Garfield manage the workers' health care. Now, the Grand Cooley Dam was not in Desert Center. So uh, what happened was Garfield left and went to Washington where they were building the Grand Cooley Dam. This time there were 50,000 men on the project, not 5,000. I also don't know if the nickel they took out of the paycheck went up by then, but even if it was just a nickel, this now changed it to where he was getting the equivalent of $50,000 per pay period. Now, I don't know if he had to hire other doctors because with 50,000 men, you have to think that uh, there'd be too much demand for just one doctor to handle the whole thing, especially with a lot of people getting injured, but who knows? Anyway, why am I telling you this whole story about Garfield who moved out of Desert Center anyway? Well, it's a little side story that spawned from Desert Center. Let's remember the man's name who partnered with Garfield on this whole thing. His name was Henry J. Kaiser. Kaiser, 
Now, what does the name Kaiser make you think of? What does the name Kaiser make you think of involving healthcare? Yes, it's that same Kaiser, Kaiser Permanente. Kaiser Permanente started in 1945 by Henry J. Kaiser and Sidney Garfield. That was the beginning of Kaiser Permanente. And that was the beginning of the first managed care health system in the U.S. It began in Desert Center by taking a nickel out of each man's paycheck. So if any man got sick or injured when working for Henry Kaiser digging the Colorado River Aqueduct, they could go over to uh, to Garfield, the doctor, to try to make them better. And this evolved into a gigantic HMO, which, if you think about, operates along similar lines, where all your medical needs are taken care of in the same facility, in the same group, and where you're paying money up front and paying very little for actual care that you need. Now, there are some co-pays in Kaiser. It's not exactly the same, but the, the co-pays in Kaiser are much cheaper. And when you need care in Kaiser, it's uh, it tends to be a lot cheaper per incident where you need care than with PPOs or other forms of medicine in the U.S. So this really was the very beginning of Kaiser Permanente. It's the same Kaiser. Actual Kaiser Permanente was fo- was founded by these two guys 12 years after that. So that's where it all began. If Henry J. Kaiser had not visited Denner- Desert Center, and if this doctor wasn't broke because nobody was paying him, then there would be no Kaiser Permanente today. That's a weird legacy of Desert Center that I wanted to mention. Anyway, getting back to Desert Center itself, because their association with Desert Center ended in like 1933 when they packed up to go work on this Grand Coulee Dam. So let's go back to Desert Center post-1933. By 1942, Desert Center had very few residents. It never got that big, but it really shrunk by uh, 1942. But General Patton, yes, that General Patton, established the Desert Center Army Field and Camp Desert Center, and that was to support operations in the uh, California-Arizona Maneuver Area. The base was 18,000 square miles, and they were training troops for combat in deserts of North Africa, in case they were needing to uh, do that in World War II. When the Allies were victorious in North Africa in 1944, they closed Camp Desert Center and the Desert Center Army Airfield because there was no need for it anymore. They were done with that operation. So after the military left... Desert Center got very small and very quiet again. Eventually, Route 60 was uh, taken out and replaced by uh, I-10. There is still a Route 60, by the way, which goes from southwest Arizona all the way to Virginia. But in 1964, it was replaced with I-10. So the old Route 60 is I-10 now. Now, I-10 also continues going east in a different direction. 
and gets into Louisiana and all that, but uh, that portion of US-60 became I-10. So US-60 now ends in uh, southeast Arizona. Anyway, as you might imagine, Stephen Ragsdale, who founded Desert Center, in 1971, Stephen Ragsdale's son, Stanley, took over. I don't know exactly when Stephen Ragsdale was born, but obviously if the guy uh, started the whole thing in 1915, he was probably quite old in 1971. So his son, Stanley, ran Desert Center, but he lasted only 28 years until he also died, probably at a similar age to his dad. Stanley Ragsdale insisted that Desert Center did not grow and become too much like uh, other rest stop type places along I-10. A lot of fast food chains approached him and said, hey, we would love to put up a Wendy's here, McDonald's here, a Burger King here, a KFC here. We think they would do really well. There's people driving between LA and Phoenix. This is now in the 70s, 80s, and 90s when there's a lot of traffic on I-10 going between the two places. And they saw a lot of of potential to drop fast food places there. And Stanley was very against that. He said that he did not want to change Desert Center. He liked it as a little rest stop that was family run. He liked the place being uh, quiet. He didn't want to see Desert Center transformed into a generic desert rest stop full of uh, the blight of uh, fast food places and other chains. They also were still bitter rivals of the Shiriakos, who were 19 miles to the west. And they were still running their Shiriako summit. In 1933, Steve Ragsdale said he's going to, quote, run that little upstart Italian out of town referring to Joe and Ruth Scirocco. But they were never successful in doing that. So there is still a lot of bitterness as the decades passed, even after Stephen Ragsdale died, that they really did not want the Shiriakos to beat them. But at the same time, Stephen Ragsdale did not want to expand Desert Center. So it was kind of a weird, contradictory desire doesn't want to lose to the competition, but doesn't want to expand or improve the area to compete better. Well, when he died in 99, it now went to his kids. However, this wasn't as simple as when, as when Stephen Ragsdale left this to his son Stanley, because Stanley had six kids, and he left Desert Center to all six kids. So they had to all decide together how they were going to run Desert Center. And they couldn't decide how to do it. They were all, they all had different ideas of what they wanted to do with the place. So the whole thing started to fall apart. Anything that was running there was starting to shut down. The whole place was kind of at a standstill. Nobody could agree on anything. There were legal battles about this. It was in probate court for uh, two decades. It was the longest probate case in Riverside County history. Finally, 
the judge said, enough is enough. The judge says, it's been 20 years. We're putting it up for auction. So basically, the judge in this probate case, he just, the thing was so complicated. It was so unclear of who should be uh, running the place and what way it should be run. The, the kids were all fighting and fighting and fighting. Of course, these kids were uh, older adults by this point because uh, Stanley Ragsdale, I don't know how old he was, but he was he was fairly old when he died. So these were all uh, older adults that are still fighting it out for, for 20 years. So finally, the judge said, you wasted 20 years of the court's time on this. This is it. Uh, we're just going to put it up for auction, and then you guys can split the money six ways, and then you can be done. Someone else can run this thing. So they actually put the town up for auction. Prior to this, there was actually a chance to save Desert Center from being put up for auction and staying in the family. There is a contract that five of the six kids wanted to agree to, to lease the Desert Center coffee shop, which was dilapidated, to a third party to run it and update it and make it look nice. And... uh, the plans for that coffee shop were more in line with what uh, the family had always wanted. It was not becoming a fast food place. It wasn't going to be blighted with something ugly or something uh, too commercial. They were just going to update the coffee shop and make it nicer and more modern. And the third party who was going to do it, unfortunately, was one of the Shiriakos. So one of the brothers who had remembered his father and grandfather's grudges against the Shiriakos, said, nope, not with the Shiriako, we're not doing it. (laughs) So that deal fell through. Had it not been for that last sibling, then it would have stayed in the family, and they would have leased that coffee shop to their rivals down the road. It would have been fine. But one of the brothers was still bitter at the Shiriakos, so it didn't happen. So the judge put it up for auction. And one of the Shiriakos bid $5 million to buy the town. Well, unfortunately for the siblings there, they did not have that money to outbid them. because The whole point of this was because the siblings couldn't agree on anything, nor did they have the funds to really improve it or change anything. So since this is up for auction, whoever had the highest bidder was going to win. And they were pretty disappointed that this was ultimately going to go to the Shiriakos. But it ended up not going to the Shiriakos because a man ended up coming forward who had nothing to do with anything previously there and bought the town for $6.25 million. This man's name was Balwinder Singh Raich. W-R-A-I-C-H. Balwinder Singh Raich was an Indian-American man who lived in Riverside, and he owned the trucking company Raich Transport, which also has their own truck stop in Fontana, California, which is uh, in Southern California. So Raich outbid the Shiriakos, and... They got it for $6.25 million. The Shiriako family member who lost the auction to Rach said, that's how it goes. We decided that dirt wasn't worth that much money. 
So they could have outbid him, but decided not to. However, maybe as a final middle finger to the Ragsdale family, the Shiriakos did purchase a totem pole that once stood outside of the Desert Center Cafe and is going to be putting it up at the Shiriako Summit very soon. <laughs> so they, I guess that was up for auction too. So they, they, they got the totem pole. They didn't get the town, but they got the totem pole. So they can say they have a little bit of Desert Center. So what is Rach going to do with this place though? Let me describe what's currently going on in Desert Center presently and why it was only $6 million for the whole town. The roof of the Desert Center market is caved in. The roof beams are crashed down around the structure of the market, covering uh, empty refrigerators. There's actually a sign still in the window saying, sorry, we're closed. (laughs) As if that's not obvious. They were actually in the middle of cleaning the Desert Center market when someone just gave up on it. There's actually a bottle of Windex and a roll of paper towels sitting on a table that have been sitting there for a long time. So someone's actually cleaning the place and like, you know what? What am I bothering doing this for? What am I going to accomplish trying to clean this place? They just walked out. The only business that is open to Desert Center is a post office, which isn't a real business. It's a government office, but the U.S. post office is still open. There were once three shops in a tiny strip mall there, but those have been gone for a long time. They were in the process of being renovated and then just never got completed. Someone who worked at Desert Center back in the 70s commented to the Riverside County Press Enterprise, which is a newspaper there, they let it go really bad. They should have sold something a long time ago and made something of it. So... Basically, nobody lives over in the main portion of Desert Center. It's just got that post office and a bunch of uh, abandoned buildings. There is some population in Desert Center of like 200, and that is because there is a lake there called Lake Tamarisk, which is two and a half miles away. There's about 40 homes there, and there's actually a nine-hole golf course and a lake with palm trees. If you see a picture of Lake Tamarisk, uh, it doesn't look bad. I'm talking about a modern picture of it. It actually looks nice, but it's probably not as nice as it looks in the picture. But it's actually a county-run golf course. If you may wonder you know, who who would put a golf course out there. Well, apparently Riverside County did. So there is actually a golf course. I don't know who golfs there, but there's a golf course in Desert Center and about 40 homes there. There's also a mobile home park that is nearby where some other people live. So there's about, uh, I don't know how many there's there, but there's a, there's spots for 150 trailers and RVs, but there's not many. The, what's known as Lake Tamarisk resort has been mostly abandoned, but there are still some motor homes over there. So that makes the, up the remainder of the population. Is there any gas station in desert center? Well, there originally was. It started as a gas station, but no, there is no active gas station. The one that was once there is dilapidated and has been closed for a long time. The nearest gas station, you guessed it, is in Shiriako Summit, 19 miles away. If residents of Desert Center want to get groceries, can they go to Shiriako Summit? No. They actually have to go 50 miles away to either Blythe or Indio, both about 50 miles from there. Blythe to the east, Indio to the west. 
So I guess you got to stock up because it's a 50-mile drive each way to get groceries. There are no restaurants. There's nothing going on there except for whatever reason, a golf course, a lake, some houses, and a mobile home park. So what is going to happen? Why would someone buy this? It's not clear, but it seems that uh, Rach, the owner, is probably going to build a big truck stop there. He does have uh, a lot of red tape to get through. The county has to approve of what he wants to do. The woman in the Shiriako family, who lost out on the bidding, has, she probably has a little bit of sour grapes about the whole thing, but she seems very skeptical of it. She said, why build a truck stop in California so close to the border where they can get their gas so much cheaper than they can here? To me, that doesn't make much sense. Now, what she's referring to is the fact that it is not that far from Desert Center to the Arizona border, where gas is substantially cheaper because Arizona has much less gasoline tax, and that automatically makes the gas cheaper. If you're in California and you're near Arizona, it's always better to wait till you get to Arizona. The gas is substantially cheaper. Used to be that way with Nevada, but Nevada raised their taxes too. So Nevada is only a little cheaper now than uh, California. But truckers know this. So what she's trying to say there is that uh, with the border being not that far away, and basically the border is a tiny bit past Blythe, so the border's like 50 to 55 miles away. So why would a trucker stop at a big truck stop in Desert Center knowing that if he's going east, he'll get to Arizona where gas is much cheaper in 55 miles, and we're going west, he probably knew that uh, gas is going to get more expensive and filled up in uh, Quartzsite, which is the first, the last town or first town, depending on which way you're going, in Arizona near the, the California border. So she's saying that a large truck stop's never going to work out here because a large truck stop depends a lot on truckers stopping there to get gas. If you've ever been to a large truck stop, you will see uh, a ton of gas pumps and a ton of trucks at these gas pumps. And if the gas is overpriced, the truckers aren't going to go there. And the truckers know the areas very well where they drive. So if it's uh, strategically cheaper to stop in Quartzsite or to wait till you get to Quartzsite to get gas, then you will. You're not going to overpay in Desert Center. So she is skeptical that this guy, Rach, who bought Desert Center, can make a large truck stop out of it. She also thinks he's going to have trouble getting through the red tape of Riverside County to do a lot of the changes that he's going to do. And she claims there's an issue also about the potable water supply in Desert Center, which she says uh, Desert Center does not even have its own potable water, which makes me wonder how they operated all this time with like a restaurant, but uh, maybe they brought in their own water. That's a little strange. So... We will see what happens with Desert Center. It's not common that an entire town gets bought for $6 million anywhere, not just in California. And it is possible that Rach can make something of it. But it's also possible this is going to be a fail and a $6 million waste of time. It can be tempting to buy an entire town. Now, the town does not 
have any incorporation status, so it's not an official city in California. It does not have a mayor. It does not have a police department. In fact, it does not even officially have a town designation in California. Of course, they can change that as well. So that's why the Shuriakos decided it was just, quote, a pile of sand and didn't want to spend that much money on it. But maybe they can make something of it. Raish's business in Fontana is so far successful, so maybe he knows what he's doing. People who live in that area have come there because they like how tiny it is and how far away it is from everything else. One of the residents said, how many friends do you hang out with from your high school? Most people say none because there were 500 people in their graduating class. I still see everyone because there were 35 in my graduating class. I guess most of them never leave also. <laughs> this, this person said it's really a tight community still. Anyway, it may grow. It may just end up with one truck stop there that manages to easily cover the $6 million that was spent on the land. Or maybe a gigantic fail and nothing may ever get going there. But that is Desert Center which is indirectly responsible for Kaiser Permanente HMO existing at all. Now, before I finish this topic, I want to give you a little speech about Kaiser and about HMOs. In the late 90s, a woman came to me at work and said, hey, I know you know about things like this. My mom is having a lot of trouble at Kaiser. They don't want to treat, I forget whatever illness she had, but whatever was wrong with her, they don't want to treat her. They don't want to test her. They're being very stubborn. They're being very difficult. And I said, well, the first problem here is that your mom has Kaiser. And she said, what? What's wrong with that? And I said, you don't want to have an HMO if you're over 50. And she said, why? And I said, because HMOs, they both provide the service and pay the bills. So they are notoriously frugal. The way they keep their costs down is by denying services to you, by denying you seeing specialists, by denying tests, by denying surgeries, anything they can do to save money. You never want the people making the decisions about your medical care being the same ones who are paying the bills. And the doctors there are incentivized to treat people as cheaply as possible. I'm not saying the doctors are told to let people die, but I'm saying that the doctors are told to really watch out about their spending and to make sure they're not being wasteful. Now, do you think in a PPO where you go to any doctor on the plan and then the insurance pays the bill, do you think the doctor is worried about the insurance company's money? Of course not. In fact, you get the opposite problem where sometimes you're referred to tests you don't need or procedures you don't need. So yes, that can be the opposite problem. You have to be a little bit diligent following up whether you really need the things that the doctor advises. However, it's much worse the other way where you know you need something and you're being denied because some doctor there is saying, no, you don't need it. And you know he's being incentivized not to spend that much money on you. And despite their sugary, sweet commercials you see on TV and hear on the radio, the truth is that Kaiser sees you as a number and they have to keep their costs down. 
and they try to keep their costs down as much as possible. You just never want the person making the decision about what you need medically being the same one that has to foot the bill for it. Otherwise, it will influence their decision. So if you're young, and it's unlikely that you're going to have to worry about any kind of major or mid-grade decision being made about your medical care, then sure, you can have an HMO. There's some advantages to it. It's convenient. It's easy. It's all in one place. It can be cheaper to get care when you need it. You don't have to hassle with fighting with insurance companies, which is a big pain in the ass and I have to do all the time. It's kind of an in-between PPOs and socialized medicine. Socialized medicine, you just go to the doctor, you don't pay a thing, and the government pays everything and you never have to worry about the billing of anything. And PPOs are the exact opposite. But then socialized medicine has that same reputation as HMOs, but even worse, that it's hard to see specialists, you get uh, tests denied, you get procedures denied, you have some gatekeeper telling you when you can and can't have things, there's long waits for things. So then HMOs are in the middle of that, they're not quite as bad in those areas, but they still have those problems. Then PPOs, they don't have those problems at all. But then you have some other issues where you have to constantly deal with and fight with insurance companies, and you have to worry about where you have scammer doctors that uh, push you to procedures and tests you don't really need. So none of these are perfect, but I would much rather have the one that is rubber stamping a lot of procedures and tests and to where I can decide what I need and don't need. And that's really what you should want too once you're middle-aged or older. As I said, younger, it doesn't really matter. You can get unlucky and need something big when you're younger. So I, I wouldn't want an HMO at any time, and I never had an HMO. But those who are like 28 years old that have an HMO, I can't really fault you that much. But if you're 50 and have an HMO, if you're 60 and have an HMO, you're making a big mistake. Now, you may say, well, I'm, I'm 65 years old. I've always had a great experience. Yes, and that's the same thing I say to people who have that fly Southwest Airlines and say, hey, why do you complain about Southwest? I've always flown them and had a great experience. And I ask, have you ever had a situation where something out of the ordinary happens and you need them to work with you? Well, no. I said, okay, well, when that happens, get back to me. Well, same with HMOs. As long as they agree that what you want is what you need, then you'll never have a problem there. But there will come a time when there's something you think you need and they won't give it to you because they're being cheap. And good luck getting it then. So once you get older and when mid-level and higher problems are more likely to come up, much more likely to come up, you want to be sure that you can get that care. You want to be sure you're not going to get denied. I also hate the whole model of having to see a primary care doctor first. It's a waste of time. It's a pain in the ass. Who wants to go to a primary care doctor first and beg them to see a specialist? I love it where I can just call a specialist directly, book an appointment, and go. And there's no primary care doctor I have to sell that I can see another doctor. And Not only does it save time, it saves stress. So if you are older or middle-aged, drop an HMO and go to a PPO. You may not think that's necessary now, but you will thank me later. And even back in the 90s, when I was young, I was advising people of this and telling them that they should 
tell their parents this. And this woman said, okay, you know, I'll tell my mom that. That makes sense. And sure enough, she, she came to me to complain about Kaiser and how they were treating her mom, and she didn't understand it. And she didn't know this is just like an HMO thing. She thought this happens with all doctors. I said, no, 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 it's because they're paying the bills. They're trying to be cheap. That's my commentary about Kaiser. So I'm no fan of Kaiser, even though I'm covering Kaiser here. I'm, I'm not a fan of them. And I know people personally who have some pretty bad stories with Kaiser. Just think about how frustrating it would be if you know you need something. You know you need a certain test. You know you need a certain procedure. And they say, no, you don't need it. Some of you may be familiar with uh, Jess Wellman, who is in the poker community. She's like She was part of poker media and uh, did other various poker jobs, worked for the World Series at some point. Right now she works for some kind of uh, media company that promotes uh, legalized sports books. Anyway, she's a smart woman. Interesting follow on Twitter, but she's had this ongoing issue with an HMO. I'm not sure if it's Kaiser, but she's having an ongoing issue with an HMO, just absolutely denying her care on a very injured left wrist she had. And they're just, I mean, they're just being awful and nonsensical. And she can't get them to change their minds and she's pulling her hair out. She has the HMO through work and she had no choice. I asked her, why do you have an HMO? (laughs) And she said, I have no choice. And I said, that kind of sucks. So if if you're forced into it, you're forced into it. I'm not saying if you get only an HMO from work and you can't choose a PPO and then the choice is between just turning it down and paying for your own PPO or taking the HMO. I mean, I guess take the HMO then because you know, why throw away the work-provided health care and pay for your own? It's, it's a waste of money. But if you're paying for your own or you have an option at work, definitely take the PPO. Don't be fooled by the convenience. Don't be fooled by past good experiences and don't be fooled by the impression that they all have it organized and it's a well-oiled machine. Wait till something goes wrong in that machine and the whole thing's going to break down. The whole thing's going to break down for you. I've seen it time and time again for decades. Not with me personally, but with people associated with me, people I've known. I've, I've, I've helped them in these situations. So I, I have firsthand experience with this. Just wanted to throw that in, just so you guys didn't think this is an endorsement of Kaiser. I wasn't going, oh, this is so sweet. You know, if this didn't happen, the world wouldn't have Kaiser Permanente. Don't, aren't you happy Desert Center existed? No. I think maybe the world would be better off if there's no Desert Center. <laughs> All right. Moving on here. Let's talk some poker. We haven't had much poker on our show except for the Fox Poker and I guess the World Series COVID discussion. So let's talk some poker. Tom Dwan finally did something that uh, nobody else could seem to do, and that was uh, put an end to Phil Helmuth's winning streak. Phil Helmuth was just uh, crushing everyone. Phil Helmuth just unbeatable and heads up uh, No Limit Hold'em, which people are like, what? Phil Helmuth? Like, people are very surprised because the impression of Phil Helmuth was that he was a great No Limit Hold'em tournament player, but that's all he could do. He could win a ton of bracelets and No Limit Hold'em in big fields, but he was not good at cash, and he was definitely not good at heads-up cash. That He's probably a fish. That, that was many people's impression of him. Well, it turned out that was unfair. It turned out that Helmuth has a talent at No Limit Hold'em heads-up. 
And it, it appears that his talent really is letting the competition hang itself. And you may say, well, that's no talent. You just uh, play normal poker and let uh, the other side screw up. Well, it's not that easy. He's just good at not making mistakes and inducing opponents into making mistakes. So while that doesn't sound exciting or sexy, it can be effective even against very good players. But he was up against a very tough player in Tom Dwan. You guys know about Tom Dwan. He has an interesting history. He actually started out on Never Win Poker, of all things. He was a nobody on Never Win Poker. And a degenerate who kept going broke. And eventually he went on a hot streak. And he ran up a big bankroll. Then he ran it back down, ran it back up over and over. And uh, I guess eventually he went broke. And he ended up in Macau and was being backed by a rumored mobster in Macau. And I guess uh, with all that money behind him, then he could play without fear. And uh, I don't know how he did there, but he kept his backing for a long time, so I guess he wasn't uh, losing. There's a lot of mystery about Tom Dwan, especially in those years, but he's kind of reappeared on the scene. He took some heat for a while, In the early 2010s, he had a heads-up challenge that is similar to the ones we're seeing now with Phil Galfond and with Helmuth and these others where uh, uh, pros would be in these challenges with each other. But he walked away from a challenge with Jungle Man and never completed it. And he never explained what that was about or why he did it. And he kind of hid from everybody for a while after that occurred. He told Seriously Serious, of all people, in confidence, why he did it. And Seriously Serious was not allowed to reveal it, but said that the reason, if true, seemed like somewhat reasonable. My guess, by the way, and Seriously Serious didn't tell me, but my guess was that uh, Full Tilt had promised to back him in this, and then when Full Tilt went under, then he couldn't do it anymore. That's my guess here. Because this whole thing fell apart right around the time that uh, Full Tilt got busted in Black, on Black Friday. So I have to imagine Full Tilt had something to do with this because he was a Full Tilt pro at that point. Dwan was kind of out of the spotlight for many years. People even wondered if he was okay. No one had heard anything from him. There was even uh, jokes that he was locked away somewhere in the, like a triad prison. <laughs> but no, he's alive and well, and he's recently appeared on Poker Broadcasts again on Poker Go. So everybody was excited to see that he was going to play Helmuth. He loved to play Heads Up No Limit. He had a legendary exchange with Helmuth back in 08 when Dwan was first coming up and he bad beat Helmuth all in with 10s against aces and Helmuth said, we'll see if you're even still around in five years. And Dwan was telling Helmuth that he's a fish and kept saying he wants to keep playing him heads up for their entire bankrolls. Well, this would be the first time the two would face each other since then. Helmuth had won seven matches in a row against other players, against some very good players. That streak ended as Tom Dwan was the winner. This was a... $100,000 buy-in 
and uh, Tom Dwan won it. So uh, there's going to be another round where the buy-in is going to be uh, 200000 But uh, Helmuth has not agreed to this yet. He said, I don't know if I'm going to rematch now. So Helmuth's streak started when he won three straight matches against Antonio Esfandieri. And then he won... Uh, uh, and, and against uh, Daniel Negreanu as well. He also won against uh, sports broadcaster Nick Wright. So, uh, in those matches, which I guess were uh, seven different matches, Helmuth was 7-0 and and had not taken a loss yet. So, up against Duan, he ended up losing, and uh, this doubles the buy-in automatically, but Helmuth can refuse it. But if they do play, it has to be 200000 as agreed upon in the rules of this uh, match, which takes place on Poker Go. This is uh, part of a series called High Stakes Duel on there. Tom Dwan said that uh, even though they didn't get along back in 08, that they now like each other. He said... Uh, when we went on that USO tour, that's when I think I got to know Phil because he was the same person with no cameras on with the troops. I remember him getting sucked out on or something in a tournament that was effectively a charity tournament for the troops. One of the tur- one of the troops sucked out on Phil and he got so upset. So uh, I guess they got to know each other then. But it's funny he said that uh, even at a charity tournament, Phil did that same thing. I, I never figured out with Helmuth and I- he might have played with the guy a number of times now at the World Series. I've never figured out with him if when he gets pissed off at bad beats and when he thinks someone played a hand the way they shouldn't and and beat him, when he gets pissed off in a situation like that, is it all 100% genuine? Or is it an act he feels that he always has to be in character for? Because he knows this has made him a notable player. I mean, yes, he's won 15 bracelets, so he'd be notable no matter what. But this has always been an aspect that people have known about him. This has been like a defining characteristic. And this has been one of the factors that made him the uh, one of the best-known poker players in the world. So he may feel that he has to always be in character and behave this way. However, I've seen him act this way at tournaments which really nobody is watching very closely, like a $1,500 limit hold'em tournament at the World Series in a, in a side room where really nobody cares the way he acts. If he's going to sit there quiet, no one's going to go, hey, guess what? Phil, Phil Helmuth is quiet. He's not really like this. Like, it seems like when he takes any kind of bad beat, especially if it's a bad beat that's combined with his opponent's bad play and he loses – he just can't help himself and like reflexively gets angry, even if the money is meaningless or if it's a charity tournament or, or whatever. So it's, it seems to be just some idiosyncrasy he has where he can't control himself. Something else I've noted before is that while most people are afraid to give it back to him, that when I have given it back to him, even when the vitriol wasn't originally directed at me, when I see him behaving badly at the table like this and I talk shit to him, then it seems like this seems to hurt him a little bit and then he will try to get me to understand that he's not a bad guy. 
which I've always found is so weird. Why does he care what I think? He knows he's a hundred times bigger in poker than I am. He knows that uh, I really couldn't do very much to change his reputation. Besides, everybody knows he does this. Like, it's not like I'm going to put out a big headline, hey, Phil Helmuth is rude at the table. Like, this is his trademark. So if I don't like him, why does this bother him? But it seems to bother him, the thought that I don't like him. And I don't say, hey, Phil, I hate you. I don't like you. Like, I just, I'll just talk trash there. Just I kind of feel like it, it goes along with the way he behaves at the table. Now, if he's behaving well, then I don't talk trash. Except that one time when I had to make a, a UB remark on camera because I was pissed that he was just sitting quiet through the whole UB scandal and still promoting them. But aside from that, I have never started up with him when he's just sitting quiet and playing normally. Because sometimes he'll do that too. But as soon as he takes a beat, he goes off, even on an amateur. I'll do it just kind of to be part of the moment there, and it's just kind of fun. I'm not really mad at him as it's happening. I just kind of see it as an opportunity to rib him and to needle him since he's giving a hard time to others at the table. But, like, I don't sit there hating him. So, like, I'm not sitting there hating the guy, but, boy, is he concerned that I do. And it's weird. Like, he really tries to convince me to like him. And he's done this on more than one occasion. I even mentioned that one time he stopped me when I was walking around the Rio, and he stopped me to talk to me to make sure I didn't hate him. Very weird. So he's got some oddities about him. (laughs) Despite this behavior pattern, he also doesn't want other pros to dislike him. Because really, I'm a nobody compared to him in poker. So, like, if I were him, if it was reversed and I had the stature of Helmuth in the poker world, and he had the stature of me, I wouldn't give a crap what I thought. I mean, come on. But apparently he does, at least when we're at the poker table. We don't really interact on social media. But live, yeah, he he wants me to like him. And I'm not exaggerating or kidding about this. Like, how, how often do I tell stories like this? I don't. Like, I, I'm not telling you the way it really goes. I, I'm as surprised as you are when this happens. I'm really expecting him to think, oh, who's this? You know, he knows who I am, but like, oh, who gives a crap what Dan Druff thinks? Like, I, I really expect him to think that, and that's not what he thinks. It's very odd. Helmuth has a few more days to decide what he wants to do. I'm not sure when the exact deadline is, but it's coming very soon. And if he declines the rematch, then the third round of this whole series, uh, Dwan will get a different opponent. I'm, I'm forgetting the whole structure of the way they do that, but uh, Dwan will play somebody in the third round. It just won't be him. Otherwise, the third round will be against uh, Helmuth. And when I say third round, I don't mean third round against Helmuth. I mean the third round of this uh, series they're having on Poker Go, this high-stakes duel. Now, on a side note, and maybe what's more interesting to you I know you guys like the the scandals on here. You like the oddities. Let's talk about Tom Dwan's wife. And, you know, I don't like uh, talking about people's wives, typically, because, you know, it has nothing to do with them, unless their wife is part of a story. But in this case, I think it's worthy of a discussion. One Step, who is... uh, a sometimes radio listener and also a forum poster, and he's been around in this community forever. One Step is a bisexual man who seems to lean more gay. 
and he has had a longtime crush on Tom Dwan. Now, One Step likes uh, younger men. I think he's around 40 now. But uh, keep in mind, One Step's been part of the community like 15 years. So back then he was young too. And Dwan was even younger than him. So I don't know if he still likes Dwan because Tom Dwan is not that young anymore. But One Step insisted that he thought Tom Dwan was gay. So it wasn't just that he had a uh, crush on Tom Dwan. He, he thought that Dwan was gay. And, and many others thought this too. There were a lot of gay rumors surrounding Tom Dwan. But just because there's a gay rumor doesn't mean the person's gay. The person in poker who's best known for having gay rumors surrounding them was Daniel Negreanu, and he's not. I mean, he's married to a woman, and it was very clear from Negreanu's uh, longtime obsession with his now-wife, Amanda Leatherman, now Amanda Negreanu, uh, that he wasn't gay. Like, a gay man could not have the type of obsession with a woman like he had with Amanda. So, clearly, Negreanu was not gay. I can't tell you exactly what his sexuality is, and it doesn't matter much to me, but there were people who were insisting to me Negreanu's gay, and that was wrong. Negreanu is not gay. So sometimes these rumors are incorrect. So Tom Dwan was said for many years to be gay. There was no proof of this. No one saw him like dating men, and there was no men coming forward claiming they had sex with Tom Dwan or anything. It was just people thought from Tom Dwan's mannerisms he was gay, and they hadn't seen him with any women. And I thought, yeah, maybe you're right. I, I could believe it. But I, I was not sure or anything like that. Then I started hearing rumors that Tom Dwan had a hot girlfriend. And I thought, are you sure about that? Are you sure that's not just like some girl he hangs around with? But no, he really did have a girlfriend. And then there were reports that he was engaged. So this was from SoMuchPoker.com. It says, in late 2017, Tom Dwan got engaged to Bianca Rosso, and I, I don't know who she is, I don't think she's in poker, and is rumored to soon become a father and a husband, answering the questions of what happened to him. This is during the time when he's kind of just gone. On a tweet he posted on January 27th, I think that was 2018, he spoke about Bianca Rosso in terms of, quote, soon-to-be wife. That is, incidentally, the name of the young woman chose uh, that... Uh, that the name the young woman chose for her Instagram account, Durr's Wife. So there actually was a Instagram account called Durr's Wife. It's uh, D-U-R-R-R-R, four R's, and then S-Wife, Durr's Wife. Let me see if that's still around. Uh, that is not there. Let me try three R's in case the article was wrong. Let me try two R's. <laughs> okay, it seems it's not there. So there, there, there is no more uh, Durr's wife account. But that's what this article said on SoMuchPoker.com. On Poker-King.com, which has been around a long time, I think that's different than just Poker King. This is Poker-King, which has been around for more than 15 years. Dwan also got married in 2018, and Durr and his wife are often seen enjoying life on her Instagram feed. Several prominent poker players who would ass assumedly be in the know have also said that Durr has done very, very well for himself over the past decade or so, taking large amount of monies out of the Macau cash games. Again, he might have been backed and it was really for the triad there, but whatever. Point is that there are these reports that first he was engaged to this Bianca Rosso who had, a, who had an Instagram account called Durr's Wife and then she really became Durr's Wife. 
So why am I reporting this? Why, why does this really matter? Well, a Poker Fraud Alert radio listener asked me to discuss this because he said that Tom Dwan never mentions his wife anymore, never wears a wedding ring. There's no sign that he's married. And I thought, you know what? I think you're right. Ever since like 2018, we're just not hearing about her. I've seen pictures of her. and She's pretty. And there was a, even a Poker News article about them in uh, early 2018. Tom Dwan tweeted in January 2018, So my soon-to-be wife loves tennis, been in Melbourne playing almost no poker the last few days, just enjoying some tennis. It looks like the Instagram is gone. It's even linked on this Poker News article, and if you click on it, it's gone. Now he doesn't talk about her, and he's not wearing his wedding ring, so I wonder if they got a divorce, and he just doesn't want to talk about it. He's always been a very private person. I mean, people thought for a while he was either dead or... uh, being held prisoner by the triads. So I guess getting a divorce compared to that is not a big deal, (laughs) but it's really weird because he seemed happy in these pictures and he talked about her and there were articles about him and her and then it just all kind of fell off and we just never hear about her anymore. So there's a good chance they're not together. Now, maybe he just decided that he's just not going to talk about her. He's going to stay very private. I can relate to that because you know what? If you take a look at another poker player, not one as well-known as Durr, not one who plays as high stakes as Durr, but another poker player that you've probably heard of, this person, despite being pretty active on social media, doesn't talk about the girl he's been with for many years, even though she's the mom of his kid. He doesn't ever post pictures of them together. You don't see him with a wedding ring on. And yet, he is still with the woman. And I know this with 100% certainty because that poker player I'm talking about is me. But it may just be privacy. That's, that's the reason that I do it. So I can't say for sure that Tom Dwan is not married anymore, that his wife left him or that he left her. But it kind of looks like it. So if you know anything about this, please text me, 775-372-8355. I got a text from someone in the 707 who was concerned about the campfire I lit earlier. He said, can we first hear the story about how your curtains just caught fire? (laughs) Yeah, well... You know, it happens when you light campfires indoors. Lesson learned. I want to move on to discuss Phil Galfond and Brandon Adams. That match is now over with Brandon Adams losing $370,000 to Phil Galfond. 270000 worth was what he lost in the match. And 100000 was the side bet, which he loses by finishing in the negative in their match. Brandon Adams quit early and decided that he's done. Just basically, no more. Try an uncle. Can't beat you, Phil. And he's out of it. This match was supposed to take place live. And it started taking place live. It took a while to get going, but it finally started happening. 
And then Adams was unhappy that Galfond was stalling because Galfond wasn't up a whole lot and he wanted to lock up the victory by just stalling as much as he could on every street. So the amount of time they agreed to play, they agreed to play a certain number of hours. So the time would tick off and it wasn't near the end. Like it was getting closer to the end, but it wasn't like in the final hour. So they weren't even that close to the end and Galfon is just super stalling every hand, every street saying, hmm, what should I do here? Hmm, this is the tough one. Okay, what do I do? And it's just a thinking, 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 thinking on every street and, and Adam's just like feeling tortured by the whole thing going, oh my God, this isn't what I pictured. Now, Adams was a little bit less a sympathetic character when he admitted that he did the same thing at one point when he was up, but that uh, he didn't do it nearly as badly as Galfon did, which I believe, but that kind of takes away some of his right to complain. Anyway, the big mistake here was that they didn't agree to a certain number of hands live, that instead they agreed to time, and then this caused the whole problem. Now, they thought they had that solved by first agreeing to a maximum amount of tanking time, but then all Galfon did is he tanked every street. So... So, yes, he couldn't take unlimited time on each street, but on each hand, you know, there's there's four streets, so he just would uh, tank four times the maximum by doing one on each street, and it really slowed everything down. So Adams cried foul about it on Twitter, and when the whole thing was done, they agreed that they were just going to move the rest of it online. So Adams was down 16,500 when they moved it online to play 10,000 hands. And then Adams lost another 253500 to be down 270 k And at that point, on August 23rd, he informed Galfond that he's done. So Galfond tweeted out, No Galfond challenge stream today after all. Brandon has decided to call it quits. I finished this challenge up roughly 270 k So Galfond continues his perfect streak. He last played Chance Cornuth, who gave up before they completed all the hands. Cornuth lost uh, 726,500 after 25,400 hands. The only time Galfon was in danger of losing was to his first opponent, Veni Vidi 1993. He was down 900k to Veni Vidi and then came back and beat him, which everyone thought was impossible. He won only a little bit more than 1,000 euros when the whole thing was done. And the way he did it was by taking a break and modifying his strategy by basically going back to being Phil Galfond. He thought during the time he hadn't been playing poker that he needed to adapt and play this kind of solver style that all the kids were doing now. And he tried it and it didn't work for him. It just wasn't his personal style. And he was floundering. And then he went back to his old style that served him so well previously and he crushed Veni Vidi and managed to come back and barely beat him. After that, he stuck to the same style and continued to beat out every opponent, including the one that was thought to be the best, Ioannis Constantinosios. I don't know how to pronounce it. But he uh, beat Action Freak and was never really in danger of losing that one. Uh, Galfon just seems unbeatable heads up in PLO. That's the truth. 
Brandon Adams tweeted, uh, he said, I held off on posting this pick. I wasn't sure that uh, Jungle Man was serious about battle. Don't open with work or children. Best part is when Jungle describes his life during match with Phil. Think Russia training in Rocky Four, except in a basement. So let's hear what uh, Daniel Cates was saying about his upcoming match that he's going to have with Galfond. There's also going to be a match coming up with uh, Luke Schwartz. I decided to take on Phil Galfond because he just seems like such a nice guy. He's always nice and everything. And, you know, he's, he never does anything wrong or gets angry. But I see through his fucking bullshit, okay? I see Mr. Falcons for what he really is. And he needs someone to take his fucking ass down, clip his fucking wings, and just bury him in the sand. And he needs, he needs someone fucked up like me. I decided to take on Phil Galfond. Yeah, so that wasn't very convincing. <laughs> He's trying to play like the bad guy. But while I admit that people will probably be rooting for Galfond over Daniel Cates, at least probably most of the people, uh, I, I don't think Cates was sincere with that whole thing. I do think that Galfond isn't quite as nice as he appears to be. I think Galfond is just easygoing, and he's very good at controlling his anger, and he's not easily enraged, to say the least. So this is someone who's always polite, who never goes off on social media, who never appears angry, who never acts like a dick. But if you watched closely when his run at one site was being questioned by many people, because it was a fail site and he basically wasn't listening to anyone's suggestions and dismissing everybody like they don't know better. You could tell he was getting annoyed and was getting passive aggressive. That was the first and only time, like there was a number of instances of it, but it was all along the same lines, where Galfond was kind of acting like a jerk. Now, I understood why he was in a bad mood. I understood why he was irritated. But it was interesting seeing Phil Galfon kind of show a side of himself where he's not always the nice guy. So otherwise, he always seems like the sweetest, most easygoing, just friendliest guy that you just can't rattle or get angry. <laughs> Even when he was losing badly to Vinny Vidi, he's just, oh, okay, I got to get back, got to get back to work, got to figure out how to do this better. He just like didn't even seem the slightest bit rattled. But boy, about run it once. His poker site, when it was struggling, and still is, it's pretty much a fail site. Uh, when people were criticizing it, his first people were very supportive of his run at one site, and then when it seemed like it wasn't very good, and they were making a lot of dumb decisions, and they were v- refusing to listen to the players about what they could do to make it better, the players were right, by the way. He got uh, kind of rude with people. Not directly rude, but kind of like passive-aggressively rude. So it was interesting to see that side of him. So it shows that Everybody has a side of themselves that can be an asshole. Remember that. Even the nicest people have a side where they can be a dick to you. Or, I guess if it's a female, they could be a bitch to you. Some people just don't show it very often. Now, someone I haven't seen do that is Kevmath. Kevmath has just always been easygoing. I've never seen Kevmath act passive-aggressive or just regular aggressive, or get mad at anyone, or fight with anyone. He is someone who just absolutely always has his cool. 
So I give him credit for that. I can't say that about myself. You guys know that. All right, let me move on here. I want to talk about uh, Vital Vegas and the tip shaming. Vital Vegas called out a woman for tipping $200, but he didn't call her out in a nice way, like saying, oh, great, that's a very generous tip, $200. I I bet a lot of you have never tipped $200 for anything in your life. But Vital Vegas called out a woman for tipping $200 like it was a bad thing. And this has been part of a series of tip shaming that Vital Vegas has been doing. Now, remember, Vital Vegas is one guy named Scott Robin. He's kind of like a self-styled Vegas promoter. He does get paid by various entities to promote their properties. And, you know, the guy's got to make money, so whatever. Some people don't like that, but that doesn't really bother me. You can kind of tell from his tweets what he's promoting because he's getting paid and what he's promoting just because he likes it. Maybe sometimes it's both, but I don't really care about that. The guy's got to eat. But he started on this whole tip shaming kick, which I don't like. And keep in mind, Vital Vegas brings a lot of interesting and sometimes correct rumors to the table about Las Vegas. And it's amazing how many scoops he gets way before everybody else. People come to him with rumors, and then if he thinks the rumors carry any weight, if he thinks they could be true, then he will report them. This is actually what got him sued when he reported a rumor about the Sahara, which turned out not to be true, but it turned out the rumor wasn't false either. It seemed that the Sahara was seriously considering selling and closing down and liquidating, and then they ultimately decided not to. So I guess they were mad that he found out that they were close to doing it and he was reporting they were going to do it. And they tried to just cover the whole thing as if he was just lying and sued him. And he ended up beating them in an anti-slap motion where his attorney was Mark Randazza, the same one who's representing Veronica Brill right now and is battling with Possle. Anyway, Vital Vegas. And by the way, I, I was on his side on the Sahara thing. 100% he was in the right on that one. But he's very good at bringing these rumors And yeah, you've got to take someone with a grain of salt, and sometimes he ends up being wrong. But it's a very interesting read, his Twitter and his site, VitalVegas.com, and I'll give credit where it's due. But the routine he's doing now about the tip shaming, in my opinion, needs to stop. Now, he's welcome to post whatever he wants on his Twitter. I don't have a right to tell him what he can and can't post, but as someone who follows him and has observed him for a long time, that isn't where his talents lie, and it's off-putting, and he's not even correct with a lot of things he's saying. So this isn't something, really, that he should be doing. He should be sticking to what he's good at and dropping the tip-shaming routine. Now, I think he started the tip-shaming because his girlfriend works in the service industry. She got a job for a while at Resorts World, uh, I think as a bartender, And then she moved over to another property with uh, another job. So these are all service jobs, and they all count on tips. So I think he's probably sensitive to the whole thing because she probably tells him, oh, I got stiffed on tips today in such and such situation. And she probably tells him a lot of uh, 
tip-stiffing stories, and he probably gets irritated thinking about it. And he probably thinks these damn tourists, and even some locals, they uh, think they don't have to tip. They don't understand that locals here, a lot of them support themselves on tips, and he probably gets himself all spun up. So even though he's not getting tipped by anybody, he has a girlfriend who is, and he's probably getting pissed when he's hearing stories about people stiffing her. That, that's my guess. He didn't say this. This is just my guess. And, and by the way, his girlfriend's nice. I've, I've spoken to his girlfriend, and uh, never on the phone. Like we've, we've talked on Twitter, but she seems like a nice person. And uh, so nothing against her. He blew up recently in mainstream media when he broke a story about Las Vegas Raiders players who were being rude to service employees and being super stingy with tips. And, of course, this caught fire because Las Vegas Raiders players are all making a lot of money. They have these large contracts. And here they're stiffing working-class people in these service jobs and also treating some poorly, in addition to tipping poorly. So... When he got these rumors passed to him, then he put it out on his well-followed Vital Vegas site, and this caught fire, and the mainstream sports media picked up on it. So what he tweeted on August 15th was, Reminder, bad behavior by, bad behavior by Raiders players, coaches, and family members won't be tolerated in Las Vegas. Multiple reports of rudeness and poor or zero tipping. We will name names and flog asses if this horse shittery continues. You play sports, you're not royalty. So a lot of people like this because he's basically standing up to Raiders, players, coaches, and family members who, despite having wealth, are mistreating and low-tipping the service employees of Vegas. So this seems like the little guy versus the big guy, the, the, the nobodies versus the famous people. And he's basically saying, hey, if you continue this, I'm going to call you guys out and shame you. I'm going to embarrass you. You're not royalty. So you guys better stop this or I'm going to name names. So this went semi-viral and was covered on mainstream sports shows like Jim Rome and others. So he was very proud of this. This is the first time he's really gotten like mainstream recognition. A lot of people know him who follow him for Vegas news, and he's known somewhat around Las Vegas, so he's not an unknown person, but he wasn't getting coverage on shows like Jim Rome before. So he was very proud of this. So okay, I can understand that. I can understand that a guy who's always trying to get publicity and really his success is tied somewhat to how many people follow him and know him that when he gets something like this, when he gets exposure like this, and if he, what he's saying is true, is a noble quest. I, I don't mind that he's putting out there that he's hearing that Raiders, players, coaches, and family members are mistreating service employees. First of all, you should never mistreat service employees or any employees. You should always treat everybody with respect, provided that they treat you with respect. So service employees don't deserve respectful treatment if they are being disrespectful to you or if they're just absolutely not doing their job but if they get something minor that's wrong or you're just kind of in a bad mood yourself you shouldn't take it out on service employees and i've seen people do that and i think that's wrong and i would not do it myself even with all the complaints i'll sometimes make towards bad service employees i, I will always 
do it commensurate with the situation and you know innocent mistakes all that go whereas just outright rudeness or confrontation with me or just people intentionally not doing their job then then i will uh make an issue of it but it seems like from vital vegas's report which again is just a report maybe it's true maybe it's not maybe it's exaggerated maybe it's not there's people who play on the Raiders and are associated with the Raiders who mistreat and low-tip service employees. Now, do I think this is happening? Yeah, this must be at least somewhat true. This probably isn't fabricated. There probably are Raiders players. Remember, a lot of them are young, too. I'm not making that as an excuse. I'm just saying that's more likely it's actually happening. And some of them may be arrogant because they think they're celebrities because they're Raiders players and they think they can just act how they want and some of them aren't very mature because they're young and some of them may be mistreating service employees and not tipping even what you'd expect to be a standard tip so this tweet is fine he's not naming anybody and he's just making a general statement to treat the service employees well and to tip them in an expected fashion fine I can get on board with that. Unfortunately, the coverage he got here inspired him to continue tip shaming. And there's been so many tweets about people not getting tipped. You know, tip, you know, you're not tipping enough here. You're not tipping enough there. He doesn't name people who did it or show any pictures of people who are not tipping enough. But there's constant complaining about everybody's not tipping enough. And it gets annoying to read it's frustrating to read and it starts to sound very entitled even though he's not the one who would be getting the tips but the one that really stuck out is one i saw on august 21st he wrote shout out to the woman who won a hundred twenty thousand dollar jackpot at circa the other day and tipped two hundred dollars now this was a sarcastic shout out he doesn't mean like shout out like good job tipping 200 he means negative shout out he means shout out to this woman who was an asshole who only tipped 200 on a hundred twenty thousand dollar jackpot now who would this woman have been tipping this would be the slot attendants see when you hit anything on a machine slot video poker whatever any kind of machine and you hit something that's 1200 or more in the u.s any casino in the u.s there's a federal government requirement to do what's known as a hand pay. So the machine locks up and an attendant has to come over and pay you by hand. You can ask for it by check. You can ask for it by cash, whatever. Usually if it's 1200, you're going to ask for cash because it's not that much, but 1200 or more, they have to pay you by hand and process a tax form, which is then sent to the IRS. This is a federal law. All casinos have to do it. Even Indian casinos have to do it. This applies to machines only. Now, this doesn't have to do with if you are up 1200 or more overall. So let's say you keep winning $50 at a time over and over and over again, and you're up $1,500. Well, then this won't happen because each hand you're winning 50 So the threshold is what you win on each hand or each spin. So each time you press a button is what's considered a hand or a spin, So when you press the button to win whatever the next thing begins between that and what would be the next button press, if your balance goes up by 1,200 or more, that's when the hand pay would trigger. That's how the machine figures it out. If you press a button, and as a result of that button press, you are now $1,200 richer or more, 
then you will uh, have to get a hand pay. And again, this is not the casino's choice. I'm not criticizing any casino for this because they have to comply with federal law. And this has been the case for a long time. So a slot attendant handles this. They come over and uh, they get your information. They take your license. They get your social security number. And then they go away for a little time. They process the paperwork for the IRS. They bring you the paperwork. You sign the paperwork. They pay you however you want to be paid. And that's it. Now, you are expected at that point to leave them a tip. A lot of people don't know this. A lot of people don't tip these slot attendants because they figure these are just people doing their job processing tax forms for you. And why should you tip these people? They're not doing a service for you. This is something required by the government to fill out this paperwork and okay. Just like people don't typically tip the cashier. Occasionally they do, but usually when people cash out, they don't tip the cashier. And there's a lot of other employees in the casino you just don't tip. So why would you tip the person who happens to be processing your tax form? Well, because the tax form is processed after you've hit something 1200 or more. So it became customary, and I don't agree with this. I think this is stupid. But it became customary that basically the person is sharing the wealth. Basically, they've had good fortune, and therefore they should help out the service employee who's bringing them the money and the form. Kind of spread it around. Share their fortune. Well, there's a few problems with this. First of all, $1,200 is not very much money. And often people who hit a $1,200, quote, jackpot are down not just overall, but for the day. I've had it before where I hit a $1,200 or more hand in video poker. And while that's nice to hit, uh, if, if I'm down 4000 for the day and I hit 1200 I'm happy I'm getting closer to even, but uh, I'm not exactly uh, rolling in riches for the day. I'm still down 2800 and overall for the day, I'm still unhappy. So it feels weird to tip someone when I'm down that much and when this, quote, jackpot still leaves me down for the session. Now, they don't know this when they're bringing me the tax form, but I hate that there's an expectation of tipping just because that particular hand, I'm winning something. So it's it's kind of weird that I could be winning with a series of hands that are less than 1200 or more for an individual hand, just a succession of hands that are uh, winning more than I'm losing. And I could be doing well for the day. I could be up 3000 4000 5000 for the day without ever hitting a quote jackpot. And I may need the slot attendant's help. Let's say that uh, a ticket gets stuck in the machine and they have to unjam it for me. They, they may have to do something for me. You're not expected to tip them then. And I'm not expected to tip anybody if I win for the day, even I make a good win for the day, as long as they don't hit a quote jackpot. But if I'm way down for the day and hit a $1,200 quote jackpot, if I don't tip, I'm an asshole. So you see how stupid this is. It's so arbitrary and lame that just because the machine locks up by federal law and and they have to hand pay you, all of a sudden you owe them a tip. However, look, uh, if it's become expected, if you don't do it, then everyone looks at you like you're a jerk. And it's sometimes just better to go along with it as long as it's not too unreasonable. So I will tip like $20 if I get the $1,200 hand pay or something around there. I'm really not going to want to tip more than that. The problem is, and I've noticed this, and anybody who's played video poker or slot machines have noticed this, who try to tip around $20 for like a low four-figure hit, you will see that if you give a tip around $20, some slot attendants are nice and some of them are grateful and someone will say thank you and and smile and, and, and walk away and not act pissed off. 
I've also had other ones snatch it from my hand and storm off. And I'm thinking, damn it, I wish I never tipped that person. Because if you're going to be pissed off about a tip I leave you, then I'd rather have left you zero. Really. I I don't want to tip anybody who's going to resent me for the tip. If you're going to resent me for the tip, I'll give you zero, and I'll either keep the money you're donated to charity or give it to a friend who really needs the money. Because that's a good use of the money. Giving it to someone who hates me for giving it to them, that's a terrible use of money. So if I could see the future that they're going to resent me for my tip, I would leave zero. I'd rather be resented for zero than resented for money I'm actually giving them. So now I'm starting to feel funny about leaving like $20 when I get one of those low hand pays. Because on one hand, I don't want to stiff them. But on the other hand, I don't want to be resented for it. And I can never know until I do it once. And sometimes you get a different attendant than the previous time. So even like on the second hand pay, uh, you can't even know, okay, this this time I won't tip them. You may get a different person. So it's always a weird feeling when it comes to tipping them because you never know what they're expecting. It's not like a restaurant. At a restaurant, you know that it's expected right now that 18% is the standard tip, 15% is kind of the minimum tip, and and, and 20% or more is a good tip. And that's pretty well known at this point. So you know when you're leaving a tip that's good or bad. Now, I adjust it. Like if I'm at an expensive place, I'm going to leave a lesser percentage because you're already tipping so much anyway that you don't need to leave a large percentage. If the bill's very high, then tipping 15% is fine because they're still getting a lot of money. And then the opposite's true. If I'm, go- if I'm, at, a, I'm at a very cheap restaurant where everything on the menu is uh, $6, and uh, if my bill comes out pretty cheap, I'm not going to leave 20% because that's still very little money. Sometimes 20% is less than $3. So, I, so I'll always leave like a minimum of $5, and I'll leave more than $5, even if it's a pretty large percentage of the meal. If the person did like a full-service job, they're like, like they normally do at a restaurant, I feel bad leaving like a, a small tip, even if it is like 20, 25%. So I will adjust it based upon overall check amount, but, but in a typical meal, typical uh, meal that's anywhere from like a, a mid price or lower mid price or upper mid price, I'll leave 18% unless I had some service issues or unless the service is really good and I want to reward them. So th- that's the way I approach tipping with restaurants and it's very predictable. And I, in general, I, I know what they're going to think of my tip. So with these slot machines, it's different. You, you never know what they're expecting of you. You really never know. There's some people that are satisfied with the $20 tip on a $1,200 hand pay. There's others that walk away thinking, what a fucking asshole. Why didn't he give me 100 Why didn't he give me 50 You never know. Well, it gets even harder when you hit something very large. So let's say you hit a jackpot of 120000 What do you leave? Now, some people will reflexively say, oh, well, you got to leave at least 1000 I mean, what's 1000 That's It's uh, less than 1% of 120000 You'll still have 119000 That's a ton of money. I mean, you just, you just want a ton of money. Well, hold on a second. First of all, this person may be down more than 120000 this year. Probably not this session, but maybe this year, maybe over the last two years, maybe lifetime, whatever it is. They're not necessarily rolling in riches. It's not like they just hit a $10 million jackpot where you know that they probably are way up for gambling now lifetime. 120000 people can easily be down that lifetime. They can easily be down that this year or even this month. So you don't know. So first of all, you don't know if this person is up or down. But still, let's even put that aside. The question is, how much of a tip does the slot attendant really deserve for processing federally required paperwork? The job takes a few minutes. It's not hard. It's not strenuous. So why do they deserve a very large tip for that? Why do they deserve a percentage 
necessarily. You're not at a restaurant. Why do they deserve a percentage? Just because you want a lot of money doesn't mean they deserve a lot of money. Similarly, if I'm working for a company and they just had a great year and they just got a a major contract which makes a ton of money for them, they're not expected to hand me a million-dollar bonus as an employee there, as a regular employee. They're not required to share whatever wealth they get with me as a regular employee there. So similarly here, when you're not even an employee at all, when you're a customer who's playing a negative expectation game, you are not expected to leave four-figure or more tips to someone processing paperwork for you for a few minutes. That's all it takes is a few minutes. Do you think somebody deserves $1,000 or more for processing your paperwork for a few minutes? Why don't we look at other jobs? Why don't we look at a, a fast food worker? Let's even work at, look at this uh, $15 minimum wage that everybody wants. Okay, so $15 minimum wage, doing work that's crappy and tedious and sometimes not easy, these minimum wage jobs. Let's look at that. How long would it take working at $15 an hour, ignoring taxes, but how long would it take working $15 an hour to make 1000 Almost 67 hours. 67 hours. So how come that person has to work 67 hours to make $1,000, even getting 15 bucks an hour? And how come the person who's doing a pretty unskilled job filling out paperwork for you, for the federal government, that takes a few minutes, how come they deserve that for a few minutes of work? This is not a doctor with a highly specialized field where they went through many years of expensive medical school and doing a job that very few people can do and they're getting a thousand for a few minutes of work. This is someone who is doing an unskilled job. Why is an unskilled worker getting a thousand dollar tip for a few minutes of work? It doesn't matter who's giving the tip. It doesn't matter what jackpot you've just hit. It matters why are they getting it? And you may say, come on, cheapskate. They just you just hit hundred twenty thousand dollars. Stop worrying about whether they deserve the thousand. And I say, okay, why do they deserve it? What about the janitor who just cleaned the machine before I sat down? Why doesn't he or she deserve it? Why do other employees at the casino not deserve it? Why only the slot attendant? Why are you giving it to the slot attendant and nobody else? Why don't you save the thousand and give it to charity? Why don't you save the thousand and give it to a friend who might be uh, very close to getting evicted from their home? There's a lot of good uses you could make of the thousand dollars if you want to say, well, I'm going to earmark a thousand dollars of this for a good cause. But why does it automatically go to the slot attendant who's processing federal paperwork for you? I don't think it should. I don't think that person should get tipped that much. It's one thing to give them a nominal tip, whatever, you know, the processing paperwork, here's a few bucks because you did it. Here's, here's a 20 for processing my paperwork and bringing it to me. Okay, whatever. Like, they really don't deserve that either. They're, they're, they have a salary job there. But okay, whatever. I, I will give them the, the, the 20. And enjoy. But $1,000 for this? It doesn't matter how much I hit. They, they do not deserve $1,000 for this. If they do, then, then everybody else is underpaid. All the other unskilled workers are underpaid if they get $1,000 for this. You can say, well, they don't do it very often. You know, how, how often do they process jackpots? Well, actually, they, they process jackpots a lot if you think about it. Not for you, but they're going all over the casino doing it. Jackpots are constantly hitting. So some are smaller than others. Some are bigger than others, but they're doing a lot of jackpots. So if you think these people are hurting for money, 
They're not. They're doing very well, these slot attendants at busy casinos. So how did Vital Vegas find out about this? Let's think about it. Well, Vital Vegas, remember he talked about Circa. Vital Vegas promotes Circa all the time. He must have some kind of contract with Circa to promote them. And that's fine. Again, I'm not criticizing that. But he's always talking glowingly about Circa. He's always hanging out at Circa. He's always posting video poker pictures from Circa. he's, He's there a lot at Circa. Okay? So Vital Vegas has a good relationship with Circa, probably a working relationship with Circa. And he was probably there, and someone hit this 120K jackpot, and probably one of these slot attendants that he's gotten to know from hanging out at Circa went up and told him, probably was bitter and went up and told him, hey, that cheapskate, that woman who just won the 120K, that cheapskate gave me $200. Can you believe it? That must have been what happened. How else would he find out? How else would he know what this woman tipped? So he must have been told about it while at Circa by the attendant who was resenting the $200 tip. Now, I bet this woman who hit the 120K thought she was being generous. She probably thought, okay, I just hit 120K. I would not normally tip $200 to a slot attendant, but okay, yeah, I just got 120K, so here's $200. I bet she's going to love it. Then that attendant goes over and is like, freaking cheapskate, freaking bitch, $200. Hey, Vital Vegas, guess what this bitch over here just did? Guess what this cheapskate over here just did to me? I bet that woman has no clue. Unless she saw Vital Vegas' tweet and realized it was about her. Otherwise, I bet she has no clue. I bet she thought that she did a big favor for that slot attendant and made her day. Instead, the slot attendant talked crap about her. You think this woman, if she knew, would feel good about the $200 tip? Or you think she would have wished that she didn't leave it? You think if she knew about this, that this was going to happen, that she would have left... Zero point zero. I know I would. A tip is not automatic. You don't just get it no matter what. Even if it's a standard thing to do, even if it's something that is now ingrained in society, it is still up to the customer. And if the customer is going to be scoffed at or looked down upon, then they should not tip. Especially in a situation like this where there's no standard. And in fact, people are asking Vital Vegas, okay, you don't think 200 was enough here. What's the standard? He says, well, whatever you think is right. They go, no, that's not, that's not a good answer. This woman thought 200 was right and you think it was wrong. So what's the standard? Well, it depends. Again, what's the standard? Well, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Like he wouldn't answer the question. He was dodging the question because I think even he doesn't know. I, I don't think anybody knows what standard. It's possible 1,000 will be looked down upon because 1,000 is less than 1% of 120,000. We even had idiots in this Twitter thread who are saying that if you leave anything less than 10%, you're an asshole. (laughs) Now, these weren't slot attendants, but there are probably some that would scoff at 1% or 2%. So even if you leave 2,500, then they might scoff at it. "Ah, 2%, come on. You never know what's going to make them happy and what's going to make them resent you. So what does this do? It just encourages people to leave zero. And that's what I said back to Vital Vegas. I said, you got to drop this tip-shaming routine. It's not doing much for you here. It's, it's, it's not a good look. You're much better at the, at the Vegas rumors and gossip. And all this is doing is encouraging people to do the opposite of what you think it's going to be doing. You think what you're doing is convincing people to tip well. What you're doing is you're making people think, wait a minute, if I leave $200 on a jackpot, they're going to resent me and look down on me? Well, screw that. I'm going to leave zero then. That's really what I'm starting to think. And 
the more sour faces I get when I leave tips to slot attendants, the more times I'm thinking, you know what, I'm just not going to leave anything next time. I'm just not going to. There's got to be an end to this. And the whole tipping culture thing in the U.S. is so stupid. A lot of times I compare the U.S. to Europe, and I think I'm glad I'm not in Europe, and I don't like how Europe does this, or I don't like how Europe does that. And a lot of times I'm very critical of Europe. But let me tell you, when it comes to tipping culture, Europe has it right. Europe is doing this correctly. The U.S. is doing it wrong. I wish the U.S. was more like Europe with tipping culture. They've, they've totally gotten it the way it should be, where basically tipping is never expected, and it's only done on occasion when someone really feels like something exceptional has happened or they need something extra or want a favor done for them. Other than that, tipping is never automatic, which I think is great. And then, in turn, service employees are paid what they're worth. When I say what they're worth, I mean based upon the job they're doing. So they're not paid minimum wage, but they're also not overpaid. Some of these service employees, because of the massive tips they get, get overpaid. They end up making way more than skilled professions that require a lot of years of school or a lot of skill. So unskilled workers should never be making that type of money. If they are, great. If you're one of them, you're making that money, great. I I give you a thumbs up. You should make the most money you can in an ethical and legal way. So if you're working a job that is unskilled, but you're making a shitload of money on tips, I don't hold it against you. I would do the same thing. Okay, so I'm not looking down on you for that. But I'm also saying you're overpaid. You're fortunate. You should be happy about it, but you're overpaid. So in Europe, it's not like that. In Europe, they pay people more what the job's actually worth, and then people are not being tipped. Instead, in the U.S., they pay them some crap base rate, and then they make up for it with tips, and some of them over make up for it. So there's a lot of problems with uh, tipping culture in the U.S., not just with casinos, but it's full of contradictions and arbitrary standards. Think about hotels. You tip the valet and the bellman, but you don't tip the front desk unless they do you a favor. In casinos, you tip the blackjack dealer and the cocktail waitress, but you don't tip the guy cleaning the public bathroom in that same casino, even if you walk right by him. You tip the server at the restaurant, but very little of that goes to the busboys, the dishwashing crew, and the hostess. They get a little of it, but not enough. And then often the assistant chefs who are doing very hard work will not get tipped at all, and they make far less than the servers. Not fair. Tipping at restaurants is in relation to the cost of the meal, even though it's just as difficult to serve a cheap meal as it is to serve an expensive one. Now, it's true that servers at expensive restaurants sometimes have a little bit of a tougher job because it's a higher standard of the level of service they provide, but they'll sometimes make up to 20 times more in tips than servers at cheap restaurants, and that's definitely not correct. I mean, it's happening, but it shouldn't be happening. Restaurant servers get 18% or more in tips, and those working in the takeout area tend to get a few dollars tip at most, often get nothing. How does that make any sense? You tip the guys driving the shuttle at the airport for lifting your bag on and off the bus, but you don't tip the airline check-in staff for lifting your bag, weighing it, and putting it on the belt. Ever think of that? On cruise ships, you're forced to give mandatory, quote, gratuities, which most cruise lines just simply pocket and use to pay employees. Then there's the whole hand pay situation, which I just described. Hotel maids, they are doing a very tough and gross job 
and they only receive irregular tips and usually not very much. Why are they barely tipped at all and other hotel employees get way over tipped? Blackjack dealers expect tips in proportion to the amount being wagered, even if the player is losing overall, even if the player is losing with them while they're dealing to them, and even though the games are negative expectation. On, in large strip casinos, when they're doing well, these dealers will make uh, 100k a year after tips, but then you're still expected to tip them well, even if you make less than that yourself. You're expected to leave a tip to the person cutting your hair, even if they work for themselves and set their own price. You're expected to tip drivers such as taxi cabs and Uber, even if they work for themselves. You're not expected to tip a repairman who comes to your home and fixes something, even if he doesn't work for himself. You're not expected to tip a fast food employee, even though they tend to make minimum wage and are doing a tough service job. If there's a mandatory auto tip in place, such as an 18% restaurant tip for a large party, or a poker tournament auto tip, you're somehow considered an asshole if you leave an extra 1-2% to because it's, quote, insulting, even though it's perfectly okay in those spots to leave 0% extra. Now, isn't that weird? So I can go on and on with this stuff. A lot of people tip so they can feel like they're a better person. They can feel like that they are better than those who tip less than them. And they don't bother to think, maybe my tipping here is giving the money to the wrong person. If you're trying to be generous, don't tip the dealer at the blackjack table at a high-end strip casino who's already making 100 k a year. You want to be generous to someone who really needs it when you're taking a piss in the bathroom and there's a dude sweeping around there or mopping around there, uh, whip out some money out of your wallet and hand it to him. Some people don't want to accept the harsh truth about tipping. So even if they're informed that their tipping either isn't doing what they think it is or are going to people who are making a lot of money, they panic and they just don't believe you or they try to weakly justify it. Like, for example, the cruise line situation. And I know I've mentioned this before, but I always found it pretty amazing that these mandatory gratuities on cruise lines are actually pocketed by the cruise line and then are used to pay the regular salaries of the employees because there's like a maritime minimum wage they have to pay the employees on there, which is much less than the U.S. minimum wage. As long as they meet that minimum wage in any way, even including tips, then they have met the requirement. So it's legal for them to pay their employees nothing or almost nothing as long as they make it up in tips. So what the cruise line started doing is charging these mandatory tips and then just lowering the employee's pay to almost nothing and then using the tips to pay the mandatory minimum wage. So really, if you look at it, what the cruise lines are really doing is they're pocketing the mandatory gratuities. So when I would bring this up to people on cruise forums, boy, would they get pissed off. They would get furious. They would not believe me. I would show them the proof of this or what seems like 99% proof of this and they still wouldn't believe me. Why? Because they wanted to believe they were good people by tipping. They wanted to believe that by going on a cruise and paying the mandatory gratuity, they've taken care of everybody already, so they don't have to worry about individually tipping people. And if you convince them that all this time they haven't been tipping, boy, they get pissed because they don't want to consider it that maybe they've been cruising all this time without tipping. So it's better to just deny it. It's better to say, no, this idiot on the forum is wrong. I really have been tipping. 
He doesn't know what he's talking about. The, the cruise lines aren't really doing this. No, 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 no. Now, the ones they should be mad at should be the cruise line, not themselves, and they shouldn't feel guilty, and they shouldn't be mad at me. They should be mad at the cruise line for deceiving them in that way. And all the cruise lines do it, by the way, or just about all of them do it. So this is not one particular cruise line I'm talking about. But people do not want to acknowledge this. They want to believe that they've been tipping all this time. Or if you tell them that the blackjack dealer on the at the high-end strip casino is making good money, making 100K a year, and that by tipping them, you're not, quote, helping a minimum wage employee, you're helping someone who's making six figures. Uh, they get very defensive then, too. Why? Because they want to believe that when they're sharing the wealth of their win, that they're helping a person who's struggling, a struggling service employee who's making minimum wage. They want to picture that. They don't want to picture they're helping someone like on their level or maybe even above their level income-wise. So this makes them kind of panic. Wait, shit, did I, was I tipping someone who's out making me? What, was I doing that? Was I sharing the wealth of someone who's doing better than I am? Oh, shit. So they don't want to even consider that. So they start coming up with excuses of either why that's not true or why it's still fine. And I say, well, it is fine. You can do it, but you're not helping someone who needs it. You're just giving money to someone. So if you really want to help someone who needs it, either tip any lower-end casino or tip the, the janitor or tip somebody else that you know is making very little money. That'll make their day. They don't like it because people want to feel good when they tip. They're actually not really trying to help. They hope they're helping, but they just want to feel like they're helping. So Europe doesn't do this. Europe doesn't have any of this. And I I give Europe a big thumbs up for that. Australia doesn't do this. I give them a thumbs up for this. So most of the rest of the world doesn't operate this way. The U.S., I I don't know why it's gotten this way. When I start seeing the tip shaming, I don't like it. I also don't like even when celebrities get tip shamed because a lot of times you don't have the whole story. There was a story of a football player years ago. I'm not talking about the Raiders players now that uh, Vital Vega is talking about, but I'm talking about the Raiders player, not, not Raiders, some, some other football player, some rich football player who was making a shitload of money. And he was actually tip shamed by name. They posted a receipt where he had like a $765 bill and he tipped like $7 or $5, something really insulting looking. Like it was really trying to... Uh, needle them and they put this receipt up showing him tipping so little and there was a lot of social media backlash against this guy you make so much money how could you tip the hard-working employees like this how could you leave an assaulting single dollar tip like this why would you do such a thing you're an asshole you're a cheapskate you're out of touch with uh working class people, you're looking down on them because you make all this money playing sports and and they don't have that ability, so you just look down on them. And a lot of bad things were said to him. This guy was black, by the way. There were also some racist things said to him. Well, guess what? He was in the right. He was justified. Why? Because he had really, really awful service. And finally he spoke up when the manager of the place was asked for comment and the manager basically backed the employee who shared this, which by the way, employees should never be sharing this. Any employee who ever shares somebody else's receipt should get fired. But instead of firing that person, he he basically backed them and said that uh, he was very unhappy when he heard about how this uh, famous rich player stiffed his hardworking staff. 
So uh, th- this implo- this uh, football player couldn't stay quiet anymore, and he finally told the true story. He said that the service was terrible, that they were hardly coming around, that every time he complained, they weren't correcting anything, that they got tons of stuff wrong, they gave him a ton of attitude, that the whole experience was awful, and that he usually leaves good tips, but he left this as a message because the service was just absolutely horrendous there, and he, he couldn't stand it anymore. So he paid the the bill in full, didn't ask for any money off of it, but left this tiny tip to give a message that the service was just absolutely horrendous. And he told a very specific story with a lot of examples that even though I wasn't there and had no way to verify whether he was telling the truth or not, I believed him. It seemed sincere. It seemed accurate. It seemed very detailed. And I thought, okay, this explains it a lot more. He didn't just say, oh, yeah, yeah, the service is kind of bad. No, like he outlined it all in extreme detail. And when confronted about this, the manager sheepishly admitted that there were some service problems. Yeah, you know, we didn't give him the best service. and There, there were some things we've learned from and, uh, you know, there were some things we could have done differently, but he shouldn't leave tips like this. I go, okay. So he was right. He was right. He, he should have been able to leave a tip like that. But the problem is you can't if you're famous because you get shamed for it by assholes and your rep gets destroyed. So if you're a famous person, no matter how shitty the service is, you are stuck leaving a big or at least standard tip or otherwise they shame you and don't tell the rest of the story that they didn't deserve a tip. And I felt so bad for this guy enduring all the social media hate from all of these wannabe do-gooders and people on their high horse and people who didn't want to know the rest of the story, didn't even want to know why this may have happened. That was my first question is why? I thought, wait a minute, before we judge this guy, let's find out why he left that type of tip. Maybe there's a good reason. People going, oh no, there's never a reason to leave a tip like that. Yes, there is. If these servers are very rude, if they won't do their job, if they get things wrong over and over and over again, if they won't correct the problems, if just the whole experience is horrible, yes, there is justification to leave no tip or some sort of tiny tip to leave a message. There, there really is justification for that. But it sucks that when you're famous, you can't do that. But there were some people, even after reading the update of the story, weren't going easier on him and were still posting nasty things and saying, well, you have all this money, you've got to tip that high anyway. Well, I agree you have to because people will misconstrue what you did, but you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't be expected to leave a 20% tip if the service was horrendous. I don't care if you're famous. But it sucks that if you don't, that you have the self-righteous people on social media shaming you otherwise, and they're refusing to listen to the actual details. That's why I hate tip shaming. You don't know the whole story. I don't leave zero tip often. Only once in a while will I leave a zero tip. And when I leave a zero tip, it's because I had to complain to the manager about the server. If I have to complain about the kitchen being slow or something, then I'm not going to punish the server. But if the server is terrible to the point where I have to complain, then I'm not going to leave them a tip. If I actually have to complain about them to their boss, I'm not going to leave them a tip. But I know people who will still leave a tip after complaining about a server to their boss. And they feel like either they have to, or they're expected to, or it makes them a bad person not to. No. You tip someone if they do their job, and if they're not outright rude to you. You don't need them to kiss your ass. 
you don't need everything to be perfect. But if they are outright rude or won't do their job, then no, you, you're not expected to leave a tip. And don't. So that's why tip shaming doesn't tell the whole story. You can't just show someone leaving a zero tip and assume that that person's bad. There are cases where it's justified. So that's why I don't like what Vital Vegas is doing. It really isn't up to others to decide what is the right tip because you never know the whole story. Now, does that mean there aren't cheapskates out there who stiff servers? No, there are. There are people who are cheap and don't tip or under tip just because they either don't know better or they just don't care. So I can understand if you're working in a service position and you're kind of expecting to make a certain amount of money every day from tips and you're getting stiff time and time again that you get pissed. Or even if just some people here and there stiff you, you just kind of feel like that they shouldn't be doing this. They should know better if they're going to go out to eat. And you know, I agree with that to a degree. But everybody should have a right to determine what tip they're going to leave. And it's between you and the server about what you're going to leave and you should not be shamed for it. And I think businesses should never, ever, ever post receipts of people who were there and left tips that were too low unless they're sure to block out all that person's information. But even then, they shouldn't do it. It just shouldn't happen. This should be something that each person has an option to do. And if a server gets stiffed and did a perfectly fine job, they say, okay, well, this sucks, but that's the way it goes. And fortunately, I have some people who over-tip, so it'll make up for it. So I'm not defending under-tippers. I'm just saying that tip-shaming needs to stop, and especially involving casinos and people like slot attendants. I mean, it, that shouldn't happen. Okay, so I got one more topic. If we don't get Brandon, then we'll have to complete this here. Blockchain.com is a site that I have been advising people to use as a middleman when they're doing cryptocurrency transactions between themselves and gambling sites. And that is because if you use a US-based wallet like Coinbase or Binance or Gemini or any of the others, that if they notice that you are transferring coin between your wallet and a gambling site, you will get shut down. You'll be able to get your money, but they're going to kick you off. And there's only so many of these out there, so you don't want to get banned from them. It will happen eventually. You may say, wait a minute, I, I used uh, Coinbase and I deposited to Bovada and I cashed out to Bovada and nothing happened to me. And this was six months ago. Well, congratulations, you dodged it, but you may not dodge it again. Much like uh, you could drink yourself into a 0.20 blood alcohol level and go take a drive for 20 miles and you could come back home perfectly fine not having hit anything and congratulations you, you you got home without anything bad happening but i would say you don't ever do that again because you were definitely doing something very dangerous for yourself and others so just because you get away with something that could have had a bad result doesn't mean you should do it again so while Using Bitcoin through a wallet is not putting others in danger. It is putting your account in danger. And I've told you guys for a long time, do not do that. If you have before, stop and use a middleman wallet. A middleman wallet is where you send your Bitcoin to the middleman first and then send it to or from the gambling site. So if you're cashing out, you send it from the site 
to the middleman site to your wallet. If you're depositing, you send it from your wallet to the middleman site to the gambling site. And some people don't like this middle step because it increases the amount of time and also it puts extra steps into the whole thing. And some people just want to deposit as fast as possible and get to gambling. And I understand that, but that's going to get you banned from these wallets and there aren't that many of them. So I really, really recommend you don't do that. But I've said this before. I've said this for years and I had been suggesting blockchain.com as a good middleman site that has been trustworthy for many years and never stiffed anybody. And they don't care if you do any transactions with gambling sites. But that was then, and this is now. You no longer should be using blockchain.com because now they will also ban you for doing transactions with gambling sites. This is because blockchain.com has expanded and now has allowed you to buy and sell cryptocurrency for U.S. dollars. So in order to comply with U.S. government regulations, they have to make sure that you're not using it for illegal gambling. They don't want to do this, but they have to. So that has changed the whole situation for blockchain.com. Now, if you'd like to use them to buy and sell cryptocurrency, then by all means do it. But you should not use them to send money to and from gambling sites. So you may ask, well, okay, I can't use blockchain for it anymore, and I can't use Coinbase or the other wallets. What do I do? How do I get money to or from Bovada or whatever other site that I'm playing on? And my answer is find a different middleman wallet. So you can research this yourself and decide on the best one for you. People are reporting on 2 plus 2 that they are getting warning letters from blockchain.com that if they ever do a transaction with a gambling site again, they're going to get their account closed and their balance confiscated. So they said, right, not confiscated, they said they're going to get their balance, their account closed and then if they try to re-sign up, they will get their balance confiscated. And several people have posted about this. So it's definitely not just someone posting this to troll. So don't use blockchain anymore. Definitely, you, you have to find one that is kind of like what blockchain used to be and instead is something that is not going to clamp down on you for uh, making gambling transactions. Again, you may be wondering, uh, what should you be using? So you can do your own research on this. Uh, there's one called uh, Exodus that some people have been using. Yeah, that's that's the one of I know of right now. But there's others too. The requirement to make sure that uh, gambling transactions are not done is actually part of the uh, UIGEA. And it's part of the uh, due diligence requirement. 
and it says that uh, they have to they need their due diligence they need to use codes to identify restricted transactions and ongoing monitoring for codes and uh, to look for restricted transaction procedures so so basically they they have to constantly be checking that people are not using these services for illegal gambling otherwise they can be seen as an accomplice to illegal gambling if they decide to turn a blind eye to it so the while they're not going to be punished if it gets by them and they're doing everything they can to identify it if it becomes clear to regulators that these uh, financial institutions including any kind of wallet that they're not making any attempt to identify these transactions or not doing enough then they can get in trouble that's why in fact sometimes when you'll sign up for bank accounts they will actually make you either disclose whether you're going to be an online gambler or whether you're currently an online gambler and they may actually not let you get an account if you say you are an online gambler even if you're not going to use them for online gambling or they have you agree that if you transfer any money from online gambling into your account that they can close your account you'll get your money they can't keep your money they're not paypal but uh they can close your account and you're actually agreeing to let them close your account and you're agreeing you're not going to use them for online gambling now not all banks will do this but some will actually make you sign that these days so this is a federal government requirement as part of the uigea passed in 2006 and now blockchain is complying with that so definitely don't use them anymore trader risky do you have a blockchain account i sure do yeah so i'm gonna have to go back and listen to that part yeah don't don't use it anymore for online gambling sites. Wow. So how would you how would you deposit money then? Well, that's what we're looking at right now. I just found this out yesterday, so I haven't done a lot of research yet, but uh, I, I see Exodus is one that some people have been using. And uh, I, I'm not 100% sure that's... I'm not 100% sure that one's safe yet. I'll give you guys an update next week. But what I'm saying right now, I haven't had the time since I heard about this. I heard about this... Uh, Less than 24 hours ago. But there's a, there's a discussion right now on 2 Plus 2 in various places of people saying they've gotten these letters that or, or emails that they're about to get their account closed if they do this again. So some people are discussing Exodus as an alternative. But uh, this is going to be a problem for a lot of people unless they find something that is going to work well but definitely don't use blockchain anymore because they, they're looking out for this and people are getting emails if i could find brandon tonight he said he found a few of them that were options though he haven't really he hasn't really chosen one yet and i haven't either but yeah be aware of this and don't just shrug it off and go, ah, you know, I'll, I'll figure this out later. I'll use blockchain still. No, you stop right now because uh, your account could end up being shut down or frozen. You never know what they're going to do. Right now, they're just sending out warning letters, but it, it may escalate beyond that. So what I recommend with blockchain is two things. Number one, don't use them for crypto transactions with gambling sites ever again. 
And number two, uh, take the money off there because you have used it for gambling transactions in the past and they could even go back and make things difficult for you based on that. So I, I would just get your money off there because uh, there really isn't a point to have them now if they're not going to be the intermediary site that we've all been using it for. It's it's sad. I mean, it's, it's adding another hurdle to online gambling on these offshore sites. But please take this seriously. Don't use Coinbase for it. I have people I know that do this, that send it directly from Coinbase. And I say, no, 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 no. And they, they almost like don't believe me. Like they, they know I'm not lying, but they think I'm exaggerating. They're like, ah, I never had a problem before. I'll just do it. No, don't. Because you're going to get shut down. It's going to be pain in the ass to get your money off. You'll get it, but then you can't use them again. So you want to leave yourself with as many options as possible. You may say, well, okay, I'll move to one of the others. Well, what happens if all the others eventually shut down and the one you're banned from is the only remaining exchange in the U.S.? Do you want that? And you can't use it? Good luck. So you really want to leave yourself with every option possible right now with these wallets. So I'm still looking into this, and you you can do your own research. Just make sure whatever intermediary wallet you choose, that is one that is trusted, that doesn't have scam reports against it, and also one that does not allow you to buy and sell cryptocurrency using U.S. dollars through your bank account. If you can buy cryptocurrency or sell cryptocurrency and transfer the U.S. dollars to your bank account on that site then you probably don't want to use it. I haven't looked if uh, Exodus is one like this. Let me see. I'm not sure if if Exodus allows you to actually buy and sell cryptocurrency with U.S. dollars. Okay, so let me see. Let me look at their support here. How do you buy Bitcoin and buy cryptocurrency in Exodus? Exodus supports the ability to buy Bitcoin with your fiat currency on your mobile device. This means you're not currently able to purchase the, any cryptocurrency from within Exodus in your desktop. Okay, so you can do it on an app. And how would you do that? Something called Mobile Exodus. See, I'm not even sure. The funny thing is they're referring you to Coinbase to purchase Bitcoin with fiat money. So I don't know. This will require some research. I don't want to push people to Exodus and have this be wrong and then have them get confiscated or frozen. So at the moment, what I can tell you, you're not going to like this, but my answer right now is do your own research because I didn't have time to do mine. I will be doing it in the next week for sure. So if you want to stay tuned until next week, then I'll tell you the answer to this, in my opinion. I'll discuss it with Brandon again. I actually got this information from Brandon. He told me this last night. Have you heard from Trader Ruski? He was going to come on this show, and then he wasn't there. Um, I spoke to him yesterday morning or the one before. Okay. Yeah, I, I spoke Maybe to him yeah, like 24 hours ago. So. Yeah. I, I guess he is uh, missing in action right now. Uh, that's it. That's all I have for now. Oh no, I have one more thing. Sorry, I have one more thing. So, Trader Risky, we're not we're not letting you go just yet. The third vaccine shot, the Pfizer and Moderna. If you need a third shot, uh, what are the side effects going to be? I know we discussed this a little bit last week, but 
I've become more and more curious about this third shot and how one would expect to feel on that third shot. So I looked more into it over the last few days because soon enough I'm going to be eligible to get this and I'm going to want to make the decision whether I should get it as soon as eligible or if I should wait and see how other people experience it, what goes on with them. So I'm not as much of a guinea pig. Uh, I didn't have to make this decision with the first two shots because by the time I was eligible, it was months after the population was receiving it. And even though it was really aimed mostly at old people, there were a lot of people my age and younger that got it early. And there were various ways they did that. Some of them did in the way they were supposed to. Some of them didn't, but whatever. Uh, I guess what the government mainly cared about is that people get it. So I got to hear from a lot of people and I got to look at the experiences online from a lot of people that were around my age that got the vaccine. And when I went in to get the Pfizer vaccine, people had months of experience with this already and I knew what to expect. And I knew that maybe I'd get away without uh, a bad reaction on the second shot and maybe I wouldn't. It was kind of 50-50 and uh, I, I fell on the wrong side. I got the bad reaction. But it wasn't a shock to me. The only surprising aspect of it was I got it a longer time after the shot than I expected. I thought it would be in the first uh, six hours. Instead, it happened after about 13 hours, which was disappointing because I thought I dodged it. But anyway, at least I expected overall that there was a probably 50-50 chance that I would get a fairly bad reaction to it, and I did. Now, it's a temporary reaction, so once that was done, it didn't affect me, and I went back to normal. But it was unpleasant, and I didn't take any medication because... I wanted to make sure it worked well and I didn't want to interfere with it or any kind of painkiller. So that was also something crappy is I couldn't take anything to make myself feel better. So the third shot, I wondered, could this be worse? Because remember, the second shot's worse than the first. Substantially worse for a lot of people, including me. So is the third shot going to be substantially worse than the second, which would be really crappy? So not that it would keep me from getting it, but I do want to know what to expect, number one. And number two, they haven't totally proved yet that the third shot is going to do a lot for you. Now, there's a study out of Israel, which is encouraging, which shows that people did a lot better after getting this third shot compared to those that only had two. But I do want to say these were old people. These were people over 60, some of them way over 60. So maybe it's a different situation for them. Maybe they didn't get as strong of an immune response from the two shots as I did because I don't have a depressed immune system yet like a lot of old people do. So maybe the benefit they got from it is very different than the benefit I would get from it. Maybe it's going to be found out that 50-year-olds typically don't get very much benefit from a third shot. And maybe it's going to be found that people my age get a very bad reaction to it And it's very, very unpleasant, much worse than the second shot. And then it turns out it doesn't do much for you. Now, that would be a pisser. It's one thing to go through a bad reaction for something that's going to help you fight off COVID. It's another thing to get a bad reaction and find out, oh, this is kind of useless. So waiting will answer a lot of these questions. I looked at the studies out of Israel. Remember, Israel doesn't have a big population. And Israel gave a lot of third shots, but they gave it to old people mostly. 
few people got it who were immunocompromised and under 60, but everybody else was over 60. And then they sent out a survey for people to answer about their experience of the third shot. In that survey, 88% of the people said it was similar or not as bad as the second shot. I wish they had both, similar and not as bad. I wish those were separated. But similar or not as bad as the second shot. And 12% said worse than the second shot. Well, that may sound good, but 12% chance that it's worse than the second shot kind of sucks. <laughs> if you think about it, 12% is not like 1%. 12% is kind of like 1 in 8. So that kind of sucks. You have a 1 in 8 chance of being even worse than the second shot. And 0.4% reported that not only was it bad, but that they had breathing difficulties. Now, as far as I know, nobody died in Israel or was seriously damaged from the third shot. But imagine breathing difficulties from this. That wouldn't be nice. (laughs) I would hate that. It's very scary. So there just isn't that much known about it yet, this third shot. The people who were old and got it figured that they were among the first to get it because Israel got the whole country vaccinated quicker than the U.S. did. They were the fastest country to do it. So it's been a long time since a lot of these people got the second shot. A lot of them uh, got the second shot back in January. So that's why the third shot was being given to anyone over 60 who had the second shot more than six months prior. So while they are getting encouraging results from this booster shot, the questions I have are, number one, how much is it going to do for me since I'm younger than everybody or just about everybody who got this shot by at least 10 years? And the truth is, my body at this age is very different than the body of a 70-year-old or an 80-year-old. There's a very big difference at that point. There's a much bigger difference between my body and a 70-year-old than my body and a 30-year-old. Now, there are some differences between my body and a 30-year-old, and that's why I am much more susceptible to bad outcomes from COVID as a 30-year-old or compared to a 30-year-old. But there's a bigger difference between my body and a 70-year-old's body, especially my body of an 80-year-old's body. They're susceptible to way more problems than I am at those ages. So it's hard for me to judge their experience both with side effects and with a gain from that booster compared to what I can expect my experience to be. So as I said, time will answer these questions. They're going to study this as more people get the third shot and they're going to learn, number one, is it helping? And number two, who is it helping? And number three, how are the side effects? Now, I'm a little afraid they're not going to be totally honest about the side effects because they don't want to scare people away from it. They did that somewhat with the second shot of the Pfizer and Moderna. They very much underplayed your chance of having bad reactions. And if you try to look up the stats, it was a joke. It's like, well, 3% of the people were reporting headaches. I'm like, what? Uh, 6% reporting fever. I, bullshit. It was not 6% reporting fever. It, it's just not true. Like those percentages I was reading were way off I don't just mean a little bit off, way off from the experiences that I have seen reported among the wide group of people that I have access to because of my membership in the poker community. And people 
post their results. And so, so I, I can see the experience of, of a lot of strangers they don't talk to or even know very well personally or know at all personally. And, and I get to see how many had no reaction, how many had just arm pain, how many had a fever, how many had a headache. Like, I can't give you percentages, but it wasn't like 6% that were getting fevers. Way above that. So I, I wasn't so unlucky that I was like one out of every 16 people getting a fever and that was me. No, no, no. It looked to me about 50-50. Now, if someone told me it's 40-60, would I believe it? Yeah. Though if someone told me it's 60-40 the other way, I'd believe it too. It kind of seemed about half and half. Trader Risky, if people you knew, what percentage would you say got uh, side effects that were illness, like like fever and headache and things that were pretty unpleasant for the second shot? I think about 6%. No, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, yeah, I'd say it was probably closer to a third. A third? Okay, so you saw about a third. I saw about a half, but it way more than 6%. So, like, I, I'm afraid that that was on purpose. I'm afraid that they did not want to discourage people. They didn't want to say, well, you know, half of you or a third of you are going to be pretty damn sick for a day or two. Like, I, I think that's going to scare people away. I think they realize it's going to scare people away, so they didn't want to be honest about it. And, and I kind of knew that going in because the time, by the time I got the vaccine, I just saw so many people reporting that it kicked their ass on the second shot. The first shot, like, everybody seemed fine with. Like, a small percentage of people were saying they got a bad reaction from it, but the vast, vast majority were saying it was just arm pain, and it kind of, like, moderately sucked, like, trying to sleep the first night. But other than that, I was fine. And that was my experience, that it was arm pain. It was a little bit bothersome, but my only issue with it was trying to sleep because I'd turn over to that side and go, ow, and I'd wake up, and then I'd have to turn back over. Uh, other than that, it, it wasn't a problem. But the second shot, I had the arm pain also, but... but boy, I I got sick from it. So I'm not looking forward to that again. Now, a listener, because I requested last week for listeners to tell me about their experience with the third shot. A listener told me that uh, their fiance, who is my age and did not have COVID, just like me, I haven't had COVID, uh, got the third shot and it was kind of like the first one that she had just the arm pain and that was it. And that she had a similar experience to me with the second shot. So she had a very similar profile to me. Same age, mild first shot, like pretty much everybody, crappy second shot, mild third shot. So I thought, okay, that's encouraging. So I'd like to see more of that. But who knows? It's just one person. I I was looking for someone of that profile because I... Like Master Scaler, he got the third shot. But he already had COVID before. So, you know, what, what does that say? He had COVID before and he also didn't get a bad reaction with the second shot. So that doesn't really answer much for me, even though he's close to my age. So I'm really looking for someone who didn't have COVID and had a bad reaction with the second shot, how they felt in the third shot. So it was encouraging to have that one anecdotal report. And I thank that listener for sending that to me. But I, I also want to know about more. And I'd really love to see a study of this of thousands of people or tens of thousands of people and then at least I know what to expect. I'm not saying I won't do it. Like, let's say I'm seeing that a number of people get sicker than I did for the second shot. And it was just really crappy for two days. Well, if I see that it really helps you and that it doesn't cause any permanent problems and you just get over it and it's just two really crappy days, uh, I'll do it anyway. But at least I know what to brace for. I just hate the unknown with it. That was one thing that sucked the worst about my second shot was that it didn't follow a completely typical pattern. It seemed like everybody I knew 
was over it all after 24 hours, and with me, the thing lasted about 60 hours. So once it blew way past the time when I expected it to be done, then I didn't know how long it was going to last. I didn't know if it was going to drag on for a week. I even heard of a few very unlucky people who had uh, symptoms for a very long time after the shot. This was uncommon, but I actually knew one or two who did, so I was worried I'd be like them. Fortunately, I wasn't. Fortunately, mine ended after about 60 hours, but that was still way more than I was expecting. So at one point, it became like the unknown, okay, when's this going to be done? I wasn't worried. I didn't think I'm going to be stuck with it forever or it's going to kill me or anything, but I I was unhappy that it, it was no longer predictable like I thought it was. So I want to know what people are experiencing so in general I can know what to expect from it and I want to know if it's worth doing. But if it is providing some benefit, even if it's a moderate benefit, it doesn't have to be tremendous benefit, I'll do it. Because I don't want to get COVID and I don't want to die from COVID. I don't want to get lung damage. I don't want to be in the hospital. I don't want to be in a ventilator. I don't want any of that stuff. And I know at that at my age, all of this is possible. Now, it's very possible that I could just completely have a non-issue with COVID. I could be asymptomatic. I could get it very mildly. But I also could not. Then there's actually Benjamin's theory. Benjamin's theory is that the reaction you get from the second shot is representative of how you're going to experience COVID. So if you get a bad reaction from the second shot, you're going to have, you would have a bad time with actual COVID. <laughs> that's the theory from a 10-year-old, but uh, that, that's his theory, which I don't know. Maybe there's something to that. It's, it's not like hard to believe that could be the case. So I'm not anti-third shot here. The reason that I'm a little worried about it, though, is because... had a worse time with it. And also these were older people whose immune systems aren't as strong and thus maybe their reaction wouldn't be as strong. Because what the reaction is, when you're getting the third shot, you're actually, your body isn't getting harmed by it. What's happening is your body is mounting a defense to it. Your body is being tricked into believing it has COVID and it mounts a defense and it learns how to fight COVID. So when you get real COVID, your body's much better fighting it. That's, that's what the vaccine's doing. So you're actually being injected with something with similarities to COVID, but it's actually not a virus. It just looks like it to your body. So your body develops the defense to it. Someone who has an immune system that isn't as active and isn't as strong and isn't as good because they're elderly, their body may not bring up the same defense to it like mine would. So mine might mount a very strong defense to it and that might get me sick because that's what's getting you sick is your body adjusting to fight the virus or what it thinks is a virus, even though you've been injected with a fake virus. So while I'm not worried about it harming me, I'm worried about uh, what if my body now does it even stronger than the second one. That would really suck. Some people described the way they felt from the second shot as the sickest they've ever been. That was not my experience. I wasn't the sickest they've ever been. I've been sicker than that before. I've been much sicker before. But it felt like I had the flu. And also, I got this indirect headache from it, from spending so much time in bed, because I did have a lot of fatigue. I kept going back to bed. I'd be up for a short time. I'd go, oh, I'm tired again. i got to get back in bed. So I kept getting in bed, and, and I was in bed most of those those days, those two and a half days, and what happened is all that time in bed caused me to get a tension headache from being in bed so long, 
and I couldn't take anything for it. And my tension headaches will get worse and worse and worse until I take something. And if I go to sleep, it'll be right there for me when I wake up. So the only way to stop him is to take something for it. And I couldn't take anything for it. So I had this tension headache that I knew I could get rid of if I, if I took something for it, but I couldn't take something for it. So I had to just sit there and tolerate it for two and a half days until finally, uh, once the side effects stopped, then I knew my body was done fighting it. And then I, was, I went and took the aspirin and it went away. So I'm not looking forward to that either. And I didn't even think of that before the second shot. But I will say the second shot didn't bring me a headache, whereas it brought a horrible headache to my mom. She said one of the worst in her life. And same to my sister. So here people directly related to me got this horrible headache, which I dodged, but then I got a different type of headache, an indirect headache because I was in bed so long. But who knows? Maybe the third shot will bring me that horrible headache. And they both got Pfizer too? One of them got Pfizer, one of them got Moderna, and uh, one of them, I forgot which one of them, got nauseous and threw up, too. Uh, And one of them didn't. But I only got a very brief bout of nausea, thankfully, and I didn't throw up. So that, and that's I'm worried about, too. I I really hate the feeling of being nauseous and throwing up. I hate both of those things. So I was like, like, I was going a while being sick. I'm like, well, at least I'm not nauseous. And then one morning, I'm like, oh, crap. It was like kind of deep into it, too. That, like, I should have been better by then. And instead of, I wasn't better. And then I started feeling nauseous. And then I, I was able to stop it by blowing a fan on myself. And then it went away. So fortunately, I only had a, rather like a half an hour bout with that and didn't throw up. I could have thrown up if I didn't get that. Like, if I didn't get that fan, I probably would have thrown up. But. Some people are just like throwing up over and over. Like, like that sounds like awful. And same with like the just killer headache that's so bad you can't stand it. So those could hit me too on the third one. So I, I'm, I'm definitely not looking forward to that part of it. Like in a way, I'm kind of hoping I just get something equivalent to the second one as crappy as it was. Maybe I'll get lucky like that listener's fiance and just get something similar to the first shot and just have my arm hurt. But whenever it is, I will kind of set an expectation that I won't be doing much in the next few days and maybe the next week because I, I was just not right for the whole week after that shot. I mentioned that last week. But anyway, what I'm trying to tell people here is don't be too influenced by that study out of Israel about the side effects because this is for people 60 and over. Now, if you're 60 or over, then yes, be influenced by it because then that probably represents what you're gonna, the chances of what you're going to get from it. I'm just afraid it, it, it isn't too meaningful for me because even though I'm like 10 and a half years away from 60, which isn't super far, it's also not that close. And also things start to really change about your body around that point. So I still don't think that is that representative of what would happen to someone my age. So I think I'm just going to wait. And it's, it's a tough decision because I do want the extra protection if there is extra protection to be gotten from this and I am afraid of Delta somewhat but I also would like to know what to expect with this third shot and I kind of feel like there's too little known in fact I'm even seeing some kind of unnerving concessions from the medical community that the safety of the third shot is not even known they kind of admit they know very little about it and there's a chance this could be dangerous not a big chance but there's uh, some chance that there's some things about it that could happen that aren't known yet. Now, as I said, in Israel, it was fine, but these were old people, maybe 
what if it does some bad things to people who are younger that aren't really known yet because there haven't been many people who are under 60 who have taken this third shot. So I'm like, you know what? As much as I don't want to get the Delta variant, I think I might wait until we know a bit more about the third shot. That is, I think, what I'm going to do. I'll probably ultimately get it. But at first I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to rush out as soon as I can and get this thing. And then I'm like, nope, I, I think I'm going to wait. What about you, Trader Risky? How do you feel about this third shot? I think by the time it comes around where I'm, you know, available to take it, I think I'm sure I'll be comfortable with people taking it so far, and I'm ready to do it. It's supposed to increase it like eight times, right? Well, that's the antibodies, but then there's the theory that the antibodies don't really matter that much. It's more of your body to produce them. So just creating... Inducing your body to create antibodies when it already knows how to do it is not really doing you very much good. And then if your your body remembers how to do it anyway, that's really all you need. So some people are saying this is going to be useless. And some people are saying that the reason the old people are getting benefit from it is because their immune system is different. Their immune system is weaker and it does need this help. But if you have a healthy immune system, then this is this might be useless. That's uh, There has been the, that theory from legitimate voices in the medical community. Now, they're not saying we're, they're 100% certain it's useless, and there's some who are very pro the booster and say it definitely helps. There's not a lot of people saying it's harmful. So there is a general consensus that it's not going to weaken your immunity against COVID-19. And there's a general consensus that it probably is not going to harm you in a different way that once you got through the first two shots and you're fine, that this is going to basically not do anything more to you, that you're going to be fine with this too. However, they do concede they know very little about it, and there is a chance that there are some things that could happen that they're not aware of. So uh, that's a little unnerving. <laughs> a lot of this, people are flying by the seat of their pants and taking guesses, and you you have to just pick the least bad option. And that, that's what I've been explaining to people who are anti-vax, that taking the vaccine is the least bad option. And that's, I think, the message that should be put out there instead of bullshit that the vaccine is totally safe and it totally had enough testing. Because they know that's not true. And they just ignore you when you put out that message. I say put out the message that it's the least bad option, that the COVID is worse. So it's this or COVID. If you're unvaccinated, then the chance of COVID killing you or doing something very bad to you is much higher. And the data shows that. So... It's it's either take this vaccine where we don't know everything, but so far so good with it. For the most part, it looks pretty good. Or 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 get COVID where your outcome is, the chance of a bad outcome is much, much worse than people who are unvaccinated. So overall, it's, it's a much better decision to take the vaccine. The risk to you is much, much less to take it than to not take it. And I, I think if they were just honest with people and put out that message, I think you'd get more people being willing to do it. I, I compare it sometimes to a situation. This is going to sound a weird, like a weird comparison, but there was a situation where I think it was like an 05 or 06. I was on inner poker and we were in a six max game and it was me and four other pros and a big fish in the game. And the big fish sat out and everybody goes, sit out, sit out, sit out, sit out, sit out. Nobody posted the blind. And the fish is like, well, what the fuck? <laughs> What's going on here? 
The fish sits in, sit in, sit in, sit in, sit in, sit in. Fish tries another test, sit back out. Sit out, sit out, sit out, sit out, sit out. So the fish types, WTF, what's going on here? You guys cheating me? What's going on? Why are you guys sitting out when I sit out? Why are you sitting in when I sit in? Why are you doing this? Everybody just sat there quiet. Nobody knew what to say. They, were, they thought that just not saying anything is the answer. The guy goes, are you cheating me? You guys cheating? You have to be cheating me. It's the only reason you guys would only play when I'm going to play. Why would you do that? Everybody's sitting there quiet. No one knows what to say. And I'm thinking there, like, what should I say? Should I tell the guy he's a fish? Like, like what should I do? It kind of feels like if I don't say anything, he's going to assume the worst. So I finally spoke up and I said, okay, would you like to know the truth? He said, yes. I said, okay, the reason we are waiting for you to sit in is because we all know each other and we all know that all of us are pretty good players. You are new here. So we assume that any new player that we don't know probably isn't very good. So everybody wants to play against you because you're the new guy and everybody assumes you're not good. Now, I didn't want to be totally harsh about it and say you're a fish and you're awful and we all know you're awful and we're going to lose your money to us or we're waiting for you. We don't want to play each other. That was the absolute truth. But if I said that, then he may have thought better of continuing playing or felt insulted. So I wanted to say it in a way where he could keep his dignity and also where I wasn't lying to him and also where the story made sense to him. So I, what I said wasn't true, wasn't untrue that we assume that someone we don't know who sits with us is probably bad. That, that was what we assumed. That's why we would sit with him in the first place. Then what I left out is that we had been playing him and that he was bad. But what I said that we assumed he's bad because we don't know him and we know each other, that was the truth. And to him, it made sense. And he says, oh, okay, yeah, that totally makes sense. Okay, well, thanks for being honest with me. And I said, no problem. And everybody sat back in and he sat back in and we continued playing. Sometimes just being honest with the person is the better policy, even if you're telling them something that uh, is unpleasant or semi-unpleasant. It's better than not telling them anything or telling them what you think sounds the best, and they assume the worst, because either your story isn't believable or you're not telling them a story. So I think with the vaccine, you can learn the same lesson. You can try to tell everybody that it's totally safe, it's totally fine, follow the science, blah, blah, blah. You, You could say that, or you could say, yeah, your concern is warranted. I understand. It is experimental. There are some things we don't know. There may be long-term effects, but COVID's worse. And it has its own long-term effects. And it can kill you right now. And it's much higher, much more likely to kill you and much more likely to harm you, even if it doesn't kill you, than this vaccine is. And we know that for sure. So you're, you're taking the option which is the least unpleasant. It's like what I told the fish. You know, I wasn't going to sugarcoat. I wasn't going to just say, uh, I wasn't going to say, oh, we, we all think you're good, but, uh, you know, we only want to play with each other. Like, I don't even know what I would have said. That could have been a viable excuse. But, like, I, I had to tell him we thought he sucked, but in a polite way. I, I just kind of left him an out to believe that he doesn't suck by saying that we're assuming he sucks because he's new. So he can think to himself, oh, well, if they only knew I'm a good player. So this way he can, he can think that he's just being wrongly assumed this way. I think that's a, a mistake which is being made with the messaging. And there are unknowns with this. And some of these are unknowns. Some of these unknowns are what are keeping me from it. And it's been uh, about four months since I was fully vaccinated. 
So it's not like some of these other people who have been fully vaccinated for six months, seven months, eight months. The recommendation from the CDC is you wait eight months, but I recommend you do it earlier. If you have already been vaccinated for six or more months at this point, you probably are old. Maybe because you're a healthcare worker, but uh, either way, it's probably better off getting a booster because if you're a healthcare worker, your exposure is very high to COVID. And if you are old, then your consequences of COVID are much worse. And you already can refer to those studies out of Israel with other old people getting this third shot. So you can feel more comfortable getting it. If you're younger and there hasn't been much data yet on how it's affecting young people, uh, you're probably better off waiting. But once you have enough data to determine that you think the side effects are reasonable for what you're willing to take and that it's going to help you if that's what comes out about it, which there's a good chance is going to be the result, then I would recommend doing it at the six-month mark or before. I'm not sure what they're going to do regarding allowing you to take it. I know they're recommending eight months, but if you show up after it's been six months and say, hey, I just want to add six months, are they going to refuse you? I have a feeling they won't. I have a feeling just if you show up and say you want it because it's been six months, I think they're just going to give it to you. But we'll see. But It depends how much interest is in it. If there's a lot of interest where they have to start turning people away until they get it to the people who need it the most, then yes, they may start asking that and turning you away if you give the answer that doesn't make you qualified. But I have a feeling there's going to be less interest in this than the first vaccine by a wide margin. I think some people have vaccine fatigue at this point. Some people don't want to repeat those side effects from the second shot. And I think there's going to be a lot of people who will not be clamoring for it at the beginning. So like, I, I think September 20th is the date that they're opening this up to the general public. And I have a feeling that anyone could probably walk in on September 20th and get it. Maybe not, but that's what I think is going to happen if I had to guess. So if it's been six months, which would be you getting the second shot on March 20th, then I would recommend doing it. I wouldn't wait the eight months. Now, Delta may not last that many more months. Delta may be on its way out soon enough. We don't know yet, but uh, that's what it's done in other countries. So Delta may not be here to stay. But who knows? Maybe it is, or maybe it'll be longer. It's not going to be here forever, but then there'll be other variants behind it. U.S. still having a lot of COVID problems. Uh, 190,000 verified cases yesterday in the U.S., new cases, that is. And there were at least 1,300 verified deaths yesterday from COVID, most of them being unvaccinated people, but some being vaccinated, most of them being old. Some states are worse than others. Texas having an issue right now. Florida having an issue right now. Uh, California, it kind of appears it's having an issue, but you have to remember California has a 40 million population. So like to compare it to places like 10 million, you got to divide by four. So if you do that, it doesn't look quite as bad. But 
it is uh, still worse than average in California right now with worse ca- with the average number of cases. But 190,000 new COVID cases is a lot. Remember, we were seeing well under 10,000 when things looked the best, when Delta wasn't a factor yet. So we got COVID very much under control at one point, and now it's uh, ramping up again. Now, it's mainly hitting unvaccinated people who didn't previously have COVID that dodged it somehow. And since it's more contagious... Now it's uh, smacking them pretty hard. So that, that's that's where these numbers are coming from. That's that's why these numbers look so high. The deaths are still much less than they used to be before the days of the vaccine, and that's because the vaccinated people skew older. So most old people have been vaccinated, and they were most of the deaths in the past and in the present too. So. Because the new caseload is skewing younger, you have a much lower death rate just from that. But still, 1,300 people is a lot in a day, considering that a lot of people uh, who got this are, are fairly young. Now, still, most of the people who are dying are older. So if you are old and you are not vaccinated, you're making a big mistake. You're making a tremendous mistake because it's very contagious and most of the people who are dying are old. So like if you're over 70, you haven't gotten vaccinated yet, you're crazy. It's one thing to take this stand against the vaccine and say, you don't trust it, you don't trust the government, blah, blah, blah. If, if, if you're 30 years old and you, t- you take that position, okay. But you're 70 years old, you take that position, uh, that is not very smart. That is going to very much put yourself at risk. Even if you're 60 or 50, you, you don't want to do it. That's why I keep telling people, if you're over 45, definitely get this vaccine now. Don't mess around if you're over 45. Are you going to play the World Series of Poker, Trader Risky? I doubt it. Maybe. E- even with the, it- the recent uh, announcement that you have to be vaccinated? Well, I'm vaccinated. So do you think that that will increase – as far as percentage of fish go, I'm thinking that there might be a lot of bad players lost with that new rule. It's funny. We just discussed this earlier, and that's been said on Twitter, but I don't agree as much. But I I do think bad players will be lost in a different way. I think it will result in a little bit as far as the loss of bad players. But remember, like look at some of the – uh, known anti-vaxxers in poker. You have people like Alex Foxen and Kristen Bicknell. You, you have people who are excellent at poker that, that are taking this position. So it's not as easy to assume these people are going to be fish as you think. Uh, where I think we're going to lose people, and I was saying it at the beginning of the show, but I'll say to you and get your reaction, is I think people are just going to stay away who just either don't want to wear a mask all day because it's not important enough for them to play because they're just recreational players, or people who don't want to risk Delta getting them and are going to stay away because it's not important enough. So I think that's where recreational players will say, you know what, I'm just not going to come this year. I don't want to wear a mask all day. I don't want to get Delta. I, you know, the, think of these recreational players like these businessmen who have a lot of money and just enjoy playing poker, but really are dead money in these events uh, that are 60 years old. Well, some of these guys are not going to come if they have to wear a mask all day. Some of these guys are not going to come if they have to 
uh, risk getting Delta. And then the ones that are not that scared of Delta are probably the ones who also didn't get vaccinated and can't come. So it's going to be a combination of all this stuff. But I think it's going to be more a factor of recreational players that just will choose not to come between the mask mandate and the uh, and the Delta danger. So I think that is going to drive people away to where you're going to have more diehard poker people who are willing to come and sit there and play in a mask and risk getting Delta because they love poker so much. And those are that's going to skew to be good or decent players. That's my concern about the field. I, I do think overall, I agree with that. yeah, I do think overall it's going to be tougher field than two years ago with, with all this combined, but. And I think a lot of people just aren't going to want to do the first one. And if it's going to be then May the following year, it's, you know, more like another six months, not a whole year. Yeah, that's another good point. I don't know. I don't know if people are going to think that, but yeah, if if they do believe it's coming back at a normal time in 2022, then okay. Well, why don't I just wait another seven months and it's going to be back anyway? So they they may think that way, or I guess it'd be another eight months. Well, but and also it's like they you know when they add a new tournament or something that has a bunch of players and some clusterfuck. I mean, this is going to be like affecting the whole thing. I guess there won't be as many players, but, you know. Well, yeah, and it, know. it is going to be a clusterfuck. It's going to really be a clusterfuck once COVID cases show up. And they're kidding themselves that they think they won't because there's enough breakthrough cases that with a big field of thousands and thousands of people, there are going to be COVID-positive people who are fully vaccinated. And they may not even catch it at the World Series. They may catch it elsewhere. They may have already gotten it, and it just isn't showing up yet uh, when, when they first start playing. Whatever it is... They're, they're going to have COVID cases there, and you're going to have people at the table who have COVID. You're going to have people at the table who are trying to hide that they have COVID because they don't want to be disqualified. Uh, you're going to have this decision where you have to take people out and force them to get tested, which they haven't said they're going to do, but maybe they'll have to if someone is, is constantly coughing and you're very suspicious. I, they haven't dealt with these things before. And I, I you know, the World Series, they don't prepare for anything. They've been changing this policy all over the place. So uh, I, I bet there's going to be tons of controversy and tons of fail involving this whole COVID matter. And let's not forget, there's probably going to be a lot of issues with the verification. You have to do it through an app. or You don't have to, but they recommend you do it through this clear app. I bet there's going to be fail with that where people who think that they're verified through the app really aren't. And they're going to get mad that they can't play. And there's going to be complaints about that. Uh, th- there's so many different ways that can go wrong. And that's on top of the usual fail of the World Series. So, yeah, I think you're bringing up a good point that the fail may be at an all-time high this year. And that's another thing you may have to deal with. So I'm not missing that much by not going, I think. (laughs) I just don't see that many scenarios to where I will be there. All right, well... I don't have much more. I hope you guys enjoyed my story tonight about the poker girl saga and i hope you enjoyed the mojave desert and vegas history story i did even though it wasn't about mojave desert or vegas next week we'll be back on should be a week from today we'll be back on friday september 3rd that is the scheduled date i know it's labor day weekend but you know What is my Labor Day weekend other than something to broadcast Poker Fraud Alert Radio? Of course, I I can't go anywhere because I have a responsibility to do this show for all the money they pay me. I will 
talk to you guys next week. Trader Ruski, thank you for coming on. And uh, did you just wake up when you came on here? Yeah, yeah, I was up actually for a bit, for a little bit, but uh, and then I just checked my text. I forgot to check last night. I just had a crazy week, so. Yeah, so someone texted um, me. Uh, by the someone texted me from the seven oh seven. Two fuck ups in one show. No tip for you. That's that's fair. There were two fuck ups. One was my fault. One wasn't. So, the one that was my fault was when I came back from the break. I turned the show off accidentally. The one that was not my fault is it did this weird four something a.m. crash, which I was scouring the server to see if that's what's causing it. That something's happening at four something in the morning. But this time it was like four thirty. It wasn't four. And I I kind of think it's actually on my computer's end because uh, what I'm seeing is that it just isn't broadcasting any sound. Just the sound goes, it's connected, but it's just broadcasting no sound. And I have to shut down the application that is broadcasting and restart it. So it really seems like something on my computer that's happening. And I, I don't know what's causing it. And I wish I knew. Is it exactly at four thirty? No, it, it was around four thirty. See, I don't know exactly when it happened. I just noticed like at 4.31, I'm looking at it and it's not broadcasting. It's uh, shit. Because I see little levels. What happens is this tool I use to broadcast the show, it has levels for left and right because it's stereo. And I, I see the levels go from green to yellow to red, depending on how loud I'm speaking. And when there's just like no bars, that means that it's not broadcasting any sound. When it's just black, it means it's not broadcasting anything. And I, I glance over at it at 4.31 a.m., and it's just black. And I go, shit. And this is what happens every time. The last few weeks when this happened. It didn't happen last week, but the two prior weeks and this week when it happened, it's that same blackness there. And, and the way that I, I can uh, do it is by shutting down the app and starting it again. So I think it's – even though it's the same application I've used for many years, I think maybe something in my computer is, is causing this to break in some way. I don't know what's making that happen but i think something in the background is probably breaking it on my computer it's gonna be very tough to figure out so i'm just going to be watching for this i don't know why it's always at four something in the morning maybe i should look if my computer is doing something in that range of time that might be uh possibly interrupting this i was looking at the server end because we did have a problem a while back where like around eleven fifty-five p.m and i finally i narrowed it down to exactly eleven fifty-five that the show would crash and it got me a few weeks in a row, and I go, wait a minute. How come it's always kind of like around midnight? And then I figured out it was 11.55, and then I went and looked, and I found there was something that was running at 11.55 on the server every night that, for whatever reason, was disrupting this. I never figured out why, but I, I saw this was running at 11.55, and I go, okay, this is not a coincidence. So I turned that thing off, and it stopped happening. So I was proud of myself, but there's no such thing running at 4 a.m. or 4.30, so I don't know what to say here. So I think it's on the end of my computer, and I will try to figure this out, and I will cut it out of the archives. So if you're in the archives, if you're listening to the archives, you will say, there was no problem. Everything was fine. There was, there was no turnoff of the show. And that's because I spend my valuable time editing all this fail out. And some of you say, oh, I want to hear the fail. It's funny. No, it, it's really not very interesting. It's uh, just me kind of waiting and looking at things and dead air and waiting for everyone to come back on. It, it's it's and asking people when I was last speaking, that they could hear me. It's, it's not very good radio. So I, I just cut it all. Then it sounds a little bit better. It's actually uh, 
a good amount of time I put into editing every show. And we'll be back next Friday. So thank you, Trey Ruski, for coming on. Thank you. Glad I saw the text before you shut it down. Yeah. Look forward to listening to the, the rest of it. Yeah, I'm glad he had you here at the end. And uh, hopefully we'll have Brandon back next week. I, I have a feeling he just had a headache or uh, overslept or whatever it is. And uh, so we, we just talked last night. He said he's going to come on this show. And uh, somehow that did not happen this week. But uh, hopefully we'll have him back next week to do his Vegas topics. And we'll get to hear about Sharif, who presumably still texting him. So, all right. Good night, Trader Risky. Or good morning, Trader Risky. Thanks, brother. Have Bye-bye. a good night. I don't know what's wrong with me today. I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but I, I'm going to admit it. I'm going to admit it because I won't learn from it if I don't admit it. I, I shut down the show again. When I tried to disconnect Trader Ruski, I disconnected the show. I, I disconnected the show twice by pressing the wrong button. Now, yes, this last one was just before the end song, but most of you are not hearing this end song live because I, I disconnected the show right before I put this on. That's just stupid. That's just plain stupid. Like, I never do this. I never just turn off the show by pressing the wrong button. Tonight, I did it twice. I don't know why. Like, this shouldn't be happening, but somehow it's happening. done here so there's only so much more I can do that's a mistake I think I'm just going to sit here and listen to the music because I can't screw anything up further it's too loud too there we go sorry if I blew out your ear I'm just messing it all up today There's only so much I can do in editing to make it sound better. Some days I'm just not all there. Maybe I didn't take enough caffeine before the show. I don't know. I feel normal, but I'm making these boneheaded mistakes. Okay, we'll be back September 3rd, Friday. Give away more free money in the free roll. Cover more drama in the poker world. And I'll have another story for you. Another long-form story about something interesting Maybe in poker and gambling, maybe not. But we'll have something for you. And a bunch of other stuff next week. Shalom.